This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. I need all time, put it back where you fucking found it, no. I need all time, keep them right there where you found them, though. I want a shirt that make my body feel all sexy. I want a chain that make my body feel all hefty. I want my head to fall off when I walk out the door. I want the rain to fall down and I'm asking for more. Riding on a roof with a dollar sign attached to my head. Riding on a roof with a dollar sign attached to my head. Riding on a roof with a dollar sign attached to my head. Riding on a roof with a dollar sign attached to my head. Riding on a roof with a dollar sign attached to my head. Riding on of the top 120 matches of 2017 special, I'm Quentin Moody. Brock is here. You should know that by now. Brock, it's part four, the last part of this very stupid decision I both made. Um, bring it to over with. Yeah, can you can you hear how more exhausted we are on this part versus what we were doing on Friday? This has been a very bad decision. Don't know why. Especially, especially the last 24 hours have been a rough 24 hours yes. for the two of us. <laughs> um, I know this is going to go long already. Yeah. But um, let's just dive into it. So, okay. my number 30 is Zack Sabre Jr. versus Will Ospreay from Rev- Revolution Pro Wrestling Global Wars Night 2. And you should know I don't have this one on my list. Um, last year I had uh, Zack Sabre Jr. with Osprey match from Evolve 58 on my list, mm-hmm. and when I rewatched it for match of the year purposes, I wasn't nearly as high on it as I was at the time watching it live. And I did have to reevaluate these two together because I went back and watched a Super Strong Style match, their uh, 16 Carat match from that year. There, he had a match of PWG that I thought was pretty fine, but. I think since these two were facing off in 2016 and had like four matches or whatever that year, both of these guys have gotten a lot better as wrestlers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those matches didn't have any real story behind them. They were just showcase matches um, thrown together on a show because that was just a hot matchup around the world. So here we are on this Rev Pro Global War show. And Osprey got this shot by beating well, um, beating um, Sabre Jr. on... Um, a Portsmouth show that um, Ref Pro ran, uh, and that one of the famous Jackson Virginia temper tantrums after losing. Mm-hmm. So here we are, and we have a very firmly heel Jackson Virginia going up against Osprey, and this is maybe my favorite Jackson Virginia performance of the year. Uh, this guy is tremendous, cutting Osprey off at every single turn with it um, with his offense. Uh, the superhero pose stuff that can annoy some people, Zack Sabre Jr. had a solution for that. A couple of them, actually. The first time Osprey tries to superhero pose, he grabs him while he's trying to do the cartwheel. I mean, the cartwheel, I mean, the um, back handspring on the ropes. Yeah. Grabs his hands and pulls him out of the ring. The second time Osprey tries this, he actually gets to bounce off the ropes and, you know, get the pose in. But Zack Sabre Jr. comes in and just penalty kicks him. 
So we have a ruthless Zack Sabre Jr. who is not here to play games, not here to deal with any of this fun shit that Osprey likes to do. If you've seen Osprey in the last year or so, you've seen that he has these suction cup marks on his back, um, something that he's picked up in his time wrestling in Japan. So what does Zack Sabre Jr. do? He has a lot of offense focus on the suction cup marks on Osprey's back. Uh, <laughs> sure, it's like this kind of like meta science stuff that Osprey and Zack are playing with, but if you're going to do it, there's nothing wrong with like at least like acknowledging it in a match. Yeah, like there's, I mean, there's really no big difference between that and going after someone's like taped up ribs. Yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I just love how nasty and vicious Zack is. I think Osprey could have been better, but again, I think there's a way better Osprey performance than we get in any of the 2015 or 2016 matches. Mm. So yeah, I really enjoyed this match, and it kind of means more to me on a level where these guys never had a story in any of the previous matches. And here, they get some time, they get a story, there's a title on the line for the first time, too. So, in a match with bigger stakes and a better story being told, I thought these two delivered their best match together. One thing I really dig about this match is where it happens. It happens in the, um, I don't actually know how to say this place, the Walthamstow Assembly Hall. Mm. As opposed to uh, one of the buildings that RevPro regularly runs, and uh, that's your call. Uh, this place has a little bit r- more room on the floor. It's got a little bit less seating. And generally, it doesn't... Um, it's not as, like, smarky as your call tends to be. Uh, maybe... I guess maybe it just draws, like, a different fan base. Or because you have less people, people are less inclined to do a whole bunch of chanting and whatnot. And I think that definitely added to a match like this that already is starting off on the wrong foot with me, just based on who the matchup is. Um, but, like, I, I, I enjoyed that about it. The commentary gets a little uh, gets a little much for me by the end, but like this really is like a solid improvement on all of their matches that were highly touted last year. All right, so what's your number thirty? My number thirty is the first of two matches between these two gentlemen uh, that happened throughout the summer. It's the first Hideo Itami versus Oni Lorkin match from NXT. I do not know the difference between the two matches, so uh, why don't you talk to me about which one this is? Technically, they had three, but right. I consider the second and third match to be the same, since they happened on the same taping uh, in the first. Well, we'll get to that. Uh, so this is the first one. This happens uh, towards the end of May. doesn't get uh, aired until, I believe, June the 7th. And the story of this one is that Atami is a couple months into his comeback after being on the shelf for like two years with that shoulder injury or whatever. Um, he has already faced off against uh, Bobby Roode at NXT TakeOver Chicago and has lost. And he's real pissed off about that. And he's coming into this match. He's been he's already been exhibiting the, um, a whole lot of cheapiness, a whole lot of aggression, a whole lot of uh, willingness to get a little dirty in matches. And he goes up against someone like Oni Lorcan, who has achieved nothing in NXT, is, is very low-ranked, um, but is all-go all the time. Somebody who like puts his all into every one of his matches. And that really pisses off Hideo Itami. You know, this guy who's been wrestling for, uh, what, like 18 years by this point? Um, someone who hasn't achieved as much in America as he'd like and uh, really pissed off about it. As you can imagine, most of this match is, is these two just hitting each other. Uh, Atami takes control out of the gate, but when Oni shows a little bit of fire, he like sort of uh, 
gives Oni the room to run and is like, hey, give me your best shot. And Oni unloads these slaps on him, the first of which I think legitimately knocked Itami out. And if not, it was just an incredible selling performance. Oni follows it up with a pair of running uppercuts, the first of which uh, knocks Itami down, the second of which sends him like careening into the bottom rope in a gruesome fashion, one of my favorite spots of the year. Uh, Oni takes control of the match, uh, hits a dive, I believe, at some point. Um, but the referee, after Atami has been knocked loopy, goes to check on him and backs Oni off. And it gives Atami the opportunity to kick uh, directly in the knee when he starts to like stomp over to see what's going on. Uh, and it allows Atami to take control again, unload a couple more vicious strikes, and hit not one, not two, but three GTSs. Uh, and eventually catches Ono after... The third GTS is like, what the fuck are you doing? Comes out from the the locker room and is like, what are you doing? You're just trying to hurt this guy. Uh, they get in a little spat. The referee calls for the bell. Uh, they have to basically cart, uh, cart Oni Lorcan away because he's been devastated by these three GTSs. Um, not my favorite matches you had, but a good portent for what's to come in June, which is one of my favorite matches of the year. Yeah, I don't remember seeing the three, T- uh, three GTS match because I didn't watch any of the uh, mm. Atami and Ono feud. Oh, yeah, which I didn't – like, this is – I think this feud in particular, the Oni stuff, is far and away his best work in the year. Yeah, so I didn't see any of the Atami-Ono stuff, so I don't remember much about this match, but I do remember coming out of that taping and people that were watching this um, episode of NXT that they were going nuts that they had Hideo just destroy Oni like that. Mm-hmm. All right, so my number 29, I uh, don't even remember if you had this on your list or not, but not, my number 29 is Timothy Thatcher versus Matt Riddle from w, WXW Ambition 8. Uh, this made my top 200. Let me check where it is. All right. Um, this match is the main event of the show, the finals of the tournament. Um, did you find out where you had it? Yeah, I had it at 159. Okay. Well, this is the finals of the Ambition tournament this year uh, in a match that I have higher that you had, you had already um, stated on your list in Timothy Thatcher versus Jeff Cobb. Mm-hmm. Timothy Thatcher wins that match to move on to the finals. And after that, uh, really emotional match. Timothy Thatcher comes in here pretty confident. I think mm. comes in here smiling. Um, and Matt Riddle, who's normally a pretty jovial person, is always going to be smiling and bouncing around. So what we have here is a Timothy Thatcher who, who's maybe not as focused as he was in um, most of his matches. Um, just in general. And there's a great bit of just shoot style wrestling here. Uh, Matt Riddle, like his background doesn't need to be explained, but Timothy Thatcher is someone who is just always excellent on the mat with his transitions, um, the grittiness in the way he does things, uh, his facial expressions when he has, when he's home, when he's applying a hold, when he's in a hold. Mm-hmm. What I like about this match though, and what I like about the finish in particular is that Matt Riddle knocks out Timothy Thatcher. Oh, yeah. Um, and not just knocks him out. Timothy Thatcher gets up at one point um, after one flying knee. And then Matt Riddle hits him with another one. So, in Ambition, most of the finishes had been by um, submission. Mm. And I think it was a great touch here to have some, have something actually end by knockout. Which is mm. something that doesn't really happen that often in Ambition matches. Was it knockout or was it TKO? TKO. Like, 
Okay. Yeah, more of more of a TKO. Um, he, he knocked him down three times. Yeah. Yeah, Thatcher is selling it um, brilliantly each time. He has to stagger up to his feet each time he's getting knocked down. Mm. I love the fire in Matt Riddle here, um, just relentless and making sure Thatcher stays down for good. Uh, it's sort of a somewhat sad ending um, for the Timothy Thatcher story that we're going to sure. talk about in a little bit. But I do kind of like the harshness of it is that Timothy Thatcher, um, who's came to WXW, has his admiration for shoot style wrestling. And like this tournament is made for that. Mm-hmm. So, in his favorite place to be, doing his favorite thing in the world, which is just, you know, some good old fashioned shoot style wrestling, he gets mm-hmm. this far and he just couldn't cut it this time. Mm-hmm. Maybe he will in the future, but this time it just wasn't his night. Um, I like, go ahead. Yeah, you can go ahead though. I like how that plays into his entire story in 2017, though, something we have talked about, in that uh, he bets everything on this move to Germany later in the year, uh, even when he hasn't accomplished much. Like, he, he's been in Ambition several times, has never won it, uh, has been in 16 Carat and has never won it, hasn't won a title leading into the World Tag League, and then finally wins that tournament as well as the tag belts. And it's And it's like this this affirmation of of this big change that he's made. And keep on, like, Ambition is, like, this side tournament that's going on during 16-carat weekend. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, this is sort of non-canon, almost not, almost not important to the main story that's sure. going on in WXW, but as someone that is just a really big Timothy Thatcher fan, I thought it was nice that they pretty much just, like, gave this guy his own show. Just mm-hmm. go out there and just do what he loves. How did this show stack up for you as, like, a show of the year contender? It probably is my show of the year. It's, I mean, it is really good. It's it's definitely, like, a, obviously, due to the fact that it's a, a stylistic tournament, it's sort of um, a one-note show. It's rather short. Most of the matches are pretty short, under five minutes. Only one of them goes anywhere close to, like, ten. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, it... It really is a whole lot of fun, like a big cast of characters, the, the emotional through line of Thatcher's entire arc there. Um, if you're into Riddle, like Riddle does very well throughout the entire tournament. It is, like, I I think it's something that could get overlooked by certain people. All right, so uh, what's your 29? My 29 is a match you introduced me to, and it's a match that you have made mention of uh, in our third episode of this series. It's Wotan taking on Impulso from um, some promotion called WMC on February the 11th. Yeah, so I remember watching this, and it's a Lucha Extrema, so uh, uh-huh. I watched it so how uh, kind of... I, I really, it was really fun for me. I didn't think it was anything like this, mm-hmm. but I told you to watch it, and then you came back saying... Yeah, I actually like really fucking love this match. <laughs> yeah, at the time, I was like, this might be my match of the year. Because <laughs> it's February, it's still early, not a whole lot had happened. This, like, this is before even Thatcher versus Zack Sabre Jr. So, like, this, I mean, this really did, for a short period of time, uh, hold that con- that contention of, like, match of the year. I-, I understand what you're saying in that, like, maybe it's not the most impressive thing in the world, but, like, it's just a super nasty death match. Um, I love death matches, as you can tell. I love Lucha Libre. This is my highest ranked Lucha Libre match of the year. And even though it's, it's like the best representative of a bad year of Lucha, this isn't a bad match by any means, I think. Um, but it's just these two dudes like doing the stupidest things in the world. And it's so much, so much fun to watch. At one point, they do this, um, do this brain buster on the floor and, 
they're in Arena uh, San Juan Petitlan, which has like these hard concrete floors. And uh, they've got some mats outside of the ring, um, made of the same fabric as like as like a futon. Like they're just really thin little mats out there, and they're situated like half on them and half off of them to the point that where uh, if Wotan hits this brainbuster or suplex or whatever he's going for on Impulso, um, half of them are going to be on the mat and half of them are going to be on the concrete. And the thing about like a a brainbuster is when you pick somebody up vertically and then drop them back, the momentum of the whole thing is supposed to carry them onto their back. And unless like you really snap down hard with it or like go out of your way to bring them down vertically, you're not actually like dropping somebody on their head. Um, it, it's usually more of like the neck region or their, the back itself. And you just give it a little twist to make it look fancy. Um, here, Wotan just picks his brother. These, these two are brothers here, as we discovered last episode, he picks his brother up to like a, um, maybe like a 70 degree angle and then just drops him down. And the sound of Impulso's body bouncing off the concrete is disgusting and i think that really sums up everything they do here they introduce a um they introduce a pineapple with a whole bunch of skewers stuck through it that they call uh la piña extrema which delighted me to no end um they utilize some light tubes in a really efficient fashion they only have like a couple of them and they, they get a lot out of those uh they almost light themselves on fire at the end uh Wotan takes two plastic folding chairs and puts this like really thin board between them and lights it on fire and the two struggle to like see who can put the other through it first uh but before that even happens Wotan douses himself in the lighter fluid which uh when I first watched this had me screaming because that is a horrible decision uh thankfully they're able to fight long enough that the fire goes out and no one actually gets lit, but just the idea of the whole thing and, and the, um, I don't know, the energy and the effort these two put into this match, it really went a long way with me. Yeah. And it's not to like dismiss it as just like some fun. Sure. Death match. It is like extremely well done. Maybe the mm-hmm. best one I've seen in a while, but for, like, I'm just not a huge death match fan in general. And unless it hits like some super strong note for me, like something like Tremont Gage did, Mm. And it's just probably not going to make my list, but I totally get why it had, it had a place for yours. Mm. All right. My number 28 is AJ Styles versus Brock Lesnar from WWE Survivor Series. And I have this a little bit higher. So instead, we're going to talk about the CWF Rumble. I have that higher. Oh, do you? I wasn't even sure that you had seen this. Um, right. My number 27 is Walter versus David Starr from the 16 Carat. I have that higher. We're just speeding along here. <laughs> uh, next up, I have a match that I'm not sure that you even saw. Probably not. This isn't necessarily your stylistic wheelhouse. It's uh, Chihiro Hashimoto defending the Sendai Girls World Championship against Mako Satamura. Um, not even though I didn't like it, I don't think I saw this. Mm, okay. Um, so this is a rematch. Uh, last year, people will remember that I had the first match between these two from that year's big show in Sendai. Uh, on my list uh, in the, I believe it was like the 90s or so, uh, partially due to the fact that Chihiro was still fairly fresh and wasn't having the greatest matches in the world. But here she's got like a year of growth under her belt and she is still champion, even though she's lost it and won it back a couple of times. She had, uh, I believe, lost to Aja Kong and then won the belt back and then lost it to Hiroyo Matsumoto and won it back. Um, 
And she's certainly talented enough to win the belt back both of those times, but it indicates that she doesn't yet have the talent to be quite as dominant as, say, Mako Satomura was when she held the belt for over a year in its initial reign. Uh, and during that time, Satomura was, you know, continuing to do the Satomura things, being like the final boss of the final boss of Joshi. Um, and she comes in here all sorts of fired up trying to take it to the young champion. Uh, they have a cool dynamic because Satomura has <laughs> about as many years of experience as Chihiro has in her life. Um, and she is an incredible striker, but Chihiro is like a world traveled and world caliber freestyle amateur wrestler and has a strength advantage you don't often see in Joshi wrestling. Um, and they just, you know, they batter, batter each other back and forth. Satomura tries to go after Chihiro's arm in order to mitigate her strength advantage. Uh, but Chihiro powers through it and sticks to her game plan of suplexes, which leads to, um, some sort of like inadvertent neck work on her part that Satomura sells really well, like exceptionally well. And it's like just a little thing that pops up in the last like two, three minutes. Um, which also includes like, a wonderfully, um, a wonderfully petulant kickout from Satomura that reminded me a whole lot of like Zack Saber Jr. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. In big, uh, typical Joshi fashion, they they built to a nice little crescendo, throwing big bombs back and forth, and eventually Chihiro picks up the win and defeats her trainer yet again with a bridging German suplex. Um. Just a reference, since I didn't see this. How does how does this compare to their um, title match from last year? This is way better. This is like I have it like seventy spots higher. Okay, yeah, just curious. I never got around to watching it. I really should have. Mm. Um, a lot of Sunday girls I didn't get to see. I didn't get to see any of the Haruya Matsumoto versus um, Chihiro Hashimoto matches. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot I missed um, from 2017 Joshi. So my number 26, a match that I just referenced earlier, and a match that you had earlier on your list is Timothy Thatcher versus Jeff Cobb from WXW Ambition Eight. Ooh, okay. Why don't you tell me about it as I scroll back up to it? Um, so Jeff Cobb and Timothy Thatcher have known each other and wrestled each other for a very long time. Uh, one of my favorite matches of the, of like the last five years or so was Timothy Thatcher versus Jeff Cobb and premier. Like Mm. these guys have had awesome chemistry. These guys, um, kind of broke out at the same time. Uh, they went different paths with Timothy Thatcher breaking out more and evolve and Jeff Cobb getting his chances of Lucha underground. Mm. But these guys started blowing up around the same time. And so it's cool for me to see these guys kind of um, have their paths cross again in Germany. Mm. Timothy Thatcher's um, newfound home and Jeff Cobb, I believe this is his first time over there. Pretty sure. So these two are just like grinning and smiling ear to ear during this match. And before the match, they, uh, I forgot who does this. I think, yeah, I think it's Thatcher that does it. Because in Evolve, they also, uh, dedicated their match to Oliver John, who is their trainer. But once again, here in this match, they dedicate this, they dedicate, um, their mission match to, uh, the trainer Oliver John. So the action itself is a lot of the same stuff that you would grow to love and expect from a Timothy Thatcher, Jeff Cobb match. Mm-hmm. Timothy Thatcher is strong, but he's not Jeff Cobb strong. So Jeff Cobb is able to, throw around and dominate Timothy Thatcher a little bit. Timothy Thatcher is better on the ground. as a better submission guy. So he has to look for stuff like that. And that plays into the story where I believe Timothy Thatcher catches um, Cobb in a flash arm bar for the victory. Mm-hmm. But a lot of this is the emotion and just seeing Timothy Thatcher so happy during the match. 
just smiling and grinning ear to ear during the match. There's a lot of playful um, antics going on. Timothy Thatcher talking to the crowd. Yeah, like super talkative, something you don't get from him a lot, uh, especially as a face. Like you get it a little bit like at Evolve 79 a few weeks prior to this because he's specifically trying to rile up Laboom. But like, but here he's just like having fun. Yeah, that's what makes that's what makes this match so fun is that you just mm-hmm. watch Smithy Thatcher having the time of his life. Yeah, and like you sort of described him as like this grizzled grapple bot before. Sure, other people have said he's emotionless <laughs> and lifeless. Mm-hmm. Like, so as a big Timothy Thatcher fan, it's just like awesome to see this guy like visibly happy because yeah. the guy is so mysterious because this guy doesn't have social media. The only times we see him on social media are when Yern Simmons posts about him on Twitter. Like it's just super fun. <laughs> like that's why this is so great. Cause we finally get a glimpse into like Timothy Thatcher, the person uh-huh. and how much Timothy Thatcher, the person is having the time of his life facing Jeff Cobb in Germany in this little shoot style tournament. And to return to, to something that we've already mentioned on this podcast, the whole story of like Thatcher betting on himself and moving to Germany and, and, and getting this big reward in the world tag league, uh, victory. I don't think that story works so well if he doesn't have this match because you don't get to see like how much doing something with his friends in this specific promotion in this specific tournament that's basically built around someone like him uh, like i don't think that whole sentimental and emotional journey works so well if you don't have this uh quality grapple fuck match between these two yeah like the match itself is fantastic like yeah it's, it's really just, good yeah it's like some of the best shoot style work i've seen in a few years Random, a lot of the best shoot work I've seen has come from Timothy Thatcher. Mm-hmm. But again, just- and specifically the um, the finish is like, oh, it was okay. So like Cobb goes for a couple suplexes, uses his mm-hmm. strength advantage well, uh, and finishes it off with a big bridging German suplex, which then Thatcher is able to reverse into a double wrist lock, which was a common spot in one of the shoot feds. I think it was rings. I could be wrong about that, but that w- that was like a super common spot back in the nineties. And to see it again for the first time in many years was really cool. Yeah. Timothy Thatcher is someone that we also know is like a student of the game, like mm-hmm. a big rings battle arts, UWFI fan. So like to see that just let you know how much he actually takes his craft seriously. So and a really emotional stuff. If you've been following the stories of Timothy Thatcher and Jeff Cobb, mm-hmm. but in general, it also plays into just the really, really strong 2017 Timothy Thatcher head. Totally. All right, so what's your 26? My 26 is also another emotional match, something I believe you said you had lower on your list. It's Yuji Nagata taking on uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi in the G1 Climax. I had that at 51. Okay. Um, so when did when did you first start watching New Japan? Um, I've kind of like I felt like I've explained like my history is kind of weird. Okay. So at first I was watching like. 90s, 90s old, um, why am I saying old Japan? New Japan. Um, old Japan! I was going to say old Japan. <laughs> That's hilarious. I was, supposed to be, I was stuck between saying all and new, so I wanted to like yeah. all. But anyway, I was watching 90s New Japan, like when mm-hmm. I was first started branching out in the period. Like, keep in mind, I'm 20. So like, sure. I was like watching 90s New Japan, is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't think I really started watching the current stuff up until 2012. But, like, I was pretty familiar with someone like Yuji Nagata who, like, started showing up, like, later in the Mm. 90s. Like, I I had something of a similar situation to you. Uh, 
became a wrestling fan in the late 2007 and it didn't take me long because I was a teenager and I knew like how to use the internet. Uh, it didn't take me long to start branching out into other things. And I, you know, I found, you know, the three Musketeers and, and watched a whole bunch of that sort of thing. But, uh, throughout 2008 like i would be able to find stuff from then modern new japan uh one of which was the initial nagata tanahashi feud uh and i've spoken before i'm a big fan of like old man tries to uh keep a hold of his place in the world versus young punk who's trying to uh carve a spot for himself matches and uh that feud is very much in line with those sorts of matches and to see them Lock it up for, I mean, honestly, maybe the last time 10 years on uh, was a really cool thing for someone like me. Uh, I've only, like, I was a big fan of Nagata back then, but I've only recently, uh, in the last couple of years, found an appreciation for Tanahashi. Uh, before then, I thought it was just, I don't know, it was a little much for me. It was a little heavy-handed, his entire, like, uh, one in a thousand years ace uh, persona. Um but to see him as his body continues to degrade and as he goes through the process of becoming an old man who is trying to, you know, uh, keep his relevancy in his hands, uh, I've found more and more appreciation for him. And especially throughout 2017, which was like sort of a rough year for him, uh, looking at Dominion, the show, just a couple of weeks before this, he had like, honestly, one of the worst matches of the year for me. And it wasn't because of like, some poor planning or the crowd just wasn't into it. It was, it was just because like, he's not at the physical state that he used to be. And he's trying to do things that his body shouldn't be doing anymore. Um, so coming into the G one, I was sort of worried, uh, about how far he was going to push himself. I was worried for Nagata who had announced that this was going to be his last G one climax tournament. Um, but they come in here on day five, still real early in the tournament when they have plenty of energy left and they have this really emotional, really gritty strike-based match um, in which these two are trained forearms like it's 2007 all over again. And it's not like it's not as polished as, as you'd like it to be, but there's there's a certain there's a certain sentimentality behind like these two whiffing kicks or whiffing strikes. Um, it's at a, one point, it's an awesome superplex. Like it's one of the like better superplexes yeah. I've seen in a while. Might've been, might've been a off the top, but like either way, it's one of the mm. best like suplexes off the top rope I've seen in a while. And, it, and it's hard to watch cause you, you, you know, like that's going to hurt for these two guys more so than it would hurt for somebody else. But uh, like, it's, it's nice. It's really nice to see these guys go out, um, on their own terms. At one point, Tanahashi like busts open Nagata and Nagata's like feebly, um, he's got like this thousand yard stare going on and he's like taking swipes, but he's like feet away from Tanahashi. There's no way he's actually going to hit him. And eventually he just goes down and like there's just a whole lot of poetic, um, poetic moments throughout this match like that one that, that really, uh, make it something special for me. Um, I've never been a, like the big, like the big Juju Nagata guy. I've always liked him, mm. but like some people like absolutely adore him. Sure. But one thing that I've always loved about Yuji Nagata is like out of all Japanese wrestlers other than like Toshiaki Kawada, I think like he has like the best grasp of facial expressions. Mm, totally. Yuji Nagata's facial expressions are priceless. And I think especially against Tanahashi, go like this 
turning back the clock performance against this rival that has this history that has gone on like mm-hmm. more than 10 years at this point. Mm-hmm. To see him just like stare at Tanahashi and think it's time to it's time to rev it up again. It's like <laughs> the best thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. These slap exchanges that they have again, Tanahashi's slaps <laughs> do remind me of someone taking off their glove and hitting them with it. But again, like <laughs> it's just better against Yuji Nagata. Like mm. it's that kind of insolence and defiance that like made Tanahashi who he was back in like 2007. Mm-hmm. Him mm-hmm. going up and disrespecting Yuji Nagata and Yuji Nagata giving him the same kind of disrespect back. But yeah. Uh, even as someone that doesn't have the same emotional attachment to these guys or this matchup, this did really resonate with me, which says a lot about the quality of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So my number 25 is hmm, might make an on-air adjustment. Oh no. All right. My number 25 is Will Ospreay versus Jimmy Havoc from chapter 46. Okay. This is the loser leaves town match. The one that I did see. Uh huh. Um, this match can be called um, goofy, <laughs> um, overwrought, too long, melodramatic. Are you just reading from my review now? I don't think I don't even, even read your review. <laughs> okay, um, but it can be called all these things, and I would fully understand and appreciate all those sentiments. But for me, as someone that like El Generico versus Kevin Steen is like my favorite independent wrestling story ever told. Sure. So for me, this is like number two. This is probably my favorite story ever. Uh, The whole Jimmy Havoc trying to give progress, everything and earn a spot there. Eventually just gets caught back up into doing death matches after wanting Mm -hmm. to prove himself as a regular wrestler. Mm Mm-hmm. Progress is, de- is progress is destroying his body, and he wants to make it known that he's more than this. He turns, um, attacks Jim Smallman, attacks Mark Andrews, threatens to light him on fire. Um, goes on this reign of tyranny, cheating and beating everybody thrown at him, attempting murder on multiple people. Uh, and here comes Will Ospreay, this young, bright-eyed at the time, I think 21, 20-year-old. Uh, what, in 2015? 2014-2015. Yeah, he's my age, so I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, at the time, this 20, 21-year-old trying to defend this company, and he does it. He's able to fight off this Mm -hmm. evil force, this tyrant, and then as time goes on, and I went back and rewatched a lot of the later progress shows in the year in 2015. Mm -hmm. As soon as Will Ospreay beats Jimmy Havoc, you can already hear people booing him. In the Mark Haskins match from Chapter 21. Go mm. back and listen. As soon as Will Ospreay already does this thing that people have been waiting and clamoring for someone to do, and that's beat Jimmy Havoc, you can already hear sections of the audience booing him. That's interesting. And when Will Ospreay loses the belt to Marty Skrull in uh, January of 2016, I mentioned it before on the, um, uh, what was that, Part 2, yeah. I mentioned it on Part 2, laying out that whole story of him going on this losing streak, and I didn't really mention the fact that he snapped. Mm. After the match against Jimmy Havoc at Chapter 41, he then attacks him. He realizes with Paul Robinson. He hits Jimmy Havoc with a barbed wire baseball bat. So this heel turn of Will Ospreay is finally in place. 
And Will Ospreay doesn't have that many matches in progress or many appearances in progress after he turns heel. And it's understandable due to how busy his schedule is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with more time to work with, with more appearances, it probably could have been better. But for me, still watching this match, everything that goes on to it, where it's, where it's a story where everybody is justified and it's almost like the real villain is progress as a company. Seeing how progress... That's- that's such a nice note that, like, on its face is just really funny. And is like, as a snarky person, I would be like, yeah, of course. But that is an interesting thing to note. Jimmy Havoc turned into what he was because he felt disrespected and let down mm. by management. Will Osprey turned into what he was because he felt like management let him down. Mm. And here we are at Chapter 46 in this bloody plunder brawl, um, fans bring the weapon, loser leaves town match. And a lot of it can be called kind of funny, cheeky, too much in a way where there's like this big feud under why are you trying to be humorous and like get all of that. But like when, when it gets to the point where these guys are just exhausted, they've exercised every resource that they have in their arsenal and they're just in opposite corners sitting down and Bull Osprey gets a microphone mm-hmm. and he's just talking about how these people turn their backs on them and how. Well, Osprey did everything he could for this company, and they still shat on him. He went and won the best of the Super Juniors, and he comes back, and he's still unappreciated. And you feel all these words. And mm-hmm. then, well, Osprey went back, and he just, in 2016, every time he was in England, it just felt like he wasn't as big of, big of a deal as he used to be. And I can understand maybe that frustration, maybe that resentment, and that you are the biggest British um, wrestler, um, so to speak, that's happened in New Japan. And Osprey loses. There's a whole bunch of callbacks to um, their previous title matches, to uh, the Chapter 41 match, to Chapter 20, to, uh, I believe, Chapter 16. Mm. There's a whole bunch going on here, even to the fact that Will Osprey does a 630, which, again, if you watched any 2017 Osprey, he rarely, rarely, rarely did that move. So that is a neat touch um, as a reference to the whole Jump, Tuck, Prey stuff that was going on in 2015. So yeah, there's a lot of going there's a lot going on that I could easily see disliking, hating, or thinking it was just a bad way to end this long feud. But I think that's what kind of makes it unique. Is that it's kind of this over dramatic Will Osprey performance, and it's almost like a reference to um when Jimmy Havoc loses the progress title. Mm-hmm. That Will Osprey gets his big moment in the sun, and then Jimmy Havoc rolls out. And just doesn't interrupt it. There's no handshake at the end. There's no crowd applause standing in the ring. There's no even the crowd booing him or mm. saying um, the whole, um, you know, goodbye song. Mm. Jimmy Havoc wins this and Will Ospreay's gone. And we don't see him again until December. And great, like this match happened. Yeah. This match happened in March of um, 2017. I forgot that he just came back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had just came back. He was not even mentioned or saw or whatever. And. I like that, that their commitment, they didn't even have Osprey, who has meant so much to this company, um, other than Jimmy Havoc, or maybe you could even argue him above Jimmy Havoc, because, like, this, like, face of the company, this guy that, like, uh-huh. put progress on his back and put them on the map, mm-hmm. just kind of disappeared and didn't even really get to have a swan song. Yeah, this match is, um, it is a little much. Uh, Will Osprey is decked out in Hitman gear here. And he has an entrance in oh, which he. I should. Uh, oh god! Go I didn't even mention like 
he come he has this like mock Jimmy Havoc entrance, right? Uh-huh. Yes. And he also is wearing white, which if you again, Jimmy sure. Havoc's big match gear is he's usually wearing is like he's usually wearing white. Yeah. Whenever do they, they do they bleed in this one? I don't recall if they do. I think Osprey might have used a capsule, but Jimmy Havoc was bleeding, yeah. I don't recall. But um in Jimmy Havoc's big matches, he always usually wore white mm. or he um usually had a big entrance. So mm-hmm. With, like, multiple people, and it's a big set-piece thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, Os- and whenever Jimmy Havoc had a big match, he would be use- he would use that um, AFI interlude. Uh-huh. So, a nice little touch here is that you hear the AFI interlude for the first time in two years. Long time, yeah. And as well Osprey coming out doing this mock Jimmy Havoc entrance, which, like, again, like, I can see people thinking... It's kind of it's kind of too much. What, but like it's because what he does is he comes yes. up behind four <laughs> people who are kneeling on the ground and shoots them in the back of the head or snaps their neck or like strangles them and it's yeah. like it's it's a lie. It you is. know, um, you mentioned like the promos in the match. I think there's multiple of them. At least I've written down that there were multiple, and I think those are a little much. I'd prefer something a little more like nonverbal. Uh, maybe that's just like my taste. I'm really into like nonverbal communication. I don't, I don't, I don't really enjoy mid match promos either. But again, I just think it was so different in this situation that it appealed mm-hmm. to me. Sure. I don't really hear any big match like this where it happens. Like, and yeah, that's that's my point in the end. In that, like. This is there's a lot of muchness in this match, but to tell the end of the story between two guys who have had like a three year long feud, basically, um, that not only is completely representative of both of their careers, but representative of this promotion itself. Uh, like there's there's no way promo- uh, progress is nearly as popular today as it would be without this feud. You know, I, like you can forget that, like. This feud ending was probably like the end of progress in a lot of ways. It's like the end sure. of that era of progress. And yeah, totally. Like, and like, keep in mind, like this wasn't even the main event of Chapter Forty Six, which is a little weird to me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. This wasn't even the main event, so they could have went all out and like made them the main event and gave them all this time. But this was just the match um, for the first half. Uh-huh. Dunn versus Mark Andrews went on last, so yeah, I thought that was like another good touch there. But um, anything else to add? No, I think that's it. All right, so you're number twenty five. My number 25 is a match. Uh, it, it stinks because we already actually talked about it to some degree because these guys had a, another rematch, uh, and we mentioned it on a previous episode. It's Kane Justice taking on Dominic Greeny at CWF Mid-Atlantic's, CWF Mid-Atlantic's end of an era 2017 from uh, February. Uh, yeah, I thought this was their best match together. Uh, uh-huh. So uh, I didn't have it on my list. I'm talking talk to me about it. So uh, we already talked about how like these two have uh, well represented martial arts backgrounds. Uh, Dominic Greeny's what a BJJ guy, yeah, right, like a, a well respected like world renowned BJJ guy. And King Justice has a background in judo that has become a big part of his character in CWF and has helped him throughout his rookie year to accomplish a lot more than most people a year into wrestling would be able to do. Um, and they, they work with that dynamic here of like Kane having more pro wrestling experience and it's, and it allows him to uh, play tricks on and get the advantage on someone who is like way better at him in his various martial arts backgrounds. Um, and we've talked about how like because of these guys having these uh, shoot backgrounds that they approach this match in a very different way. They do, they do simple moves like, um, 
like even just slams and kicks in a completely unique uh, and refreshing style. They don't go very long. They keep it hot throughout the whole run of it for like eight minutes, maybe. Um, there's there's some sloppiness here and there because these are two fresh guys, two, uh, both of them less than two years into the business. Um, but like for, I think I said this last time, God, there's, there's like nothing new to say about these matchups. <laughs> but like for someone who's ten years into wrestling, like I want something new, and this this represented something incredibly new to me, and I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I think I, we did kind of like hit all the points we would have had um, mm-hmm. on this match earlier when we had uh, that part discussion on part one. But mm-hmm. uh, I enjoy these matches a lot. I think they're really well done, um, especially for for some U.S. independent matches. Yeah, uh, like invoke some like shoot style um, responses and emotion. I do think these guys kind of got passes for being sloppy and doing some sure. catching stuff and a whole bunch of indie river submissions that probably would get shit on by most people. Mm. So, uh, my number. I think I, I think at least part of that though is like, I think for a lot of people it comes across better in in this sort of match when it's two guys with a shoot background compared to, uh, say Zack Saber Jr. who doesn't have like uh, a red belt or something in in some martial art. Yeah, sure. Um, my number twenty four is uh, Ilya Dragunov versus Bad Bones John Klinger from the WXW seventeenth anniversary show. Okay, and I had this one at, uh, I believe, 49, so why don't you kick us off? Uh, I believe this is, no, it's my second highest-ranked WXW match. So, the whole Ilya Dragunov story kind of starts at the anniversary show last year, where he has mm-hmm. this no-disqualification match against Bad Bones. Mm-hmm. And in that 2016 show... He shakes hands with Bad Bones. He's officially gone from Cerberus. And here comes this Ilya Dragunov babyface run. Mm-hmm. And we he misses the January Back to the Root show, which mm-hmm. at the time I thought was a booking decision. Um, And then I'll get back to that note later on. Okay. He then goes on to win 16 Carat, has this awesome emotional run where he goes through all of his rivals. Um this great, fantastic final victory against Walter. And he has a feud against Robert Dreisker all summer. Mm-hmm. And then transitions into him being firmly put into the world title mix with guys like Aaron Simmons and Bad Bones. And Bad Bones during this whole thing has rides with them. There's a whole bunch of chicanery, heel bullshit. So the title has still been evading Elliot throughout 2017. Uh-huh. Here at the 17th anniversary show, there is no rise interference. If rise interferes, Bad Bones will lose the championship. Mm-hmm. So this two or three year story of Ilya and Bad Bones just going at it for so long is finally coming to a head. And Bad Bones doesn't have anybody to help him. Ilya Dragunov finally has a one on one. It's no disqualification. It's in the main event of the ti- It's in the main event of the show, and it's for the title. The reason why I said put a note on Ilya Dragunov missing that back to the root show in January 2017. WXW did a documentary series highlighting Ilya Dragunov. Ilya Dragunov is someone who is very young, still mm. 24 yeah. years old. That blew my mind. I didn't know he was my age. That yes. killed me. Ilya Dragunov is still someone who is very young, 24 years old. Um, he's um, started progressing at a very rapid rate in his wrestling. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this documentary highlights his personal life, highlights his wife, his child, and mm-hmm. how much he prior- prioritizes his family 
over being this world-renowned, famous wrestler. And and part of that is due to his upbringing in that he is uh, a Russian immigrant in Germany and had a lot of had a lot of shit growing up because of that and had a hard upbringing in a whole lot of other ways. And um, throughout this three-part documentary series on Shotgun, WXW's weekly TV show, they uh, interview a couple of his old friends, and all of them are like, yeah, Ilya had like a rough time coming up, and having a family, finding a family, and settling down has really has really like helped him get through things. The reason why Ilya, Ilya Dragunov missed that January show is that he had a family emergency. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like an angle WXW ran. They, um, I, I believe Ilya informed them that he couldn't make it. They shot some angle, making it seem like Cerberus had attacked him backstage. Mm-hmm. But they revealed that Ilya had a family obligation. And when you watch this, it really starts to sink in. And you really think about like how long people have been begging. Like, when is, when is Ilya Dragunov going to show up in progress? When is he going to show up in Renfro? When is he going to get the world title? When is he going to do... All these things. Mm. And you sit there and you watch this documentary series and you start to realize that wrestling isn't always the most important thing in somebody's life when they're a professional wrestler. They can have another job. They can have family. They can have other bills to pay. That wrestling at the moment isn't fulfilling. And they can just have other things that are more important to them. And that's what Ilya Dragunov has here. And one of the cliffhanger questions that they ask during the documentary series is um, the interviewer asked Ilya, are you ready for the responsibilities of being the WXW mm-hmm. Unified Champion? And you can look at Ilya's face and there's this uncertainty to that because he loves WXW, he loves being here, but there's more responsibilities in his life than just being the WXW Champion. And it's important to note that WXW is one of like only a couple indie promotions that actually tours like they they travel around all of germany as well as some outlying countries in europe it's not like he's just in a central location where he can pop down to the you know the wxw arena for a couple hours every saturday night like if he was to represent this company as champion he would have to be on the road and away from his family for significant periods of time so um this documentary really humanizes the over the top theatrical mm. like, monster <laughs> of Ilya Dragunov. Yeah, real, we, real, real theatrical guy. You're, you're totally right with that. So we come into this match, and Bad Bones has had like a kind of a polarizing run that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But knowing Bad Bones and Ilya in their history, I knew that this match would deliver. And I expected something great. I didn't expect something that would make my top 24. Like, these guys had a violent, like a place this match, honestly. Like this is like almost like a lucha brawl in a lot of ways. This is totally. violent, gritty, nasty, great action, great crowd responses. The crowd is super invested into it. Incredibly bloody. It, bloody as hell. Um Ilya Dragunov does a really, really solid blade job. And what they do here, Ilya is just like fantastic selling the blood loss, his loopiness. Mm-hmm. Everything that goes along with that, Ilya Dragunov is putting out one of the, probably my favorite performance he's ever had. Bad totally. Bones is fantastic. It's probably the best performance he's had in a few years. Yeah, um, bad, like, um, so Klinger, you may, you made mention of Rise, but didn't really explain who they were. Uh, John Klinger, like, brought together this, this group of younger guys or, um, cast off, forgotten about guys who have appeared in WXW before, um, 
but he brought them all together with the sole intention of acting as his putties, as acting as like his squad of baddies to help him keep the title. And is sort of like rolling with this idea of like, hey, together we'll help each other rise and we'll help each other become big parts of WXW. And they found some success on that. But I think I think the whole crux of the story is that uh, Bad Bones is lying out of his teeth and is like tricking all of these guys, which we're, we're starting to see that come to fruition. Um, and throughout this heel run, Bad Bones has been uh, notably unlike himself, I think. Uh, the dude looks like a biker gang leader, like covered in tattoos, real imposing, probably roided to the gills. If if not, he's just like incredibly jacked. Um, but throughout this whole heel run with the belt, he has been like this cowardly, sniveling champion who lets his guys fight for him. Uh, but the thing is, when he's on in this one-on-one situation with Ilya, and when he's able to bust open Ilya, uh, hits him with a chair when Ilya's going for a tope, I believe, um, it uncovers this mean streak that's been there all along. So, like, the, the, when the he gets... the that everybody has knew for, like, the last decade. Totally. Finally showing up. Like, when when he sees, oh, I've got the upper hand here, you get to see him get real vicious. And I like that idea of, like, this cowardly, the like, um, chicken shit heel champion finally, like, let loose. You know, it's kind of like, um, not, like, totally dissimilar from, like, Sammy Callahan and AW in the sure. Logan message you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And that Sammy Callahan is taking all these sheet, all these um, um, cheap shots and um, shortcuts during his title reign, and then when he when he's put in a position where he has to step up and he can't hide behind people anymore, then we see oh yeah, Sammy Callahan is still a pretty fucking great wrestler too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think both guys are in phenomenal performances here. I think what takes takes it over the top for me, and and the list for me where I didn't have too many heart wrenching, heartbreaking endings. As sure. Opposed, as opposed to how how many I did how many I did in twenty sixteen, the ending of this match is kind of uncomfortable. It is a uh, Ilya Dragunov fighting and trying to stay alive, mm-hmm. and Badbone shouting at him to stay down. The crowd is like at first cheering for Ilya as hard as they can. The referees begging for him to stay down, and Ilya just keeps fighting. And Badbone finally puts him away um, with a, a shadow driver that looks absolutely gross. Yeah, Ilya comes down like right on his neck. And um, if you know any, yeah, I know a lot of people don't watch WXW. So like, sure, Bad Bones is finish. He uses a lot of finishes. He has like the wrecking ball knees, the decapitation kick, mm. but his mega finish is the Child Driver. No, which is out of it. a big uh, Omega Driver, I guess. The awful waffle, so, sort of just like a a real nutso looking Blue Thunder Driver, mm-hmm. and. That is Bad Bones' ultimate move, and once he hit Ilya with that, the realization came to me that Ilya was going to lose this match. Yeah. Like, that's when that set in, like, wow, they did the documentary series, they had this, like, year-long arc with Ilya, Yeah, and Ilya just didn't win. And at first, I'm like, why would they not have Ilya win? And then it really, like, hits you, like, well, if Ilya can't be what they need him to be as champion, then what? they're not wrong in not giving him the belt. It was such a like all the signs were there leading mm-hmm. into this match, and we were so excited for it. Like this, this caps off like the nine month journey that we have had as fans, uh, seeing Ilya win sixteen carat, which was itself like something we knew ahead of time because WXW takes a bit to release footage, um, but something we were incredibly excited about, something we loved, something that uh, 
that made us look forward to Ilya eventually winning the big one and winning the belt. And he has multiple matches throughout the summer and through the fall in which he challenges for the title and loses again and again due to nefarious means. And then you get here to the 17th anniversary and you're like, it's, it's finally going to happen. And you're following along on Twitter with like the results of the show. And you see that bad bones wins and you're like, what the fuck? But then as you're saying, you, you like think about it and you think about like this documentary series that had just come out and in which like they're, they're talking about the fact that like this wrestling doesn't mean as much to Ilya as much as like his family does. And he, he doesn't necessarily have it in him to be on the road all the time. He's already had a major injury mm-hmm. only, uh, only a couple years into his career has already fractured his skull once. It's where the whole wouldn't be uh, gimmick comes from. And like, he doesn't have the wrestling style that is conducive to a long career, which is something I'm going to talk about uh, very emotionally when we get to the upper end of our lists here. And it's like all the signs were there, but we didn't want to believe. And then you see it here at the end. Like there's a point um, they don't have, despite the fact that this is a no holds barred match, they don't use a whole lot of weapons. It's basically just like a chair and a table, but they get a whole lot out of that. And towards the end, bad bones hits, um, a power bomb off the apron through a table on Ilya, and to watch Ilya like squirm on the concrete, scattered among like skewers of wood and pools of his own blood, and watching him writhe and knowing that he's not going to win in the end is, as you were saying, totally uncomfortable, and it 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 sucks. So, like, I believe a lot of people in the audience were under the assumption that Lee was going to win, too. Uh-huh. So when that final three count is counted and Bad Bones is announced as the winner, yeah, there's this hush. There isn't a boo. There isn't anything. Granted, like, WXW does, like, overdub when um, the finish of a match happens. Uh-huh. But you can look at the crowd's faces, look at the crowd's reaction, and just, they don't know what to do. Yeah. And once Bad Bones leaves after he celebrates and Ilya's left in the ring... Ilya grabs a microphone and I didn't see what was translated in it. Maybe. I actually, I have that here. All right, thank you. Yeah. Um, so he cuts this big cherry promo um, and he says, like, he's not leaving the ring as a loser because he fought his heart out and would return to the most important thing in the world to him, his family. And he said maybe his wife and son needed him more than the ring did. And no one really knows that this is the end of Ilya. Uh-huh. That does seem that way. We don't know if it'll be announced for 16 carat, if it'll do something. We don't, like, yeah. no, we just don't know anymore. But if that was the end of Ilya Dragunov, he went out with a great match and mm-hmm. knowing the real life circumstances, like there's only like so much I can be disappointed knowing that like, he's totally. doing, like what he, like as a human, what he thinks is the best thing to do. Yeah. And it's it, like, I can't, I can't disparage a guy. I can't hold it against the guy for doing what is objectively the right thing. Like morally, um, financially, physically, uh, but like, man, like the last nine months, like you and me and the rest of our friends who are big WXW fans bonding together over the idea that like Ilya is going to win this big one after like such an emotional and such a gratifying 16 carat tournament and seeing that not come to fruition in the end and knowing that it's because Ilya chose it to be this way. Um, and it's because of situations that are completely out of our hands 
um, something sort of akin to what I mentioned on our first episode of the Chris Hero situation. It's just, it's a bitter pill to swallow. And I, I'm, I'm certainly of the opinion that you need that sometimes in wrestling, that you need like these heartbreaker endings, but like this one hurts, but I'm never going to forget it. Yeah. Um, so do you want to move on to your 23? Yeah. Let me scroll back down to it. My number 23 is another bloody, terrifying match. Uh, You did did the 24, right? No, I did not. Oh, okay. My number 24 is a not-so-bloody match. (laughs) Certainly not terrifying. Uh, But it's one I really love. It's Trevor Lee taking on Ethan Alexander Sharp for the CWF Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship from CWF's Explosive Elements 2017. I know you really enjoyed this, but I did not expect this. (laughs) Did you see this one in the end? Yeah, I thought I really liked it. (laughs) Okay, so... um, Kind of things that we didn't get to talk about the Rumble before this because that actually ties into it very well. Uh, but in the Rumble, uh, Sharp and Trevor had uh, a little interaction based around the fact that Trevor was coming in at number one in the Rumble and uh, eventually goes on to win the thing. Spoilers. Uh, and lasts a very long time and beats the Iron Man record for the Rumble, which was previously held by Sharp. And so Sharp makes his way into the Rumble and is like, you're not going to take my legacy from me and starts beating him down. So here we come a couple weeks after that, and Sharp squirrels his way into another title match in which he challenges Trevor to a 20-minute time limit title match where if he can last the 20 minutes, he walks out as champion. And Trevor, you know, a very prideful guy, a guy who doesn't back down from a challenge, is like, you know what? Fuck it. Uh, he handles this match uh, pretty easily, the first 10 minutes, uh, Sharp makes a fatal mistake and rushes at him right at the bell, and Trevor just puts him down with a kick. Uh, I've got a line here from Cecil Scott. Uh, where is it at? He says, uh, I think he ran the wrong way, <laughs> referring to Sharp. <laughs> like, y- you would imagine, like, if a, if a, a shit heel, like, Yoshinari Ogawa character like this would find himself in this situation that he would just, like, try to, run around the ring the whole time, but it's not what Sharp does, and he pays the price for it as Trevor dominates the first 10 minutes of this match. Um, it's not, like, the greatest stretching in the world, but Trevor takes a lot of joy in his work, and it's fun to watch uh, Sharp squirm, and Trevor eventually overextends himself and gives Sharp too much room to breathe, and on the floor, Sharp's able to shove him into the corner post and take control of the match. Directly afterwards, Sharp slides in the ring at the referee's feet and is looking up at him as he's on his knees. And the ref's like, what are you doing? And Sharp goes, surviving! <laughs> and it's 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 one of the funniest things in wrestling for me in 2017. And uh, something that gives you a lot of insight into Sharp as a character, and I love it. He dominates the next couple of minutes with a whole bunch of underhanded shit like uh, headbutts and choking and eye rakes and low blows. Um, doing everything he can to buy time. Uh, eventually, things get real dire in the last two minutes or so as the referee gets tired of Sharp's cheating and shoves him as Trevor is standing on top of the turnbuckle. And Sharp goes into the ropes and knocks Trevor down and crouches him on the top turnbuckle with 45 seconds to go. Uh, and Sharp really doesn't know what to do with himself here in the end. And uh, like he did in the beginning of the match, tries to rush the champion and once again, it proves to be a fatal mistake as Trevor traps him in an SDF and uh, 
wins the submission victory with five seconds to go. This is like, um, I describe this as like the quintessential CWF match to me because it's like this all timer champion. It's this incredibly talented wrestler carrying. I don't even want to say carrying, but like helping a much lesser wrestler along to like a really elevating him. Elevating him, yeah, sure. Something I talk about all the time. Uh, elevating this lesser wrestler to an incredibly entertaining match, utilizing uh, this lesser wrestler's uh, very specific skill set that has its own merit in certain situations. Um, I love the story of it, of Trevor, this guy who over the last two years has had a million super long matches, who has, who has gotten used to like outwearing his opponents in 40, 50, 104 minute matches. Um, and I love the idea of him like almost getting up his own ass and losing the belt two years into the rain against a guy like sharp because he can't get out of his own way. Um, I love sharp here as, as this dude who is just totally out of his own element, but like does what he can to hang with the champion. Uh, like I, I mentioned, I mentioned uh, how like Yoshinari Ogawa he is. And I think, that's a really good example of this. This is like, um, sort of like a better version of like an Akiyama Ogawa match to me. Um, and it's something that is wholly CWF. Like this doesn't like this story doesn't play out so well in Noah or in ROH or in CMLL or in Chikara, like a place that I continually describe, um, as being, you know, the opposite side of the same coin as CWF. Uh, the commentary here is great. Probably my favorite, (laughs) my favorite uh, performance from Brad Stutz and Cecil Scott throughout the year. And it's like, it's, it's a match. I think anyone could enjoy. Like it's just, it's so much fun. It doesn't waste your time. It's two colorful characters telling a unique story in front of an appreciative fan base. And I I just love it. Uh, I think. And it's better. It's better than the match I described as the best match of Matt Riddle's career. (laughs) Um, but they kind of want to point out that, like, even if I think it's, a, like, the, like, I don't even want to say, like, worst, because, like, it's still mm. awesome. Match. Like, even if I think that's, like, the, the lesser, least, the least, yeah. the least impressive yeah. match of Trevor Lee's title reign in some ways, it's, like, far uh-huh. as match quality, I still think this is, like, way better than, like, a lot of people's, like, better ma- best matches of the year, which is saying I, something. I think it has a lot of merit as that, because mm-hmm. this follows, um... Derek Royal match and the CW, the CWF rumble, which are like two of Trevor's most strenuous title defenses to date. And I think giving him like a gimme title defense that has a fun gimmick mm-hmm. and that does sort of get dire towards the end. I think like that works really well. Mm-hmm. Did you um, like Trevor Lee versus Joshua Cutchill from 2016? I didn't actually get to see it. If you remember. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was one of my um, favorite title defenses of 2016. Cause, um, mm-hmm. Cutchill is like desperate and the whole like gimmick of being like the knockout guy and him just mm-hmm. trying to knock out Trevor Lee any way he can. But that was another give me the t- give me title defense that I really enjoyed that um I think you'd really enjoy too. Mm-hmm. All right, so my number twenty three now um it's Kunosuke Takashita versus Mike Bailey from DDT July second. Oh July, okay, I didn't get to see this one. So uh, in the build to this, you know, Mike Bailey played this very disingenuous, <laughs> smarmy, smiling asshole. Like, mm-hmm. There's no other way to describe him. Like, he is a prick. Like, the type of guy that, like, smile in your face, like, while I was, like, like, twisting your arm or something. Like, this guy is, like, a 
<laughs> he's annoying. He's not like the worst human being in the world, but he's sure. a really annoying guy to just look at. Um, he'll do the, he'll do these overly long handshakes, smile on your face while saying he's going to beat you for the title. Like in Kanosuke Takashita, who's a pretty stoic guy, mm-hmm. he's kind of looking at Bailey like, "The fuck is up with you, you weirdo?" <laughs> <laughs> and keep keep in mind, like Bailey and Takashita have um, had a little short um, tag team run mm-hmm. um, before this, so very familiar with each other. Yeah, so it's not like they don't know each other at all. And going into this, there was a really fun tag team match on the Dayhan the King um, King of DDT final show. So I was really interested in this match. Um, going into it. This also plays with a lot of the things that I didn't really expect. Um, Kanosuke Takashita, if you know anything about him, uh, one person that was very instrumental in his career with El Generico. Mm-hmm. So here, against another French-Canadian, we see Kanosuke Takashita pull out El Generico's top rope brain buster. Mm-hmm. as a move that he had been teasing throughout the entire year. He had been teasing, using, he has teased using it, and he finally hits it on the other, on the other French-Canadian. Now, other than that being an awesome finish, there's a lot of great action here. Mike Bailey, mm-hmm. I think, um, doesn't go full heel in the match, but the beginning stages of it, I really enjoy his work. Kenneth Sakashita takes control, and I think Mike Bailey has some brilliant moments selling. This is in Shinjuku phase, so it's one of the like lowest oh, okay. scale title defenses. Yeah, a small, intimate little building. Mm-hmm. And the fact that these these two worked so hard in this venue was really impressive to me. This wasn't Kurokin Hall. This wasn't Sumo Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, this wasn't Peter Pan. This wasn't Nevermind. This wasn't Max Bump. Like this is a very very small show. And these two went out here, and I think Mike Bailey worked like this is like the biggest match he's going to have all year. I think Kanosuke Takashita treated it as seriously as like his Arashima match or his Endo mm-hmm. match. Like, and this is something that I really um, admire about Takashita is that he's still like so young, so he's gonna he has more energy than a lot of guys that have been in the game for a, for a while. But mm-hmm. he is the top guy right now, going on to going on to um, a year where he's held the KO, KOD Openweight title. And when you have that kind of like status um, confirmation where no one is really threatening you, you could easily just not work as hard. But Kanosuke Takashita works hard in every single match, whether it be a trios match, a tag match, a singles match, or something for the title. This guy just always busts his ass. And I think that's what, this was like the perfect example of that. It's a great match. Mike Bailey does a moonsault off of the um, stairwell. That's in Shinjuku face. So that's an awesome looking spot. Mm. But yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. And I think this is like the um, crown jewel of Kanosuke Takashita's 2017, where... Um, due to my own mistake, he wound up he wound up missing my wrestler of the year list. He would have been in my top ten. Yeah, but um, just like like I can get I can get to talk about him now. Like this guy just worked hard. Like every single chance he got, with every single chance he made, tape facing uh, uh, Osaka Pro guys, facing mm-hmm. guys that are like lower down the card or rookies like um now Naomi um, Yoshimura. Facing guys like Keisuke Ishii, facing guys like Hiroshima or Tetsuya Endo, who are more high up the card. Just every single chance he got, Kanosuke Takashita blew me away by how much effort he was willing to give. It's interesting that you and I had uh, two of his smallest matches, especially in July, a month in which he was having uh, or leading up to like a very high-profile match. Um, it's interesting that you and I found his smaller matches even more gratifying. 
And I really enjoyed the Tatsuya Endo match um, and the Hiroshima match from um, Super Saitama Arena. But I think there was just like something admirable about the, like how much he is elevating guys and how hard mm-hmm. he is working with guys. Who, like, At like 22 years old. Yeah. like, And I know that I think you didn't really see as much DDT this year, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if you'd like watch some of the stuff, like Takashita had a hell of a year. He's <laughs> he's totally turned his career around. Like two years ago, I hated him. Like I hated him and Endo. I thought they were just like the most inane spot monkeys around. And they have both grown into incredible wrestlers. And Takashita is someone who like I can't make the argument simply because I didn't watch it, but like he is someone who belongs in top ten wrestler of the year lists. Um all right, so what's your twenty three? My 23, before we were interrupted by the delightful Trevor Lee and <laughs> Ethan Alexander Sharp, uh, is a very bloody match. One of my favorite death matches of the year. Not my favorite, not even my second favorite, but it's up there. It's Nick Gage taking on Cyclope in the first round of GCW's Nick Gage Invitational 2. Yeah, I just watched it super recently, like two weeks ago, I think. Yeah. Um, repeatedly, I... Describe this match as like going to church. Uh, I grew up pretty religious, and while I don't necessarily uh, subscribe to those theories anymore, it's something that's still baked into the fabric of my being. And this match was something of a religious experience for me, just because it was awesome, awesome deathmatch wrestling uh, between uh, a dude I wasn't very familiar with, a Mexican luchador um, deathmatch wrestler, and one of the best deathmatch wrestlers of all time, someone who commands a room. Uh, during this match, MLJ on commentary describes Nick Gage as a demented maestro, like someone who's who's um, commanding a fleet of musicians to play. And I thought that was a wonderful way to describe him. These two just have like a crazy little deathmatch. At one point, Nick Gage does a fucking rainmaker, which I thought was hilarious. Um, I don't remember this at all. <laughs> There, it's it's just like a little thing, uh, and it's probably just someone showed him the move at some point. And he was like, "Yeah, that looks does okay." Nick Gage I'll, know who Kazuchika Okada is? I guarantee you, he does not. <laughs> <laughs> like he went to he went to prison in 2011, so like he has missed all of that run. You know what I mean? Like there, I can't imagine he was he was watching New Japan in jail. They were speaking of New Japan takes in jail. <laughs> Clearly, they were. Um, they do some ill-advised but completely thunderous chair shots against each other here. Uh, they're swinging for the fences with light tubes. At one point, uh, Nikki has a fishing pole and hooks the hook of it in Cyclope's mouth it is very and, gross. <laughs> and yanks him off the middle rope in a horrifying spot. Um, uh, Cyclope drops to holds and double stomps. Nikki's head and chest and face into uh, a razor blade board in in really crazy fashion. Uh, towards the end, there's like two of the best no sell spots I've ever seen. Something that works really well in a deathmatch environment, and I think feels incredible here. Um, this is like in a lot of ways, this is just like a better version of something like Wotan versus Impulso. Mm. Uh, the crowd is super hot for it. Nick Gage is having like the single best night of his career, I think, and it's just it's unforgettable stuff. Yeah, I thought this was the best match of them, the first round. Totally. Um, during that tournament. But yeah, Nick Gage had a really fucking great run, I thought. Um, the, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> Miedo, um, who, who did he face in the second round? Uh, No, he faced, um, what's his name? Daisuke Masaoka. Da- yeah, Daisuke Masaoka. That match could have been better, but I didn't think it was bad either. Yeah. It, I think it got a little shooty towards the end, yeah. in that I think Masaoka wasn't exactly pleased with how Nicky was treating him. 
Um, but my number 22 was a match that you mentioned, I believe, in part three. But it's Trevor Lee versus Kane Justice versus Otto Schwanz versus Eric Andrews versus Smith oh. Garrett versus Chip Day from CWF Mid Atlantic, um, March 22nd. Yeah, their uh, end of an era show. Um, to give a little bit of introduction, uh, the Kane Justice versus Dominic Greeny match I brought up just a few minutes ago was a qualifying match for this match. Uh, yeah, I actually forgot about that. Um, so, when I first started watching CWF Mid Atlantic, what I, how I got introduced to it was this six-way match between John Schuyler, Brad Attitude, Trevor Lee, Roy Wilkins, Lance Lude. Uh, one more. Yeah, I forgot who else was in it. But yeah, it was like the six-way match that happened at Battle K 2015. Pretty sure it's Andrew? Uh, no, it's Chad. Andrew Everett? It's Chad. Was it Chad? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I got introduced to CWF Mid-Atlantic that way. That match really captured my imagination and how... Mm-hmm. A six-way match could be that well laid out. Mm-hmm. So here we are in uh, 2017, and this is the end of an era show. This is officially where Trevor Lee's title reign hits a year. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, you're like, okay, six people, how is Trevor Lee going to survive this? And this is going to mm-hmm. be the whole theme of Trevor Lee's 2017, is that how could he possibly keep surviving? For better or for worse, yeah. And... I think this is just as well booked, maybe better than that um, 2015 Battlecade match. Mm-hmm. I think the way they lay it out it is phenomenal. I think the whole Trevor Lee Chip Day Alliance, um, like alluding to what would happen later on with the Carnotal Cup, um, is perfect booking. I think Kane Justice's juice is great here, um, where he earned his way in here, and he is no slouch by any means. But Kane despite just, the fact that he's like four months into his career, he like. But you can watch Kane and be like, yeah, he doesn't belong here. Like, Kane is just eking his way in, taking his cheap shots, um, working with Eric Andrews, who I adore. I mm. I think Eric Andrews has a phenomenal performance here. Smith Garrett doesn't really get to be in here that long due to um, Real the, bummer. You know, the Exiris feed that's going on. Uh-huh. I think Otto Schwanz is the best performance I've seen from him. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff here. Um, Otto Schwanz has to get taken out. From a double team kick from Trevor Lee and Chip Day, uh, I mean um, Chip Day gets taken out by Kane Justice after Trevor Lee um, had kicked him in the head or hit him with some kind of finish. Mm-hmm. Then Kane Justice gets taken out, I believe, by Eric Andrews. Yes, who was very being very opportunistic, and so that leaves us with a Trevor Lee Eric Andrews final. Eric Andrews, who is still at this point the TV champion, so the TV champ mm-hmm. versus the Mid Atlantic champ, and. I just love the dichotomy of Eric Andrews taking every single opportunity he can um, to find a way to beat Trevor Lee, who realistically he knows he can't beat. Totally. Trevor Lee just powering through all the bullshit to just put him away with um, the guillotine choke. So I really enjoyed um, what they did here with this match. Very well laid out. Great action. Great booking. Great stuff that like paid off in the future. Mm-hmm. This, the the big thing about this match, I think, for me at least, is how it, it operates within the greater framework of CWF. You mentioned it with uh, Exiris uh, is part of the elimination of Smith Gary here, uh, which is this is right smack dab in the middle of their feud. Uh, this is the first interaction you see between Trevor Lee and Chip Day, as well as Trevor Lee and King Justice, both of which become big matches throughout the rest of the year. Trevor Lee versus Eric Andrews also for that too, sure. Yeah. 
Uh, Otto Schwanz, this is like the first time Trevor and Otto have interacted since the, their title match just a couple months before this. Um, this, there was something else here. I forget what it was. But like this, this, this match like tells a whole lot of stories. It's not just like the story of six guys coming together and having a match. It's, it's six guys who live and breathe within this environment of CWF and watching this, this colorful cast of characters like operate within their own world was super interesting on top of like just quality, like 30 minutes of, of quality action. Yeah. Um, all right. What's your 22? My 22 is. A match I'm sort of surprised you haven't mentioned yet. I'm not sure if I even made your list, though it's something I know you and I both appreciate. It's Sunner Durson taking on Rockstar Spud for the Future Shock Adrenaline Championship from Future Shock's uh, Reloaded Number Two. But yeah, another match that like barely missed my list, but um, I really like it, and I'm glad that when I like started recommending you Future Shock stuff, that uh-huh. it's like really just caught your eye. Yeah, so like uh, I made in uh an effort to watch a whole lot of smaller. UK Indies this year, um, which was sort of a mixed bag of quality, but like it resulted in this, which I'm very happy with. Uh, I started watching Future Shock because Zach Gibson was their champion, and I'm a huge Zach Gibson fan, as we're going to talk about here later with another match. Um, and I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to watch it just for him at the very least. Uh, but along the way, I found their little mid-card champion, this young uh, Turkish-British kid named Sunner Dursan, who really impressed me. Um, uh, the future shock, the future shock adrenaline championship is sort of meant to be like a cruiserweight title, and they bring in a whole bunch of bigger names like uh, Travis Banks and Flash Morgan Webster to lose to Sunner on like a, about a monthly basis. Um, and for such a young guy, such a inexperienced guy, he does pretty well against all of them. Uh, sort of rough around the edges, but like he's got a lot of heart, and that's what matters to me in wrestling. And so. It comes down to this match here in June, and it's a smaller Future Shock match. Um, smaller Future Shock show, as a matter of fact, is the main event of this show. It's one of like their B shows in a in a tiny little intimate brick lined room uh, that I'm really a big fan of. It has a really cool aesthetic, and Rockstar Spud makes this match for me. Sunner does really well, but it's Spud that makes this thing sing. Um, Spud at this point is like 15 years into uh, a wrestling career that has not seen a whole lot of success uh, like his he's, he's never really gotten the respect that he deserves mm-hmm. like his like his his biggest career note is being sort of a comedy character in like the second like the distant second biggest uh promotion in the united states or what, like what used to be and like i think even then like looking past the character he pro- arguably has the best TNA match of the decade, totally with um, EC3. Mm-hmm. So that like is something really, that, that's just like real claim to fame. But it's like you know, what does that mean mm-hmm. when that didn't necessarily result in fame and fortune? You know, uh, he's still slumming it here in this tiny little Manchester uh, independent show, facing some Johnny Come Lately kid. Um, I should mention on episode one, I believe I accidentally described Sunner Derson as being from the Birmingham scene when I meant the Manchester scene, clearly. Um, but Spud is completely flummoxed by this young kid who this crowd of, I mean, maybe 30 people just fucking adores. And his response here to um, 
this younger, inexperienced worker who's actually got some size on him because Spud is such a small guy, uh, who is able to like get the best of him throughout a series of shoulder blocks and wrist locks and is continually frustrated with the crowd's reaction to him. It's incredible to watch him slowly get more and more and more angry. Uh, eventually at one point they're doing an up and over over the ropes where Spud's supposed to, uh, get tossed over the ropes and land on the apron, but he falls off the apron and is clutching his knee. Um, a bunch of uh, referees and officials run over to him and start carting him out of the building, take him to the back. Uh, some office, some somebody from like higher up in Future Shot comes out and is like speaking to Sunner and, and is making sure that they don't film him as he does so. Uh, and Sunner starts cutting this promo, uh, thanking everybody for coming out and apologizing for this injury that has ended the main event here. Um, and as soon as this spot started i was like oh this is going to be you know spud's faking it and he's going to like lure center in and, and start uh taking control with a cheap shot but they take spud to the back and center starts cutting this promo and i'm like oh maybe spud did actually get hurt that kind of sucks um but they cut to this shot from the hard camera in which you can see center uh facing the crowd cutting this promo and you can see the uh stage behind him which is where the uh entrance to the locker room is and you see spud sprint out from the locker room and run down the stage run down the steps slide in the ring and attack center from behind and he lets loose this incredible little control segment where he's throwing all sorts of shit at center he's smearing his forehead against the exposed brick of the wall in this venue. He's like screaming and yelling at these fans who just a couple of, a couple of minutes ago were chanting all sorts of mean things to him. And he is laying into this kid. And it's, it's like, honestly, probably the best heel performance I've seen in 2017. Um, like something that like really knocked me on my ass and watching spud who has to, like string together a whole bunch of moves because of his diminutive size to even like keep control of the match. Like he has to do like three diving elbows at one point to try to keep center down for a pinfall attempt. Um, it's the sort of thing that doesn't work nearly so well in any other match, uh, or at least not in any other match that spuds not having. Um, but here it makes for an incredible little segment. Eventually center starts firing up and, and fighting back. He hits this, <laughs> fucking wild triangle moonsault like the the Kota Ibushi gimmick where he lands more on the apron of the ring than on spud yeah like he comes down like on his leg on the side of the ring and it, it looks terrifying <laughs> but it's it's incredibly exciting and it doesn't necessarily hurt him too much and it kicks off this awesome little comeback run he hits like also a um this like leaping neckbreaker over the ropes onto the apron which uh, he tries a couple times throughout the year and it never looks nearly so good as it does here against his smallest opponent, uh, which is really funny. But, uh, this is just like classic sort of like bigger name comes into a smaller promotion and elevates their young champion to an awesome babyface performance. And it just, I love this. Like it was something I, I didn't see coming whatsoever. It's way better than anything else Future Shack put on throughout the rest of the year. It's better than all but like one other match in all of the UK indies this year, and it's it's something I really loved. Yeah, Summer Darson is someone I really enjoy, but like his greatest his greatest aspect to me is like he's one hell of a comeback wrestler. Mm-hmm. Like 
his comebacks are among like the all like the best in all of wrestling, I think. And I think like he's still super young, obviously a very young and talented um athletic guy, but uh yeah, this was a match that was my favorite of his adrenaline title reign. Mm-hmm. Um he had um another he had other really good matches with uh Pete Dunn and Travis Banks that I really mm-hmm. enjoyed, a match with Bubblegum that I really enjoyed too. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I really enjoy all of Sonar Durson's work. And I think like twenty eighteen is gonna be a year where we probably see him pop up in more places. I hope so. Like the kid's incredibly talented. Uh he here he's wearing these awesome little pink uh not pink, purple tights that I think he should wear more. And I hope I get to see him more in bigger places. All right, um Imagine that you probably have higher than me unless we have it at the same spot, but Jack Sexsmith versus Zach Gibson from Progress Super Strong Style Day 1. No, I've got this a little bit higher. All right, so you move on to your 20. I mean, at 20, you're 21. Uh, hang on, I've got to get to it. Uh, my 21 is a match, I believe you said you already mentioned on your list. It's Kazuchika Okada taking on Satoshi Kojima in the G1 Climax. I have that at 50. So this is um, this is good. Is really good. Uh, last year, I had my highest ranked Okada match of the year at 13. It was him and Tomohiro Ishii from the G1 Climax. Uh, and this sort of tells something of a similar story in that it's uh, Okada <laughs> uh, paring down his style to something of a more, um, oh, what's the, a, a palatable size in the G1 Climax, since these matches tend to be a lot smaller, uh, what with their shorter time limit. Uh, but here, especially, he lets loose with some like outright heel work that we haven't seen from him in years. Uh, you and I have talked about it before, um, my relationship with like Okada over the years, where I sort of really enjoyed his, his young punk run and then didn't enjoy him so much when he became like an established babyface champion. Uh, and here we see him become flummoxed by the crowd's appreciation of Kojima. And he really digs into the veteran because of it. And I kind of um, like chime in here is like, if ahead. you look at his face during like when the bell rings, uh-huh. he's like, Oh, you're cheering for Kojima. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Like Watch people this. are, <laughs> people, people are chanting Kojima and he's like clapping along the, like, with oh, them. Yeah, and it's like, cool. Oh yeah. All right. We're going to do this. And it's, uh, it's great to see fire from him again. It's great to see him like act like he cares throughout the entirety of a match as opposed to just like, uh, late in the match when he hits a, when he hits a, uh, tombstone pile driver and does a big pose and screams. Um, he almost fist fights uh, uh, Hiroshi Tenzan. He throws Tenzan into the ring. And it's like, yeah, what you got, old man? And Tenzan's Tenzan like, who can't, who can't really do anything about it since like, he's not in the G1. Like, Yeah, like he's not in the match. And if he takes a swing at him, Satoshi Kojima gets disqualified. Um, and it's just, it's great to see this like subversion of, of like what, Okada has been doing all year sort of in the sense that like this is just one among many matches he had in 2017 in which they sort of teased this heel turn or teased this more aggressive slant on his wrestling that we hadn't seen in a long time uh and to see it again from him after years of what to me were just boring aloof uh unexciting babyface performances this was great and Kojima Kojima's uh, more than holding up his own here, giving uh, a fiery, fiery little veteran performance, doing a whole bunch of like mean strikes and then collapsing because he's just so exhausted from the beating that Okada's giving him, and it's it's great stuff all around. Yeah, like not to undersell Kojima here because he is awesome, but like 
this is just a phenomenal control kind of performance. Uh-huh. And what makes it great is that the next um, show in which he has a singles match was against Juice Robinson. He has another similar performance. Mm-hmm. So um, that a little stretch, he just really embraced it. I think that I think that is your highest um, G one match, right? It is, yeah, yeah. So they have this really awesome story with Okada <laughs> throughout it, um, and we'll get into it more when um, I have another G one match higher, well, a couple more. But Okada's entire um, that stretch where he just gets more animated, he mm-hmm. is uh, shaking rails, he's yelling. Yeah. For whatever reason. I really like that to imagine like Okada like throughout like he's grueling title defenses was like kinda like slowly losing his mind from mm, his tour. Totally. Um so that was twenty one. My twenty is actually Virginia versus Timothy Thatcher from Evolve seventy nine. Woohoo. This was something I had at I believe thirty nine on my list. Um It's not to say that Zack Sabre Jr.'s performance here doesn't matter because I think Mm -hmm. him being in this match is the reason why it's the way it is. Yeah, this doesn't work nearly so well with anybody else. Like, I love Matt Riddle, I love Keith Lee, um, Yehi, whoever you want to throw in there. This match works because it's Zack Sabre Jr., a Zack Sabre Jr. who has failed numerous times in in his Evolve title shots Mm -hmm. and hasn't really gotten many Evolve title shots. A guy that has went on winning streaks and losing streaks and, and could just never find the right balance and couldn't put it all together. Going up against this uh, the 500-something day reign of Timothy Thatcher up to this point. I think it's 599. And it's like something stupid. It's a huge mm-hmm. reign, yeah. For me personally, just a little anecdote, is that the night before, I mm-hmm. went to go see Timothy Thatcher versus Fred Yehi at Evolve 78. Mm-hmm. And um, on that show also was Zack Sabre Jr. versus Keith Lee. Um, Zack Sabre Jr. wound up losing that match. The night before this big title shot, he winds up losing to Keith Lee. So you wa- so I'm at that show thinking, man, what if they actually don't pull the trigger here? Mm-hmm. And then you see t- for, like, Timothy Thatcher kind of like easily dispatch a Fred Yeah, you're like, oh my God, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, like I didn't, I leading into this, I didn't think Zack was going to win. I thought they were going to wait off and build Riddle up again and he was going to win the title. So I had like that shred of doubt in my mind, but it was really, a lot of this is going to be anecdotes, but a lot of us watched this match live when mm-hmm. it was happening. Sadly, I didn't, but yeah, a lot of people did. Um, uh, Trask, Sam, a lot of us were watching it, and like I know Trask has the same feeling as like, we were watching this match, and like we we're like viscerally nervous. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in my gut, I'm feeling like, oh my God. What if he doesn't win? Yeah. What if Zack Sabre Jr. doesn't win in in this perfect moment for it? In this venue where they're just booing the hell out of Timothy Thatcher, like chanting um, of like mean things at him. Timothy Thatcher is sneering. He's upset, but he's playing into the crowd and how much they hate him. What if in this perfect moment they don't do it? And like watching it and like getting close to Timothy Thatcher, um winning multiple times. I felt how nervous I was getting, but that's the mark of a great match to me is that this match made me care. This match made me fearful. made me want something badly. Mm -hmm. made me want one outcome not to happen. And I was invested in every single thing they could have done here. Timothy Thatcher's work is stellar. This is his best individual performance of the year, I think. Uh, Just eating up everything the crowd is throwing at him. 
Um, he's defiant. He's hogging shit back to them. It's a very vocal Timothy Thatcher. Mm. At one point, um, due to like how loud they're booing him, Timothy Thatcher just lashes out and says, I'm the fucking champ. Like, mm. he is mad. And this is like the culmination of just this over a year long decline in the relationship between Timothy Thatcher and the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, they have both grown to mutually hate each other. And this is like almost like watching like the divorce like finally take place is that they really are just completely separated and now it's venomous, spiteful, and they're taking cheap shots any chance they get. And Zack Sabre Jr. is the hero they all want. Zack Sabre Jr. is the guy that they all want and they all need to be the champion. And it's a great match. These two have half fantastic chemistry. I've never seen these two have a like less than good match together. Yeah, totally. Um, so really, in a lot of ways, this is like the perfect opponent for Timothy Thatcher to lose the belt to, because um, you know it's going to go on a great note. And when Zack Sabre Jr. wins, the crowd erupts. Um, it's a really great feel-good moment that, again, being gay, he kind of ruins, which is something he did to a couple Zack Sabre Jr. moments this year. Sure. Um, but I really, really enjoy this match. It's really an emotional one. It's really an experienced one. But um, I think a lot of people, this was one of the more universally, universally appreciated matches of the year, I think. Totally. Like, this is, I mean, like, this, uh, something we talked about, I think, on the first episode of this series was the idea that uh, Dr. Wagner Jr. versus Psycho Clown from the main event of uh, AAA's, uh, AAA's Triple Mania was, like, the most important match of the year. Uh, but I think on the independent scene, at least in America, this was certainly the most important or the most notable match uh, because not only was it just the end of an era with a mega-long evolved championship reign, it was, it was something heated, something... Um, that people got incredibly invested in, in the moment. And like, honestly uh, say what you will about how popular independent wrestling has become over the years compared to what it was like 10 years ago, that sort of investment isn't something you have seen as much as you used to see 10 years ago with say uh, the ROH versus CCW feud. And watching this was like watching those shows all over again. Um, I know you like we you had wrote the whole Zack Sabre Jr. Um, article uh-huh. that also like features Timothy Thatcher and this match in particular. Um, do you have any more feelings to add on the match itself or how this match made you feel at the end? Like, it's I mean like, so I wrote a couple hundred words, probably a couple thousand really, on my relationship with Zack and my my issues with him as a performer, uh, which. Uh, a friend of his took exception to and DM'd me on Twitter about. Which is very funny. <laughs> uh, very funny, but like ultimately sort of a fulfilling thing. And we came to understand each other uh, and our frustrations with a man who has made some uh, tough decisions over the years. But um, I think the best thing I can say about Zach is that like he made me want to see my guy lose in this one. Yeah. I think that's like, like, like most ringing endorsement endorsement you can give a guy like that. Totally. All right. So what is your 20? My number 20 is a match uh, you didn't enjoy a whole lot, but it did wonders for me watching it live on a stream uh, just a couple of days after my birthday. Uh, this was certainly something of a birthday gift for me, I think, from the wrestling gods or from uh, whoever decided to book this together. Uh, it's Jonathan Gresham defending the Independent Wrestling Championship against Nick Gage. Uh, yeah, I saw a lot of um, my friends talking about this match, uh-huh. and I thought it was, you know, 
kind of find some kind of enjoyment in it, and I just it didn't really resonate too much with me. Totally. I hear you. Um, so this wasn't initially the match that was booked. This is on Powerbomb.tv's Was Up show. Uh, initially, this was supposed to be Gresham facing off against Jody Fleisch, uh, which was a very anticipated match. But Jody got hurt the day before at uh, an AIW show. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it was. Um, so they scrambled for an opponent and... Didn't announce one for quite a while. Uh, not until the show had already started itself, I think. Uh, but as soon as they announced that Jonathan Gresham was going to be taking on Nick Gage, I powered up powerbomb.tv for the first time. I subscribed to it and I watched the show live, um, less than an hour after I had subscribed to the service for the very first time. And like this was, I mean, this was just sort of magical for me. Uh, this is a show in the Wrestle Factory, which is Shakara's wrestling school and a place that they've held uh, multiple shows over the years, something we've talked about a couple times throughout this list. And that setting is perfect for something like this. It's a real intimate little building with only a couple of fans. And to see Nick Gage sauntering out from the back uh, as uh, his theme plays, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica, uh, throwing up gang signs and his various gang-affiliated catchphrases uh, in the soft lighting of the Wrestle Factory was just such a spectacle for me. Um, watching him go toe-to-toe with uh, one of my favorite wrestlers in the world, someone I consider like one of the best wrestlers in the world today, uh, someone who could not have planned for this variable, but manages to string together a game plan that works really well, uh, which is incredible. Um, I love Gresham here. His selling is, is awesome. Selling for like punches from Nick Gage, selling for very suplexes from Nick Gage, selling his various usage of weapons throughout the match. Um, at one point, Stokely Hathaway, Jonathan Gresham's manager, uh, for whom the show was named, uh, he throws some unknown powder in Nick Gage's eyes and Gresham taunts him throughout the entire time as he's like wandering around blinded, uh, even doing the Zandig pose at one point <laughs> in hilarious fashion. Uh, I think that's why itself is really cool because it highlights Nick Gage's selling, which is something like historically was not very good, but has gotten very, very good over the last couple of years. Um, he's constantly, even after like he clears the powder from his eyes, he's constantly, constantly squinting and constantly rubbing them. Um, before that all happens, he's like taking swings around the ring, trying to find where Gresham's at. He almost decapitates referee Bryce Rimsburg and that sets Bryce over the edge and he runs out of the ring, finds a bottle of water and like, um, pours it over Nick Gage's eyes to try to get the powder out, uh, which I thought was really cool. Bryce is awesome here. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's not just the two wrestlers in the ring who are doing awesome here. Like Bryce is great. Uh, Stokely Hathaway is great. The commentary is pretty good too. Um, eventually the, the match bleeds out onto the floor where Nick Gage tosses Gresham into like a fleet of chairs. There's a lot of good chair usage here. Like at one point, um, uh, Gresham's got a chair unfolded on the, uh, on the concrete ground, uh, on the concrete floor and he slides it towards Nick Gage and Gage stops it with his hands, bends over and like stops it from hitting him. And it allows Gresham to hit this enziguri on the floor. That's really cool. Uh, they both run out of the building for a short little while and brawl around in the parking lot for a minute. And Gresham and Stokely, 
uh, sprint back into the building and hide behind a corner to try to throw a chair at Nick Gage as he comes around the corner, but he sees it coming and grabs it and just hits Grisham over the head with the chair instead. Um, Grisham continues to utilize a game plan that he, uh, we've talked about before in this in this podcast series uh, with uh, using a countout to his advantage here as champion. Um, and he continues to go after Nick Gage's arm, something he's done throughout the rest of the match, and utilizes the chairs on the floor, buries Nick Gage under like 20 or 30 chairs, um, and tries to win by countout that way, but it doesn't work. And eventually he picks up the win with like, he hits a Tope Suicida to Nikki's back, and without falling to the ground, he latches on with a sleeper hold. So basically just like a flying Tope sleeper hold. Uh, and he keeps a hold of it until like the count of 18 or whatever. Um, backs away from Nick Gage like, I don't know, backs away from Nick Gage like a child would back away from a wounded animal. Not sure if it's actually going to lash out again and dives back into the ring to win by count out. It's just a, it's just an absolute spectacle of a match. Like there's nothing like it I've seen in 2017, let alone any other year of wrestling. It's the sort of thing that you could only see happen these days in the, you know, the wild and wacky world of, of wrestling in 2017. But it's, it's something fresh and unique, something that like, captivated me live and that even on a rewatch was totally totally incredible um can't recommend it enough all right so my number 19 is something i don't know if you saw but kenny omega versus tomohiro eg from new japan for wrestling um long beach night two yes i did i did watch it because i confused it with uh one of the other omega versus ishii matches that you had earlier on your list uh, i did get to see this one it took me a while to get through it but i did watch it um, i will admit that on rewatch i did not like this match as much okay but i do think it's worth noting for the fact that um this is like the one like big moment kenny omega guess that matters this year uh-huh um after losing at Wrestle Kingdom 11 to Okada, after losing at Dominion, uh, this is like... How, losing in the New Japan Cup? Yeah, losing in the New Japan Cup. Uh, he didn't... He Well, he lost the G1 Finals after this. Mm-hmm. So, this is some... This is like the one moment Kenny Omega gets all to himself this year. And I think that's why I like it so much. And it's a lot of great action. It's a lot of, it's a lot of bomb throwing. That dragon suplex uh, off the apron through a table is one of the nuttier spots of the year. Yep. But there was aspects of it I didn't like. There was kind of like this unnecessary crowd brawling that I wasn't super into. Hmm. But it does have aspects of the wrestling Dantaku match that I did um, really enjoy in a hotter crowd. Uh, but yeah, can you make a winning here and then getting to proceed this getting to cut this promo after um, talking about uh, the Bullet Club taking over the world and how the fans made this show and now it's really the like, major Kenny Omega babyface promo. He had been turning babyface uh, slightly throughout the year mm. but this is him going all out and like yeah this was Kenny Omega's show. This was the Bullet Club show and like him winning made all the sense in the world mm. but even if it's just a consolation prize, even if it's just like he can't have the IWGP title, so they gave him this belt, even if it's all those things, 
I still really love the fact that like he got to close out something that he was very instrumental in making as successful as it was and getting them totally. to cut this feel good, happy baby face promo about following your dreams and then making them come true. Do you have anything to add on this? Not especially. Like, this was just, um, I don't know. I watched this fairly late in the year. And uh, coming into it, like, two guys who I've fallen out of favor with over the years. And uh, they had a very long match in front of a crowd I wasn't super happy with, in which they do a whole bunch of bombs, including the aforementioned table bump that was all sorts of wacky. Um, certainly not something for me. Um, all right. I actually do want to ask you um, do you think you're, you've officially accepted that you're not? into Ishii as much? I guess so. Like, he didn't have a match that made my top... Wait, no. He came in at, like, number 96 in my top 100, and that's his only match in my top 200. Yeah, so I remember, like, initially, like, during G1, you were kind of, like, kind mm-hmm. of, like, comes to grip, grips with this, so, like... Yeah. Yeah. Must suck. Um, it, like, it... I don't know. Maybe it's just me changing the things that I'm into. Maybe it's him falling off the wagon a little bit in his in his age as he gets even more injured, um, which is a theme in New Japan, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, it's weird. Like a guy who used to mean the world to me. All right. So, what's your number nineteen? My number nineteen is my highest ranked Joshi match of the year, uh, which kind of stinks. This breaks the trend of having a Joshi match in my top ten for several years in a row. Uh, though I I do have a match with Joshi wrestlers in it in my top ten. It's just not a Joshi match. Um, it's a match I'm not sure that you even saw. It's Io Shirai taking on Shayna Baszler in Stardom. Oh yeah, this is one of the few Joshi matches I did see this year. Okay. Well, uh, I described this match as a chess match. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call either of these women like uh, like as characters. I wouldn't describe them as terribly intelligent. But they come into this match with strong game plans and know how to change them and tweak them throughout the match as certain things happen. And they stick to them uh, come hell or high water. And it makes for a really interesting match that has more of a narrative to it than I say a whole lot of Joshi matches would otherwise. Um, so you've got Shayna coming in as this like bruising invader with a whole lot of shoot experience and a size advantage on the champion Io Shirai. And Io Shirai is queen of all things stardom and is this incredible high flyer who puts her speed and high flying to good use here against a much larger opponent. Um, what I really enjoy about this match is the selling, which is something I don't say a whole lot in Joshi. Uh, Shayna goes after Io's arm, and Io applies sort of a general back uh, focused strategy against the larger woman. And uh, both of them sell their body parts tremendously well throughout this match, doing things that um, hurt themselves in the process of trying to win the match, which is something I've, I've said that like I hate sometimes. But uh, here I think it comes across in a really interesting and a really traumatic way. Uh, for example, Shayna does another move that I fucking despise, which is like a, uh, a superplex off the ropes leading into another slamming move. She does a, a gut wrench suplex off the middle rope and strings that into a second gut wrench suplex, which is, uh, as I understand it, something of a regular move of hers. But they do it like as well as you could. In this case, like there's um, a whole bunch of selling from either woman here. There's like a pause in between the two moves, and it really turns the tide against Shayna Baszler, where uh, she had stood toe to toe with Io throughout the entirety of the match. But once she hits this big dramatic like desperation uh, gut wrench suplex off the ropes, 
she notably moves slower throughout the rest of the match, and it comes to bite her in the ass as Io just sprints circles around her and eventually picks up the win with one of her patented moonsaults. And it's, uh, man, it's something that just, like, really impressed me, not necessarily with, like, its spottiness, but with its cleverness. Yeah, I definitely think this is probably the best um, Shayna Baszler match I've seen in her career so far. Uh-huh. And that's, let me say she has had a lot of really good matches. I don't recall too much about the match that happened so early on in 2017. Mm-hmm. This is from February. Yeah, so I don't have a lot. Of, I don't have a lot to add there, but it's a really, really good match. I didn't know you were that high on it. Yeah, I only I only watched it sort of recently, so I think it it benefited from that. But I I really did enjoy it. All right, so my number 18 is a match I know you didn't enjoy, but it's Tetsuya Naito versus Michael Elgin from New Japan for Wrestling New Beginning. <sighs> yeah, uh, you take this one away, Quentin. Uh, I remember watching this um, in the moment, mm. and like, man, I'm not sure I've ever seen a better Michael Elgin performance. Uh, he really works his ass off, I think, in this match. He does. Whether, it, whether it's his... um. Power spots looking phenomenal. Like when he catches Naito on a suicide dive attempt and turn that into and turns that into a um, suplex on the ramp. Mm-hmm. Um, just all the ways throwing throwing Tetsuya Naito. Um, when Naito starts working over his leg, Michael Elgin is hobbling and doing the best he can to like do all his offense on one leg. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever sacrifices it just to do a move. Uh, I think that's Tetsuya Naito at his smartest. Like, yeah, he goes after, after the leg a lot. That's something that Tetsuya and I know, um, is very common in his matches. But I think going up against the bigger guy, this really was more necessary than usual. Um, try to take out the base from Michael Elgin. And it, it goes really long. It goes almost 40 minutes. This is like during this stretch in New Japan where you're just coming off this um, 47-minute Okada Omega match. You're coming off of a... Suzuki Okada that goes almost 40, and this match mm-hmm. goes longer than that, I think. Yeah. So, like, there's a lot going against it in a lot of ways, I would say. But I still think these two use their time really well. I think Tetsuya Naito's probably Elgin's best opponent. Um, really? I think, as far as like, the three matches they've had with each other so far, I think they have, like, the highest average quality. Not Omega? I, I would have imagined you'd say Omega. Nah, like, I think they have way better chemistry. Okay. Um... I think him and El- Omega and Elgin are just more bomb throwing. To see mm-hmm. Naito does bring it out of him as to where Elgin does have to do something different with his offense. Um, okay. Elgin is coming back for the title that he lost to Naito. Uh, keep in mind that Naito had broke um, Elgin's like orbital bone. He, I think. Yes. He had broke Elgin's orbital bone, so. Elgin was penciled in, I assume, for something bigger at Wrestle Kingdom, and then he just wound up being in the in the Rumble. Um, and Elgin was just here to get back with his. And Elgin just tries and tries and tries. He does every possible variation of a powerbomb that you can imagine. Hmm. He attempts a burning hammer, and he isn't able to do it, but Elgin leaves it all out there. But Tetsuya Naida was just a better man that day, and just a better man in general, that despite all of Elgin's efforts... Naito just had his number. It's great mm-hmm. selling, great action. I think they used the time really well. It tells a great story of Naito being able to withstand all these bombs. But yeah, I really enjoyed this. Um, there's a lot of kickouts. I think even, I think Elgin kicks, kicks out of a Destino, which is like, when you realize that, the, that's when you realize that Destino was going to be um, yeah. a move that's not going to be super, super protected. Um, although it is the thing with the Raid Maker where like, the full Destino is never kicked out of like that. 
and like the full Rainmakers never kicked out of like that. Sure. The variations will be. Um, that's the way of protecting moves, I guess. But like, yeah, I think this is a really, really awesome Michael Elka performance. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it so much because it, <laughs> it was, what did you not like about it? It was incredibly long. Uh, I didn't enjoy Elgin's selling nearly as much as he did. Uh, notably, like there's this one moment he hits a bicycle kick uh, well into the match in which he's like bouncing off of I don't know. He hits it with such uh, such a force that like he bounces off of Naito when he's doing this kick to him, and it just looks so hammy to me. Um, I, I felt this match sort of meandered. I don't know. I didn't actually review it, I don't think. But it was just, it was a lot to take in. All right. So what is your uh, 17? I mean, 18, 18. My number 18 is a match I'm almost certain you have higher. I don't think you've mentioned it yet. It's uh, your favorite match of a particular series that we both loved this year. But it's my least favorite of the three. It's David Starr taking on Walter at Beyond Wrestling's Cold Brew. Um, I had it lower than you. I was at, uh, oh, weird. let me see where I had it at. Ooh, I cannot find it for life of me right now. Hold up. Okay. I had it at 42. Okay. Weird. Cause I, I do recall you saying that this was your favorite match of the series. Um, better, better than the London match. <laughs> if you say so, <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about that later. Uh, but this one is the last Walter David star interaction of the year. Um, and it, it really caps off like one hell of a 2017 for both men. And uh, this was a match that David Starr specifically had requested, something I've mentioned before uh, in his match with Nick Gage. Um, and it's got a cool narrative in that it's Starr saying, hey, look, I'm practically the ace of Beyond Wrestling. This is my home turf. This is, this is one of my most common stomping grounds of the last couple of years. Uh, this is going to be the first time that Walter and I face off on American soil. I'm going to have the home field advantage for the first time, whereas Walter has always been in Europe or in specifically in Germany, uh, where he is, where he's very comfortable. Uh, so maybe it's going to tilt in my way. This time, and it doesn't work out for poor David Starr, but uh, he tries all the same and makes good usage of something he used at London in that he goes after Walter's hand in a pretty gruesome way, uh, utilizing the ring barricade here in the Melrose Memorial Hall. Um, one of the biggest notes about this match is like how vicious they are with their striking. Uh, we first saw this in the... Um, Oh, what do they call it? The raw footage gimmick mm. that Beyond does, where they release the footage of the shows without commentary and from a fixed camera uh, uh, well before they release like the full cut of the shows with multiple camera angles and running commentary throughout the night. Um, and you were a bigger fan of it. I wasn't so hot on it, even though uh, it is sort of the way that I like to watch wrestling. But it gives this match uh, a real intimate feel as it's in front of the smallest crowd yet these two have faced off in front of. Um, and you really get to hear those chops as they crash against each man's ribs. And it's it's really fantastic stuff. Another great match between these two. Um, why don't you tell me why it's your favorite of the three? Um, I really, really enjoy like this like small-scale nature of it. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy the raw footage and just like there's nothing else going on other than just like this like cavalcade of violence. Like totally. it is gritty, disgusting, and um a lot of the time like listening to these chops and um these strikes is like made my stomach churn. There's one in particular mm-hmm. that um Walter gives David Starr 
it wasn't even like a slapping sound. It was just a thud. <laughs> and sure. I just felt it in my stomach. Um, the like rabid nature that David Starr was going after Walter's hand um, with the guardrail spot, I really enjoyed. Be like as a as a and then, like in aesthetic and presentation, like it just matched up most for me. And like I really enjoy WXW's video quality. I love their editing. So like that's not like those um, matches are bad mm-hmm. in that respect. But for how violent and hateful their feud is. I think just having this one camera set up and just having nothing else, like no commentary and just these guys going at each other just made like the match for me. It really enhanced it. Uh, go ahead. I should note that the finishing stretch here is uh, really interesting. Uh, throughout all of the matches these three have had, they've had uh, an escalation of finishes where the first time that they met up in 2017 in a singles match, Walter defeated star with a sleeper hold. Uh, the second time they met in London, Walter defeated star with a big old clothesline. And here Walter has to pull out a, uh, one of my favorite moves, maybe my favorite move in all of wrestling, a fire thunder pile driver. Yeah. Um, which is a which is a neat little story that they don't necessarily touch on, I believe, but it's a cool escalation of Walter like coming to recognize that Star is more than just like a thorn in his side, and he's someone like he really has to respect, and he and he does so here. Like he he lifts up Star off the mat afterwards and extends his hand, and after much deliberation, Star eventually does shake his hand, and Walter leaves the ring, and Star just pissed off at himself and still burning with frustration, like collapses down to his knees and, 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 uh, searches his soul. And it's, it's a really cool little match. I like it. Um, and I kind of never got the idea that this match ends abruptly. When you look at the London match, yeah. I think like the way, like the London match ends with a clothesline. Totally. is almost like very, uh, like, it's like very unassuming. Yeah, I think coming off like with this move, um, David starts coming off the ropes and Walter just catches him in that fire thunder driver is very impactful. And mm. I think when we get to the London match, I'll like explain like some of my issues with it. But okay. I think it is a better version of the London match. I think um, they're very the, similar. I think That's the true. David Starr post match is uh, what takes it over the top and just how visibly shaken and frustrated and brewing with anger that he is. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I really enjoy it. So that was your 18, correct? Uh, yes, it was. All right. My number 17 is Tyler Bate versus Pete Dunn from NXT um, December 20th. Oh, their uh, most recent match. Okay. Uh, why don't you tell me about it? So I think in the ring, this is probably one of the most like flawless matches I've seen all year. I mm. think it doesn't have the story. Um that the second match or the first match have between these two. But as I think if you, I think if you just look at it in the ring and look at how much time they were given and like the show, the, like the, the, the way they were able to showcase their talents really after, um, one of these being a tournament that I don't really know if that many people saw, but the second one being the second match on a takeover show that like, yes, yeah, like the, one of the most well-received matches in all of wrestling, mm-hmm. but it also only went like 14 minutes, I think. Fairly short, sure. So, and here they are. They're getting like 25, like nearly 30 minutes of time to go mm. there and just do whatever they want, uninterrupted, actually, on NXT mm. TV. Yeah. And they just go out there and have like this well built match that just like hits every possible note. There's great um, mat wrestling, great technical wrestling. When they want to move on, excuse me, um, <clears throat> Pete Dunn and as a finger stomping. 
is uh, notably notably more gross than usual. Tyler Bate gets involved too with his um, mm. own stomping. Tyler Bate, um, who gets more and more frustrated with Pete Dunn as the year goes on, he is now like caving in to Tyler um, to Pete Dunn's tactics of um, stomping on the arm and wrist and hand and fingers. It's like a beautiful like match that has like these violent aspects that I can't get over. Like there's like dazzling mat wrestling here. Both guys are awesome on the mat. There's like great high flying. There's great um comeback spots. Uh, there's great sequences. There's great reversals and counters. But at the core of it is two guys that really, really dislike each other and really want to mm. have that belt. They make this feel important and they'll make it seem like they will do anything and pull out any move and any stop to get the job done. Uh, something that has haunted me since I've seen it is uh, usually Pete Dunn will just bend somebody's arm back and stomp on it, or he'll just mm. stomp on somebody's hand while it's laying flat on the mat. In this match, Pete Dunn bends Tyler Bates' fingers mm. while he is bending his arm back, and he stomps on it. And the camera angle captures it in a way where I don't know how bad it was, how bad and painful it was for Tyler Bates to actually take this move. Sure. But watching his fingers curve and bend in the wrong direction was gruesome. And it then mm-hmm. took that match to another level for me, as opposed to like where the other matches you could say are like more showcase based and they weren't really as gritty and nasty as this one. This yeah, one this one is. gets this one gets notably like heinous. Yeah, Tyler Bate um attacking Pete Dunn when he's in the ropes, kicking him, mm-hmm. stomping at him, punching him. Uh they do another like rock'em sock'em spot where, uh, and I also like the way they do these spots because everybody else would just like grab the other guy's head and punch him. The, mm. These guys will just straight up close fist punch each other in the face, and that is something I really enjoy about their touches. Um, it's two of the most um, versatile wrestlers on the planet going out there and just killing it. And I don't know, the story isn't as deep as um, the UK tourney. I don't think it's even as deep as a Chicago match, but as the third and possibly final installment um, of this series, I really enjoyed what they pulled out here and that these guys got to close out the year and of, that was 2017 like this. I, hopefully, I think this is the uh, the last match between these two in a big WWE setting because most of my complaints here are due to like how uh, repetitive I found this match. Um, the first half of it, though, is incredible with like the finger based spots between both men. Some incredible selling from Tyler Bate. Mm, yeah. I think, uh, Tyler, I think and, that's how the base best performance in any of these matches. Yeah, he's so fiery. He's so vengeful. Like, I really love him here. And Dunn continues to just be like one of the slimiest heels in all of wrestling. Um, something that like I think is a little uh, a little uneven on the indie scene, but something he really turns up when he manages to uh, be in front of the WWE camera, and he he does real well here. By the time, as you mentioned, by the time they get into like these reversals and these like uh, callback to spots that they've done in previous matches, they sort of lose me. Uh, especially considering like how fresh the first eleven minutes of this twenty-two minute match feels. Um, like when they're doing the same things that I've seen from them multiple times throughout the year, it just feels too well trodden. Um, and especially like. I don't know if you caught this, but this really stood out to me, and it may or may not be the fault of either of these two men. It could just be WWE continuing to tinker with crowd noise, but like the crowd was dead for the back half of this match. Um, and I, don't think, full... I, don't, I don't know. I think that's kind of like 
a stress. I don't think it was like complete. Sure. I don't think it was complete silence. There, I mean, yeah, like it was never like they were not reacting to things, but there was there was like stretches between big spots where I was just like, oh, there's nobody talking in full sail. Uh, which really stood out to me. And I mean, again, like WWE fucks with the crowd noise all the time. So it could have just been that they've notably like turned down the, the lights in full sail during matches, which is like, it might be related to that whole phenomenon that I don't understand. But regardless, like as these guys continue to do spots, I've seen from them multiple times throughout the year already. And the crowd is not nearly as receptive to it as they were in Chicago or in um, Liverpool. Was that where the, no Blackpool was the first match. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, it didn't hit me nearly as well as, as it would have, or um, as it would have anywhere else or nearly as well as their first two matches did, which really stinks because like the first half of this is awesome stuff. I came away watching this match thinking like, if these guys want to have like a 60 minute match, I feel like mm. there's, they do have a lot of ideas in them. There are new ideas yeah. in this match. A lot of them. Um, and granted, if you if people have been paying attention, like Tyler Bate and Pete Dunne really don't face each other like that in serious settings outside mm. of WWE. Yeah, it, totally. it was a very protected match. The only time that it happened in a singles um, setting this year, um, other than WWE, was in Attack Pro Wrestling, and it like granted it's a good match, but these two mm. like switched characters, switched gimmicks. It was a comedy match. Yeah, it's a comedy match. Like if they and if these two had like full reign to do whatever they could like do whatever they wanted to like granted like they could easily do this kind of match in like fight club row mm. like but for whatever reason and um WWE's decision making is a very protected match it doesn't happen anywhere else but i left this thinking if these two wanted to have like a super long 60 minute match with a whole bunch of variety and high flying and hard hitting stuff and technical wrestling they they are talented enough and have enough ideas to pull that off um, but I get you that maybe the second half doesn't like really go all the way with these new ideas. You, when I, when I watched this after you did, you were very unsurprised to find that I didn't enjoy the second half nearly right. as much as the first. Yeah, I was not surprised. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, what's your 17? My 17 is a match you had a little bit lower than me. It's Brock Lesnar taking on EJ Styles in a non-title match at WWE's Survivor Series. Aaron, right, I had that at 28, so why don't you go ahead here? Um, so earlier this year, well, earlier in 2017, that is, uh, you and I did a big podcast, part of this Psychology is Dead series on Place to Be Nation, uh, talking about AJ Styles and my relationship with him, your relationship with him, and, uh, what we perceive his career to have been like over the last 20 years or so. Um, and one of the matches that we both talked about glowingly on that podcast was uh, AJ Styles taking on Abyss in a steel cage match back in TNA in 2005. And this, in some ways, was, I think, the WWE's answer to that, in that it's AJ taking on this big, freakish monster, someone who's even more athletic than Abyss was. I wouldn't wouldn't dare to ever really call Abyss athletic. And uh, even in his old age and with his failing health problems, uh, Lesnar is way more of a sportsman than Abyss ever could be. Um and even if there's like a couple notable botches here, uh, one that I think actually sort of does work well to this match's advantage, this is a hell of a bout. Um, I described this sort of as like a, a little blue jay, like a, a, a dickhead of a bird, like the blue jay is, uh, taking on like a much larger raptor, like a, a bird that is just bigger and stronger and faster. Um, and watching AJ like bounce repeatedly off of a monster, a freak 
like Brock Lesnar and go toe to toe to him and unload some incredible offense on the big man as the big man sells around um, and eventually catches him with uh, a heck of an F5. It's just great stuff um, from someone who I'm a big fan of and who's fallen off a lot recently and someone I'm not so much of a fan of, but who has had a stellar couple of years. Um, I have to admit with this match, like it really reeled me in and honestly worked me watching this. Is that like, uh-huh. Brock Lesnar beats the shit out of yeah. AJ for like the first like half of this match. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, like they booked this match just so Brock Lesnar can beat the shit out of AJ Styles. Mm-hmm. And I was like really confused. Like, wow, they just really gave AJ the belt so Brock could do this to him. And then lo and behold, maybe like a minute or two later after I'm freaking out, like what the fuck, why would you do this to AJ Styles? AJ starts mounting this like flurry of offense and it's like working the leg in a way that like he never really has before. I think not to this degree. Mm -hmm. He like smart, but fiery and just going at Brock with all he can with these awesome punches in the corner, Mm. um, flying around, trying to use a speed, trying to use a speed advantage. Uh, there's only one spot that kind of messes up this match. And that's that tornado DDT that for some Mm -hmm. reason just, Brock didn't know how to take that. Want to take whatever it was. I don't know about. I don't know about. Didn't know how because man's been wrestling for like fifteen years. But yeah. definitely, uh, he was not. He was either a not interested in taking it, or b just couldn't physically. Yeah. Um. So other than that, there really isn't a flaw in this match. It's a convincing mm-hmm. down segment. A great fiery comeback and an awesome finishing stretch. It doesn't go too long. It goes about twelve mm-hmm. minutes, I think. It's um, real quick. Yeah. Yeah. It goes about twelve minutes, and like. In a year full of shaky Brock Lesnar performances for me, I thought this was his best one, and in no mm. small part due to AJ Styles being like an all-time great wrestler who could just bump around and adapt to like situations like this. One thing we we didn't mention is like probably the peak of this match, in which uh, Lesnar goes for the F5, and AJ slips free and applies the calf crusher. Um, and it's a hell of a move that he torques the shit out of Lesnar's leg with, and Lesnar sells it marvelously. We've, yeah. we've talked repeatedly about like his vulnerability and how it's his his greatest strength, and like he is selling his ass off here. Um, and right. something that and I'm there's like I'm about to say like there's like an added drama to it considering the fact that Brock Lesnar's loss to Goldberg happened at Survivor Series last year. Mm, sure. So now that there's this idea like, oh man, what if Brock Lesnar is just going to lose again at Survivor Series? Like, I mm. really really bought into this match. In, uh, in both ways, honestly, but that um, calf cutter spot was the, like the peak of it. That's the thing is like, yeah, like the best wrestling is about believing, uh, which is something we're going to talk about later with one of my highest rank matches. And like this match made me believe like, holy shit, AJ Styles might make Brock Lesnar submit. Um, but it's all for not as uh, AJ sort of lets up on the hold a little bit and it allows Lesnar to slip his arm around AJ's head and <laughs> repeatedly bounce it off of the canvas like a basketball in a horrifying fashion. And it's it's basically the end for AJ. Um, if, if anybody remembers it, um, the Dean Ambrose-AJ Styles match from uh, Backlash in 2016 had a similar spot where AJ had the calf cutter and then Dean Ambrose grabbed um, AJ's head and started bouncing it off the mat. And because Brock Lesnar is a much larger, much more terrifying human being than Dean Ambrose, that spot um, with AJ Styles looked much more um, more vicious and dangerous. But um, moving on, my number 16 is a match I don't think you've said yet. And it, it might be a shocker for me if you don't have it on your list at all. 
But uh, Dragon Lee versus Hiromu Takahashi from New Japan Pro Wrestling New Beginning in Osaka. This came in at my number 121. It just missed this podcast. Okay. Um, I'm not going to say it's their best match, but I think it's... Yeah, I wouldn't say it, but it's great. I know, I know you have like a real attachment to that December 2015 mm-hmm. match, mm-hmm. but I think the ideas in this match are phenomenal. I think they really add a lot of new life to this matchup. There's a lot of new spots and new details that they add in here. Uh, this is the first match um, between these two since Haruma Takahashi has uh, come back under his real name, not under the guise of, Kam- of Kamatachi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dragon Lee always had the number of Kamatachi. So when Dragon Lee shows up at New Year Dash and suplexes Hiromu and challenges him to New Beginning in Osaka, uh, Hiromu probably is going up against this guy that he doesn't know if he can beat now. This mm-hmm. is like his biggest career rival, this guy that has always had his number, the guy that he could only beat in like lightning matches and never can get a sustained run against him. So here we are, and they have a Dragon Lee Hiromu Takahashi match. Like, if you've seen these guys, you know it's fast-paced, dangerous, exciting professional wrestling. It's hard-hitting, high-flying, high-octane moves, um, moves to the outside, bumps to the outside, dives, apron bumps. Every single thing you could check off on what makes a, a modern 2017 wrestling match dangerous or exciting is all here. Mm-hmm. But I do think they wrestle at a slower pace because they're in Japan. They're working the semi-main event of this new beginning on Osaka show. Um, it goes probably a little longer. Um, I think about 22 minutes. Um, but because it's one fall, as opposed to most of their matches that wind up being two falls, I really enjoy the way that they um, make this one fall mean a lot. Um, they're kicking out of everything, which, again, if you look at their history... There are certain moves that got that were being used as finishes before. Uh-huh. Eventually, as they got older, um, as competitors that got kicked out of, and they had to create new finishes and new moves to put the other one away. There's a lot of that. There's a awesome spot where Hiromu Takahashi does like this victory roll off the top, and he's going for it, and Dragon Lee stops him. So Hiromu Takahashi turns around, takes off Dragon Lee's mask, and then proceeds to do the victory roll off the top. And that's what I mean with these spots is that for how much crazy creative shit that these guys have done to each other for the last two years or three mm-hmm. years at this point, like yeah. it just never ceases to amaze me how much these guys just have still have like tricks up their sleeve. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haramu, um, his dragon lead with a, a couple of pop up Canadian destroyers. That um, beat Dragon Lee at Fantastic Mania 2016, but Dragon Lee is able to withstand now. Dragon Lee is able to kick out of the Phoenix Plex, the um, stomp out of the corner, the Orange Crush, all these big Dragon Lee moves. Dragon Lee has nothing to put away Hiromu, but Hiromu says he's came back as a new finisher called the Time Bomb. And the Time Bomb is what gets the victory for Hiromu in a series of one upping each other, uh, hard hitting, fast paced action. Hiromu pulls out a new finisher that's able to put Dragon Lee away, and I really, really enjoyed this. I mean, it's a great match. It's like one of the best spot fests of the year uh, between two of my favorite spot fest workers in a feud that uh, manages to, I don't know, find some sort of grace and gravity within uh, a whole bunch of stupid-ass wrestling. (laughs) 
that I usually would hate otherwise. Uh, how did this compare to their uh, Best of the Super Juniors match for you? Um, the Best of the Super Juniors match, um, I think, got a, like, sloppy in a way that isn't, you know, like, a lot of the mm. matches are sloppy, but sure. it just wasn't in a good way. I still want up giving it four stars, I think. It's still, like, the worst Hiromu Takahashi match, Dragon Lee. The worst Hiromu Takahashi Dragon Lee match is still, like, very good, bordering great. It's like, you can't go wrong with these guys. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I just think it, it's probably the worst one there with, like, their ROH match from, like, All-Star Shavaganza. Completely forgot about that. I don't know if I even saw that one. I did not blame if you if you missed it. Okay. Um, so, what is your 16? My 16 is a match that uh, you surprisingly had on your list. I didn't really expect you to, to have it on yours. Uh, it's Matt Tremont taking on Nick Gage at GCW's Tournament of Survival 2. Uh, yeah, I really enjoy this, but this match means more to you, so talk about it more. So this is um this is the two best deathmatch wrestlers ever at the crossroads of their career. Um, Nick Gage has been wrestling since 1999, I believe, and was pretty good as a deathmatch wrestler up until uh, his going to prison in 2011. Um, sort of a guy who shied away from certain things and uh, would not lean so hard into spots as other people, but uh, he had a fire and a certain charisma that a lot of people don't, and he was always fun to watch. Uh, But in late December of 2010, when he was homeless, he robbed a bank, and uh, shortly after there, um, turned himself in, pled guilty to second-degree robbery, and spent four years in prison. Uh, Came back in 2015, had frankly an incredible run for a couple of months uh, had one of my favorite matches of the year that I'm going to force Quentin to watch one of these days and uh, eventually violated his parole and landed back in the clink for another year uh, spent all of 2016 away despite the fact that he had uh, his freedom the last couple of months of the year didn't show up until this tournament here in 2017 halfway through the year so uh, as I mentioned before he's been gone for 21 months comes back and, and goes on an absolute tear in this tournament and uh, has completely reinvented himself as an incredible wrestler, having one of the best wrestling runs of the year, I think. Uh, something that I would think of um, way higher if it wasn't the fact that it was only based on six months of work. Uh, contrast that to Matt Tremont, who debuted in CZW shortly after Nikki went to prison. And in his absence, sort of became the man in deathmatch wrestling in America, uh, towing the line when people like Danny Havoc fell by the wayside and a whole bunch of other people retired. Um, and the scene in general fell apart in a lot of ways. But Matt Tremont, you know, tries he might was always the best guy and was keeping things together and, and, um, became someone that I think of very fondly and someone I'm going to miss as he edges closer to retirement. Um, Part of the reason I think he's he's getting closer and closer to retirement now is uh, the highly touted match he was going to have with Nick Gage in 2015 getting canceled due to the fact that Nicky went back to prison. Uh, I think that really pissed him off in a lot of ways and kicked off a multi-year retirement tour of his in which he faced all sorts of legends of the sport from Tank to Atsushi Onida to Madman Pondo to um, a whole bunch of people who aren't even deathmatch wrestlers like Matt Riddle um, and really like left it all on the line after winning every tournament there was to win after winning every title there was to win after doing it all in deathmatch wrestling um so here in june of 2017 seeds to face off for the very first time and it is 
incredible. Um, it's a long match by Deathmatch standards, like 23 minutes, uh, which is certainly not their longest match. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's uh, it's something that I think necessitates a certain level of methodicalness, uh, something that necessitates a certain length. Like, this match isn't as crisp or as polished as some of their later matches would be, but it's got so much weight to it. Like, seeing these two go all out for the very first time in, in like a historic match. Uh, Nick Gage is coming back trying to reclaim his throne as like the best thing in deathmatch wrestling as the man in Matt Tremont is making it very public that he's going to be retiring soon and uh, is weary of the crown having been the man for several years and watching them cross paths here late in the run for both men. I can't imagine Nick Gage, you know, sticks around very much longer, uh, 20 years into his career of hard living. Um, there's just a whole bunch of violence in this. Like it's a, it's mostly a light tube based death match as these two like smash shit all over each other and bleed all over the place. At one point, Tremont gets his arm, uh, cut up very badly and they're, uh, scrambling to like get a towel around it and to wrap it up in tape because they're so, horrified that this like this match could be canceled due to injury and when it means like that much to somebody it it really it really blows me away i thought this was going to be the best match these two had in 2017 it didn't end up being that but uh it kicks off one hell of a series uh i think my favorite series of matches in 2017 which is saying a lot because there was a lot of high profile feuds throughout the year and it's a I, I think even if you're not a deathmatch fan, I think there's something here to behold. I think what made this stand out so much to me is like obviously like the gravity of the situation was like uh-huh. easily to like understand as someone that isn't as like deeply into like deathmatch more um, as you are. Is that I know it's not intentional. Like it's fucking GCW of all places, even though they had like a really strong year. But like, mm-hmm. the, like the artistic presentation of like this like dimly lit venue. As yeah. these guys are just hitting each other with light tubes, and you can just like see the particles of broken glass like going throughout the air, is mm-hmm. like, stunning. And, like, yeah, it's like something like weird to like talk about in this match when you like know for a fact they're not even trying to make this happen. But just like watching these guys lay on the ground covered in blood, broken glass all over the mat, and you just see these particles of glass floating throughout the air is like. It's engaging. Like, it is engaging. There's, like, nothing like it. A lot of, like, famous um, deathmatch wrestling has happened outside. So, like, you can't, you don't really get this kind of lighting. Mm -hmm. Um, So, being in, like, this dark venue, a lot of CZW is, like, very, like, brightly lit. Mm -hmm. It's like, even when they use light tube, you can't really see it that well. But for GCW and for where they run and for, like, the fact that there wasn't that much light coming into the building, I believe this show happened during the day. Yes. Um, so they weren't so they weren't using any lights inside the venue. It is just like a very visually stunning match. It's like on top of just being a very well executed death match with high stakes and a lot of um background that goes into it. All right. And even even on top of just the visual aesthetics, like this is this is a really appealing match for like um just like the machismo of it, like, mm-hmm. like something that's very central to deathmatch wrestling. And like I'd sort of I'd sort of compare this to like Necrocasis versus Santito. Like, yeah. this is like the Necrocasis versus El Hijo del Santo of deathmatches. 
It's like a Chris, I didn't expect you to make, but it's not a far off one. Um, yeah. My number 15, a match that you had just said earlier on this episode, but my number 15 is the CWF Rumble. Okay, cool. Why don't you tell me about it? Um, I had watched this way after a lot of the people in my circle because I had took a little bit of a break from watching wrestling. And so I came back and I saw that people were going crazy about this match. Um, so a lot of people calling it the best match of Trevor Lee's title reign. And mm. I was like, wow, okay. This must be a really, really well done Rumble. Um, something about me is that I really don't really like Rumble matches that much. Um, sure. They're really long. I don't really like all of the offense in them. They're just kind of nothing up until like, the final. Yeah, two. the format is weird. Yeah, like, like I don't really, I'm not really a big fan of Rumble matches. Mm. But there are times when there's a Rumble match that really catches my attention and catches my eye. One of them being um, the Aztec Warfare match that made my 2016 list. Mm. But this match is better than that. This has uh, all the callbacks and references that I would expect from a CWF title match. Um, Trevor Lee coming out at number one because this match was uh, hand-picked by the All-Stars and Roy Wilkins, who had the golden ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, so Trevor Lee's coming out at number one. Roy Wilkins, Eric Royal, and uh, Mace Maya. Mace, Mace Lee, um, yeah. Um, all coming out at 28, 29, and 30. The odds are stacked against Trevor Lee once again. Mm-hmm. And throughout everybody that comes out here, the whole bunch of surprises, a whole bunch of new names that uh, establish themselves. Mm-hmm. But Trevor Lee is able to survive it all. Uh, he does get a little bit of a break period, which is smart. You don't want to make him the entire focus of the match. You can use sure. it to make other guys. Um, uh, what's his name? Like something Mars. Mike Mars. Mike Mars uh, came out of this match looking like a star. Yeah. Uh, so on top of just being like the most formidable challenge that Trevor Lee has faced so far in a 30-man Rumble match, you're also using it to further stories and further um, characters that are going on in CWF. And that's what makes this mm-hmm. such a great match. Is that it, You could just make it about Trevor Lee, but it's not just about Trevor Lee. It's about yeah. the entire promotion surrounding him, this entire promotion that he represents, and everybody else that wants to be on that level, but they're just not Trevor Lee. Uh it's great watching Roy, Roy Wilkins come out. Like, like Trevor <laughs> Lee is slim pickings. He is like, oh, man, he's running out. The Coach, um, coach Gemini is out here. I forgot what the personal ring announcer guy's name is. Uh, Jerry Carey. <laughs> That's a great name. Um, they spell it super weird, too. It's, it's so goofy. <laughs> but Roy Wilkins comes running out with the biggest fucking grin on his face. Uh-huh. And Trevor Lee just throws him right over the top as soon as he gets in the ring. And, like, I mentioned it um, with Trent Seven getting knocked out by Matt Riddle and, uh-huh. like, the program um, Super Strong style. But, like, this only works because of who Roy Wilkins is. He is yep. a underhanded, yep. cheating, undeserving heel champion. You know, It can't work with Eric Royal the same way it wouldn't work with Zach Gibson. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, he's, and he's a guy who's not afraid to look like a putz. Yes. Like, that's, like, the main thing about it here is that Roy Wilkins is not afraid to be the butt of jokes mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, Roy Wilkins is still dangerous. He comes back in, uh, hits privately with a pair of brass knuckles. I'm giving him a little bit of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get a final two, an unexpected final two of Trevor Lee and Kane justice. Ooh. And they played with this matchup in that six, in that six man, um, scramble match that, um, that was earlier on my list. Uh, huh. But in that match, in, in the six-man scramble, the commentary plays with the idea of 
Trevor Lee and Kane just as having a strained relationship because of Trevor Lee being the head trainer at the CWF school, mm-hmm. and Justice not being pleased with his development there and going somewhere else to get some more seasoning. And specifically his uh, specifically his judo training, which is such a central part of his character and has allowed him to find much success as a rookie. So we get to the final two, and then everybody in the in the crowd comes to the realization that holy shit, Kane Justice is in the final two and is facing mm-hmm. Trevor Lee. And as a CWF fan, people have been clamoring for this match the entire year. People yep. have wanted this. So now you're giving the people what they want, and these two go out there for like 15 minutes or yeah. like, and have like this like epic final two rumble encounter. Um, a lot of drama on the ropes. The crowd is mm-hmm. starting to turn in favor of Kane Justice, this like unsung hero of CWF in 2017. And this like unlikely, like legitimate challenger to the throne, just at twenty years old. And keep in mind, Trevor Lee's still like 23, 24 years old himself. <laughs> so these guys are just going at it, and you start to believe that maybe Kane Justice can pull it off. Mm-hmm. And maybe this was all a diversion. Maybe Roy Wilkins and all and the All Stars having this advantage is all a diversion from this big Kane Justice push. And like Kane Justice doesn't win. Trevor Lee stomps him to oblivion with that mushroom stomp on the apron. On his face. It is a awesome fucking finish, but like this is a fantastically well done rumble match. I thought the Aztec Warfare 2 one was the best rumble ever, but this is yeah. the new one. This is a fantastic match with a great Trevor Lee performance, a bunch of new names, great surprises, and establishing Kane Justice as a a, a very, very top player in CWF Mid-Atlantic to cap off like his stellar 2017. Um, one of the things you would hear from a lot of CWF fans in our circle is the idea that like as time goes on, it becomes less and less believable that, that Trevor's ever going to lose the belt. Mm-hmm. And I think this match is the ultimate test of that, both in and out of kayfabe. Like, it's both like, oh my god, how far can the Iron Man go? How long can Trevor's resilience and endurance last out? But it's also like, how far can they push this idea that Trevor can outlast 29 other people in a 60 minute rumble match like this? And, um, it might not be the perfect execution of that, but it's like, God damn it. They made me believe that multiple different people were going to win this thing, especially Kane justice towards the end. And, Trevor still came out on top in the finish in a believable way in a in a way that like didn't piss me off as a viewer. Trevor and I thought was, selling is awesome. He's fucking exhausted mm-hmm. throughout this match, which is a cool thing with the uh, with the finishing stretch with him and Kane. Uh, Kane's still a rookie, you know. And commentary from uh, Brad Sets and Cecil Scott makes it like makes sure of the fact that like Kane doesn't have what it takes yet to stand toe to toe with Trevor in a one-on-one situation. And Trevor like sort of like swamps him here late in the match. But Kane is so much fresher. And if he can just like wait around for Trevor to exhaust himself, like he has a real shot of that. And I thought that was an interesting touch. Um, so many like just little fun stories throughout here. I mentioned Ethan Alexander Sharp earlier being pissed off at the idea of Trevor breaking his his record as Iron Man champion. Um, at one point, Sharp's cutting a promo directly into the camera. I think Grant Sawyer's standing on the apron with the camera. Um, and in the middle of his sentence, Trevor 
launches him across the ring with a German suplex in like one of the funniest moments of the year. And like, there's a million little moments like that throughout this match. Uh, minute to minute. I don't know that there was a match I enjoyed more, uh, in 2017. Um, all right. That was my 15. So what's yours? My number 15 is, uh, a match. Holy shit. Come on. Get out of here. Uh, that minute to minute. I enjoyed quite a bit, uh, partially due to how short it was. It's, Hideo Itami taking on Odin Lorcan for the second time in NXT, taped on June the 23rd, airing on June 28th. All right, this is easily my favorite Odin Lorcan match in 2017. Uh, this is technically two matches in that uh, when they first collide uh, in, I believe, the opener of the episode, uh, Oni bursts out of the corner at the bell and catches Atami with a European uppercut and busts his nose open pretty badly uh, to the point where uh, referees and officials swarm the ring. And after like 90 seconds or so, they're like, yeah, we, we got to go fix his nose and they call off the match and they go away. Uh, and then later on in the episode, uh, Atami stomps back out to the ring with um, a whole bunch of cotton balls shoved up his nose. And he's like, fuck it. I want to face Oni and Oni stomps back out after them. And they have just, a little belter of a match. Um, they're hitting each other incredibly hard. At one point, Oni, uh, Atami like throws Oni over the ropes and he bounces off the apron with such a disgusting thud. And like, that's really what this match is all about. It's two incredible strikers, like just teeing off on each other for an extended period of time. Uh, including some really awesome hard way blood that really escalates things and keeps it interesting. Uh, knowing that Atami technically won their previous match, even though the referee called it off, um, you're thinking like, holy shit, like Oni's busted open this guy. There's, there's a good chance he could win. But once again, Atami's able to use some dirty tactics and kicks at, uh, Oni's leg once more. Um, and Oni for a minute or so, Looks like he's going to have to call off the match due to injury and the referee's going to throw it out. But uh, he grabs the ref and, and speaking very clearly is like, no, I want to continue. Uh, and it's a real nice little emotional thing for Oni. But as soon as he gets up, he gets caught with another GCS by uh, Atami and that's it. And it's it's even shorter than their first match, I think. But it's like so much tighter and so much sweeter and the hard way blood like steps it up a few notches for me. And I just, I love it. All right. Um, my 14 is a match that you had on your list earlier. It is a maximum versus over generation versus reserve from dragon gate, September 5th. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to explain the gimmick of this match? Okay. So this is happening during the, um, unit survival tournament. The mm-hmm. thing plays I'm doing in dragon gate. So it is a three-way trios match, and pretty much the first um, team, first trio to get a fall yeah. gets out of this match. Uh, they already got their points; they don't need to be here. Uh, then that leads so, to final like two. The, the whole gimmick of the tournament is like whoever comes out of the tournament. They always hold a tag team tournament over the summer in Dragon Gate, and the gimmick of this one was uh, the two teams that come out of the tournament with the least amount of points have to face off in a unit disbands match. Um, and this is one. And I uh, think I think these three teams come in tied for this match. Uh, yeah, all pretty close in points. And uh, pretty much one team. One team. Once you get the first elimination, they're out. You already got your points. Mm-hmm. Um, that leaves the two other teams, and then that just turns to a regular trios match. Um, and 
other than that Jimmy versus Maxwell match from July, uh, this really, really, really was like a reaffirming match of the Dragon mm. Man. This was even more than like the three-way unit disbandment match between DLR's Monster Express and Reserve from uh, February 2016. Yeah. This is just like the ultimate Dragon Gate Toriyaman, like balls to the wall, frenetic, fast-paced action match. Uh, it's just mind-blowing. It's mind-boggling, like, to see these guys be so smooth, so mm. quick. There's no hiccups. There's nothing in this match that, like, is flawed. You can watch how fast these guys go, how quickly in and out of tags and tag moves and sequences they go. And it's between uh, nine people. Mm-hmm. It's such a seamless match that it's just, like, a work of art. Like, it takes your breath away watching this. You can't believe that nine people can be on the same page this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a me to it, but it's just the fact that as a Dragon Gate fan, after such a shaky year, and they started to get it together after Kobe World, because the Unit Survival really was the kick in the ass that Dragon Gate as a whole needed. Mm-hmm. Like, this match, um, this was also the show where, uh, uh, Mochizuki versus Big R happened, and a lot of people think that's the best Dragon Gate match of the year, and I do not blame them, but this match just meant so much more to me as like a throwback to what made me a Dragon Gate fan in the first place, and what really caught my attention about the promotion, and uh, it's just great non-stop action. It's probably the most fun match I saw in all of wrestling this year. Yeah, um, I think, I don't necessarily agree that this match doesn't have flaws, uh, though it's, I mean, the flaw is that once uh, over generation leave, having first secured, uh, having secured the first fall, um, the match like tor- sort of takes a step back because it's not a three-way trios match anymore. It's just a trios match, um, so it's like less crazy. But like when my complaint is like, oh, it begin it becomes less crazy when a third of the match is eliminated. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> that's not much of a flaw. Uh, specifically with that finish for of the first fall with Eita uh reversing Masada Yoshino's Torbellino into a crucifix pin uh is incredible. Like one of one of the best spots I've seen in the year. Uh, certainly the best spot I saw in Dragon Gate throughout the year. Um and this is this was just like an awesome return to form for a promotion that had suffered so much throughout the year. Um, and this this show in particular is is where they turn things around. But this match really is a kick in the seat of the pants. All right. So what's your fourteen? My fourteen is a match um, we've referenced a couple point uh, points throughout this podcast. So I don't necessarily know that you have it higher than me. It's Zach Gibson taking on Jack Sexsmith from Progress's Super Strong Style 16 tournament. It was my number 21. Okay. Um, so this is a rematch of uh, a match from a couple chapter shows prior, and these two first met up in the Thunder Bastard match uh, earlier in the year. Um, every time Gibson defeated Jack Sexsmith with the Helter Skelter with his twisting brain buster first in the ring later than on the floor, uh, to, to receive a count out victory. And here, uh, Jack is in the fight of his life. Biggest match of his career so far. Um, like, it is more like Jack Sexsmith had got a string of singles matches in progress. Um, mm-hmm. Showing how much more seriously he was taking himself and how much more seriously the, pro- the, the company was taking him. Facing um, the aforementioned Zach Gibson, um, 
Travis Banks, uh, Paul Robinson, and having to really fight his way mm. into the Super Strong Style 16 tournament. Yeah, being being like a pretty low ranked like comedy wrestler for the most part, like uh, him getting into this tournament after a couple of years into his career um, meant a whole lot. And to get seated against someone like Zach Gibson um, was uh, a daunting task, to say the least. And uh, Gibson, before the match, cuts one of his signature promos against Jack and uh, is sure to berate all of his adoring fans, of which there are many in the Electric Ballroom. Well, we have to like mention, like the entrance here for Jack is like mm. like emotional as hell. Like it's, like, it's mm-hmm. as emotional as it gets. Um, Zach Gibson uh, comes out first, and then once Zach um, Gibson comes out and they're booing him, but once Jack's music hits, you see all the pride flags like that were given out um, um, throughout the weekend. And every, like, it was just flooding the crowd. And Jack Sexsmith comes out with one wrapped around himself, and he comes out and sees it, and immediately he just, like, bursts into tears. Mm-hmm. Like, at this, like, show of support that, like, the crowd is giving him. Mm-hmm. And he, like, gets down, like, closer to the ring, and he's just, like, staring at a whole bunch of his fans, and he just can't hold it in anymore. Like, it's really, really emotional before the match even starts, and Jack rolls into the ring and he's just sitting in the corner just taking it all in. And um, Gibson's cutting a promo berating his stupid fans with uh, their stupid flags, um, which I I wrote a lot of stuff on my blog about like the homophobia of some of uh, Sexsmith's matches against uh, the likes of Paul Robinson. And uh, while Gibson might subtly touch on it here i think he does it in a much better way that doesn't directly say oh you're stupid because you like this gay kid um it's 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 way more it's way more about gibson's hatred of the fans and their appreciation of someone like jack not necessarily because of who he is uh in regards to his sexuality but just because they love him um and and gibson's cutting this like uh hellacious promo and Eventually, Jack Sexsmith says, enough's enough, and he catches him with a dropkick in the middle of his sentence and beats the shit out of him. Um, he calls for the referee to start the match, but the ref is, like, checking on Gibson for, like, a full minute. And it's a really it's a really exciting moment because you're like, oh, my God, like, Jack could get the upset victory here, but the referee is going to cost him. And eventually, after, like, a full minute, the ref calls for the bell, and Jack comes rushing in at Zach again, and Gibson catches him with a codebreaker, one of his signature moves. And from there, he controls the majority of the match, uh, keys in on Jack's arm, uh, something that would later... Uh, lead to a, a legitimate injury for the young man. Um, and it's something that Gibson does quite a lot looking for the Shankly Gates submission hold, uh, of his. And it's like, this is a simple match. These are two very simple wrestlers. They do simple moves. Um, Gibson's sort of like a Nigel McGinnis throwback, but even more pared down, like real strike based, real, uh, arm work based. Jack Sexsmith is like, uh, the bare minimum you have to be to be considered a high flyer. I think uh, a real underdog wrestler does a whole lot of like DDTs and bulldogs and double stomps, things like that. Um, and even in their simplicity, these guys managed to infuse the wrestling with such an emotional undertone. Uh, once again, Gibson hits the Helter Skelter on the floor and it looks like it's going to be it for Zach or for Jack. Um, that like once again he's going to lose by count out. Once again he's going to feel the the crushing weight of a defeat in 
the biggest match of his career. And um, Sexsmith's reaching out to try to get back in the ring, and he's he's reaching the wrong way. He's not reaching towards the ring itself. And his hand finds the hand of a young woman sitting at ringside, and she picks him up, and along with a couple other people in the front row, like roll Sexsmith back in the ring to avoid the count. And it's the sort of thing you see a lot in wrestling. Um, it may or may not be like through the usage of a plant in the crowd, but like in this moment, it's such a fulfilling thing. It's such an emotional, uh, wonderful moment that like wrestling didn't really achieve a whole lot in 2017 for me. Um, and Sexsmith continues to fight back, continues to find his openings, but is decimated by the much stronger, the much faster, and the much more experienced Gibson. And eventually it looks like there's nothing Sexsmith can do. Um, Gibson pulls him up once again for the Helter Skelter and basically on instinct, I guess it's, it's not through any like volition of his own. Sexsmith brings him down into a small package and wins the match. And like the pop afterwards and watching Sexsmith like, uh, join his fans in the crowd is just magic. Yeah, just watching like the crowd reaction. It's one of the most genuine feeling matches of the year. Maybe the most mm-hmm. genuine feeling match. Like mm-hmm. from the intros to Zach Gibson's promo and how much they're booing him through um the cheering for Sex Smith throughout the match, them lifting him up and putting him back into the ring after he's mm-hmm. like, shelter on the floor. Um to the pop when he wins. Just everything about this match is just like genuine emotion. Just wanting to see this guy that they've watched grow for the last two years, like finally get this big, much deserved victory. So, uh, it's a really emotional it, match. I just, like, I just watched it like, did you? Two, yeah, just watched it again two days ago. And like, it still hits all those same notes. If, if progress hadn't already begun the process of dubbing over all of, well, not dubbing over, but replacing all of their themes with, uh, non-copyrighted music. Uh, and if Jack Seth, Jack Sexsmith was instead using his old theme of I touch myself by the divinals. I think this would be my match of the year. Yeah. I would not blame you at all. This really just hits like every single note possible. Uh-huh. My number 13, uh, match that I think you referenced earlier. I think you had it on your list, but, uh, Number 13 is Tetsuya Naito versus Kota Ibushi from the G1 Climax Night 1. This came in at my... Uh, let me look for it. This is on my t- top 200. Yeah, I thought I cracked your top, tw- top 120. Um, I should note that I'm just a much bigger um, Kota Ibushi fan in general than Brock. Sure. So, like, a lot of what I say is like only going to be like applied to me here, but... <laughs> Uh, just as a quick note, this came in at my number 126. It was initially much higher. Okay. Um, this was like your third favorite match or whatever. Did you want right? Fourth, whatever. I think fourth. It might be lower. Fifth. I think it's fifth. Okay. Um, but I'm a much bigger Kota Ibushi fan than Brock. And a lot of what I'm going to say here only really applies to like my relationship with him. But sure. Kota Ibushi is one of my favorite wrestlers, like, ever. I love this guy. I loved watching him for a very long time. He is very fun. It's not an emotional thing the way it is for, like, my love of, like, El Generico and, like, Akira Tozawa, but, like, I just love watching Kota Ibushi, and I've loved him for years. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was on his way to very, very big things in his 2015. Um, being a main eventer in DDT and having this... Um, 
new push in New Japan as a main event. There's some main event in the Tokyo Dome, main event in Sumo Hall. Like, this guy had everything ahead of him. And um, due to injury, he had to take some time off and, like, reevaluate his life in general, taking time away from DDT and New Japan. He eventually came back to DDT, but he returned to New Japan under the guise of Tiger Mac W. And, like, everybody knew his Kota Ibushi. And he had the Okada match um, at the 45th anniversary show that was really good. And you show you see glimpses of Kota Ibushi starting to crack, and maybe he just wants mm-hmm. to get that itch again. But seeing Kota Ibushi come out and, um, at Okaido after Tetsuya United already made his entrance, and getting to hear Golden Stars for the first time mm-hmm. in, like, two years in New Japan, that did something to me. That was really emotional. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm making it up, but, like, <laughs> really, like, I, I I saw Kota Ibushi's face during that, and it just looked like he had a tear in his eye, like coming. Yeah, out no, he is he's legitimately crying as he's making his entrance. Yeah, Kota Ibushi is very emotional too. The crowd is super hot for it; they're excited. And another layer of this is in 2015, we saw there's a glimpse of this Tetsuya Naito Kota Ibushi tag team. Mm-hmm. So for the first time in a while, Kota Ibushi is face to face with Naito, and it's kind of like befuddling to see this guy. He's very confused, almost like, what the fuck happened since I've been gone? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not the best spot fest of the year with uh, Rimo Takahashi and Dragon Lee, mm-hmm. or um, even like Maximum versus Over Generation versus Berserk, but I think it has the most meat. There is a lot going on here. It's Kota Ibushi in this momentous occasion that he's back and he's facing the most popular guy in the company. Mm-hmm. And both of these guys are out of their mind lunatics. So there's <laughs> a whole bunch of crazy bumps that both men take. Kota Ibushi gives Naito a pile driver off the second rope. Oh yeah. But I think what makes it more than just like a little crazy spot fest, a crazy bomb throwing match, whatever you want to call it, is that to see a Naito works on Kota Ibushi's neck. Uh, if you know the history of Kota Ibushi, um, some kind of like herniated disc in his neck or whatever mm-hmm. it was, is what made him um, sit on the shelf for a few for a while. Made him cut back his schedule, not wrestle in serious matches. It's why Kota Ibushi, despite how much I love him, he took a much needed break. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, Naito, who's a master at targeting a limb, is going after it. It's some of the best selling Kota Ibushi has ever done. Maybe the best. Um, Constantly grimacing in pain, holding his neck. Um, I really think that Kota Ibushi hones in on stuff that we just haven't really seen too much of him from, from too much of him from from before. Um, he's done leg work in the past, and people have argued that that's been shrugged off and it wasn't really mm-hmm. explored the way it should be. But here, selling his neck, it feels real, it feels genuine, and they're playing with real life circumstances, and that just hits a whole bunch of notes for me. Um, it kicks into another gear. Um, when we get to that closing stretch, it really is some of the most insane professional wrestling I've ever seen. Uh, both men wrestle like they have a death wish, uh, constantly taking bumps on their necks and heads when they don't have to. But at this point, you do have a standard. Um, when you're Tatsuya Naito, when you're Kota Ibushi, that is what people know you for. That's what people want to see. And sure, they give that to them in spades. It is exciting. Um, it's emotional for Kota Ibushi's big return. And up until uh, a match to happen on August 8th, it is the best match of the G1 tournament for me. Okay. Um, so that was my 
My 13 is another AAW match, my highest ranked of the year. One that's uh, not so controversial as uh, Sammy Callahan versus Michael Elgin, though it's from the same title reign. It's Sammy Callahan taking on uh, low-key at AAW's homecoming. A lot of people love this match. Even people that don't love Sammy Callahan Uh really, really enjoy this match. Um, At its best, this match is phenomenal. Uh, at its best, this match could be the match of the year. Uh, and it sort of flubs it late in the run, but for 80, 85% of this match, it's incredible. It's low key, um, legitimate psychopath, probably doesn't see other people as human beings, uh, totally decimating this little shit heel of a champion, this like self important piece of garbage, this guy who in and out of kayfabe uh, books himself to go over and uh, someone who despite all that is still an extremely explosive wrestler and someone who has a whole lot of history with Loki. it's the two of them going at it for 20 minutes or so in front of a hot little crowd in an intimate little venue and it's it's incredible stuff like so violent so exciting so fast paced so mean so brutal so stiff um after a while, uh, Callahan starts to cheat after getting his ass handed to him by Loki repeatedly for several minutes. And this includes him, uh, not duct taping. I think he uses electrical tape, but he tapes Loki's wrist to the ring and goes at him with a steel chair. And eventually Loki's able to escape himself and uh, escape and exact revenge, uh, in probably the most brutal spot of the year in which he, tries to tear Sammy Callahan's jaw apart. Mm. He takes, yeah, like it's, yeah. He's, he's got one hand on his, on his jaw and he's got the other hand on the top of his skull and he rips and it's, and it's, it's not like a legitimate spot. It's not like he's actually breaking the man's bones or anything, but it's a horrible moment of violence. And Sammy Callahan uh, is like selling it brilliantly. He sells it real big. He rolls over to his uh, manager, J.T. Davidson, and they tape a towel around him with a whole bunch of duct tape uh, like he's fucking Sabu in like 1996 ECW or some shit. Um and it's such a cool thing that sadly the crowd really shits on. Like the crowd's not into it at all, and the commentary team almost makes fun of it. The commentary uh, team is really fucking bad for this match. Like, yeah, this match yeah. really succeeds despite horrible commentary. Uh huh. Um, but sadly, this is also where the match sorts of falls apart. Uh, Loki oddly does not go after the jaw for most of the rest of the match. Uh, in like Loki, veteran of like twenty years now, one of the most ruthless people in the history of, of wrestling. You would imagine he'd go right back to that, like at least like punching Sammy Callahan, but he doesn't do a whole lot of that. And he only goes back to the jaw at one point to hit, um, or to lock on a, uh, a dragon sleeper for a big, like false finish. Um, and when he does that, uh, abyss hits the ring for like the fifth fucking time. They use him, uh, quite often as an interference finish for Sammy Callahan and his click, his, uh, OI 4k group. Um, and there's a big schmoz finish where Abyss comes in and attacks Loki and yada, yada, yada. Um, and the match sort of falls apart and eventually C. McCallaghan picks up the win. So it's like, it's, it's a, it's a finishing stretch in which like they're not making the best use of an incredibly gruesome spot. That is one of the highlights of the year for me. And they're, 
uh, once again, going back to an inconclusive finish that doesn't do a whole lot for anybody, but like when this match is on, it's on like the, there's a drop kick out of the ring. Uh, uh, there's a drop kick out of the ring that is incredibly violent. Uh, Callahan does a Toby Suicida that looks like it bends Loki in half. Um, so much quality striking the jaw spot. There's a catapult double stomp that rules. Uh, they, both men throw each other into the barricade around the ring at a certain point, um, right in front of like this elderly couple who are in the crowd and they like cower in each other's arms out of fear both times. And it's like hilarious stuff. Like there's just so much quality wrestling in this, like so much explosive, thrilling spot fest wrestling. And it really sucks that they don't stick the landing here. I will say this easily the best low key performance I've seen in maybe like 10 years. Yeah. This is his best in quite a while. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place to Me Nation's JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlaceMination.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceMination.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar and Westworld 
York, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, thehistoryofwrestling.com, and Scott Keats' blog of doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceFamination.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. All right, so my number 12 is uh, Nick Richards versus Trevor Lee from CWF Absolute Justice. Um, and this was uh, one of the few Trevor Lee title defenses throughout the year that I wasn't so hot on. Um, I've been curious about that throughout the uh, whole year, at least since it's aired, uh, about why this match in particular really uh, didn't resonate much for you. I... I don't know. A big part of it is that, like, I wasn't so hot on uh, Nick's whole face turn. Um, I wasn't really a huge fan of his as a, as a heel to begin with, uh, but then turning into this this weird, um, really sort of a subdued baby face didn't do a whole lot for me. And the fact that this entire match is built on like a shared mutual history with Trevor that uh, I totally understand. And having watched uh, the hype video for this, uh, I definitely got more into this match than I was before that. But uh, at the same time, it's not necessarily something that I buy into um, in the same way that I would buy into other uh, challengers that Trevor would have throughout the year. And it, I don't know. It was just a big, um, big, like hardcore match in a way that, not a lot of CWF Mid-Atlantic heavyweight title matches are. Like, we saw the Roy Wilkins match where Trevor won the damn belt. Was, it had all sorts of, like, shenanigans in it, but I think this was a different sort of breed. Um, I'll be the first to admit that the personal history between Trevor Lee and Nick Richards isn't as strong as a lot of Trevor Lee title defenses are. Um, even with the uh, video package that John Philip Pavage made um, mm-hmm. highlighting the build to this, it really isn't like their paths were that intertwined. Of course, they have history. It's CWF. Like, everybody yeah. has history with everybody. But the main thing here is this whole um, redeeming himself or making people take him seriously um, path that Nick Richards has been on for the last year or so. And a lot of that does come, does come down to the fact that you have to see how low down, mm. dirty, grimy... And how people didn't take him seriously that Nick Richards was being under the thumb of uh, Lee Valiant and other people um, in, like, 2015. Mm-hmm. So Nick Richards really has had to work his way up into being taken seriously. Taken seriously to the point where, going into the show, people were like, okay, there's no way Nick Richards doesn't win this belt. The same way we were talking about A.J. Dragunov winning at um, the 17th anniversary. That's how a lot of people were feeling going into this Absolute Justice show. Yeah. And what I like here about this match, and it's not to say that this is unique to Trevor title defenses, because as it's gone on, people have come up with different strategies, but there is an urgency and a desperation that mm. I really, really love here about Nick Richards. And it doesn't come in that he's just working fast and that they're going at it like from the, from the onset. Nick Richards is hitting his finisher, the cutter, as soon as the bell rings. As soon as Trevor Lee is getting his introduction, he's not waiting, and he's going right for it. In the commentary of Brad Stutz and Cecil Scott is losing their minds. Um, the Sportatorium completely buys into it for the fact that Trevor Lee has had all these long title defenses. Mm-hmm. Someone out the gate has just hit him with their finish, and everyone's does like, it does it twice too, doesn't mm-hmm. he? Does it twice? So eventually, 
in a lot of people's minds, the way the Trevor Lee title reign ends is it ends in a short match. Sure. Someone catches him off guard. He was thinking that we're going to have this long, overwrought, I'm going to wear you out 40, however, however much longer match. And here Nick Richards is coming in, and I'm just going to take you out immediately. Charlie survives, and he's almost pissed off that Nick mm-hmm. Richards thought that he could do this to him. Yeah. So here we get this hard-hitting match mixed with um, a bit of a plunder brawl and still weaves in like CWF lore, like Nick Richards winning um the Weaver Cup Finals with the with a Johnny Weaver role and things along those lines. Where I think it's not just a hardcore match. I think these guys really do bring it on the strike exchanges um, and the intensity down the stretch. Trevor Lee does shake Nick Richards' hand, indicating that Trevor Lee does finally respect him and that this vindication and respect that Nick Richards has been longing for, he's finally gotten. But the main thing that he's here for is the championship, and he doesn't get it. Trevor Lee puts him away, and I think it's a great match for that reason. Um, I like this match a lot because it plays with the expectations. You come into this match thinking there's no way Nick Richards loses. And when the ver- when the results first came in and Nick Richards lost, again, like that Bad Bones Ilya thing, you're like, what the fuck? Like, what are they going to do now? And credit to the CWF booking team in that just because Nick Richards lost, it didn't mean that this reign was now missing another opportunity. It felt like now someone else has to step up because, holy shit, Trevor Lee is just that damn good. Uh huh. And there's and there's no shortage of people who can step up and in this reign, uh, whether or not that actually ever happens, we'll we'll have to see. All right. So what's your number twelve? Uh, my number twelve is a match that sort of shocked me with how good it was. Um, but I really love it. It's my highest ranked WWE match of the year, and it's the first time ever that a main roster women's match in WWE got that nod from me. It's Sasha Banks versus Emma versus uh, Nia Jax versus Dana Brooke versus uh, Bailey versus Mickey James in a gauntlet match for the number one contendership to the uh, Raw women's title on the June 26th episode of Raw. I did not see this match, so you have to tell me about it. Oh, okay. So, um, uh, one of the big complaints you heard from me as well as a whole lot of other people throughout the year was that WWE did a whole lot of, uh, multi-person matches for the women's titles throughout the year, uh, both in NXT and on the main roster. Um, and that complaint was a little overblown, uh, even on my end, but, uh, it was an annoying thing to see all these talented women shoved into a big, like four way, five way, six way match that didn't really highlight their individual strengths. Um, and to see that repeatedly throughout the year was very frustrating. Uh, that's not what we get here. Like, on paper, this looks sort of like the same idea. It's six women of varying quality, of varying skills, um, in a match that goes 30 minutes on WWE TV. Uh, it, on paper, it reads pretty bad, but due to this gauntlet, uh, match format and due to specifically how they booked this, I think this comes across masterfully. This is probably the best booked match of the year, um, or, if it's behind anything, it's behind something like the CWF Rumble, which is twice as long, has um, like tons of people in it, and is just uh, steeped in the history and uh, the multi-layered storytelling of that promotion, whereas this is a little bit smaller of a scale. Uh, Nia Jax comes out here first and is with Bailey 
uh, someone she's had a storied history with over the last couple of years, both on the main roster and uh, in NXT. And Bailey's fall from grace over the spring and summer, uh, both I think functioned in and out of kayfabe. And this is sort of the culmination of that in a lot of ways, I feel in that she no longer has what it takes to really stand up to Jax, um, this monster who she used to be able to really take a fight to. And even though it takes like a third of the match, it takes the better part of 10 minutes. Uh, Jax fairly easily dominates her and follows that up with Mickey James, who oddly has probably her worst performance uh, since her comeback, I haven't seen her. Like, I don't know. That's that's definitely the lowest part of this match is when Mickey James comes in and does a whole bunch of, like, 2007 Divas sort of offense. Uh, but thankfully, she doesn't stick around long, and neither does Dana Brooke or Emma, both of whom are uh, squashed, basically, in, I think, less than a minute each. So that takes us most of the way through the match and gets us down to Jax having defeated four different women and... Last of all, we have Sasha Banks, who is like this perfect combination of like technically sound and uh, fast and agile and smart um, and very lithe and the perfect sort of person to take it to Jax, especially since she's already had multiple matches with her throughout the year and is very familiar with her as an opponent. Um, but the thing is, this late to the match, like, 20 minutes plus into this match, uh, which at that time I think would have been Jax's longest match in her career. And this definitely by the time it ends is fairly well, her longest match. Uh, she's definitely feeling it by the time she gets around to banks, uh, keeps tossing her to the floor, trying to go for a count out victory. Um, yelling at the referee constantly is very frustrated when banks kicks out of a elbow drop. I think it is. She has this like awesome look on her face, uh, where she's like, looking up into the side and kind of like running her tongue on the inside of her lips and is like, Oh, you're going to get it now. Like the sort of face your mom would make when you're throwing a, a hissy fit in the grocery store. And it's like, I'm going to beat your ass when we get home. And it's some of my favorite character work from WWE this year. And from basically all of wrestling this year, Jax does absolutely marvelous, marvelously as she slowly loses control of the match. Uh, Binks due to her, um, small stature is able to apply a variety of submission holds, most notably her uh, bank statement. She first locks in like this standing variation of it, and uh, it takes a lot of out of jacks, even though she's able to reverse it into a Samoan drop to escape. And Jax's lack of adaptability comes back to bite her in the ass here. She goes for another Samoan drop, and Banks is able to slip free, lock in a slightly different variation of the bank statement where um, she starts, uh, Jack starts on her stomach and banks keeps pulling it back and back and back and back until Jax is basically like kneeling and looking up to the ceiling and she's in the hold for maybe all of 50 seconds. It's not quite a minute. And it's really interesting to see her come to realize that she has no way out of the submission. Um, even when like in the back half of the hold, when she's staring up in the sky, like you can't actually see her face. She's just communicating this idea through body language uh, and watching her come to terms with that and eventually tap out was really cool. I thought she blew me away here. Like I've always been a fan of, of her, but she totally upped her stock here with uh, a very long and very uh, complicated match in which she didn't look lost. She didn't look 
out of her elements at all. She didn't certainly didn't look blown up or anything. Um, and Banks, I actually like bought into Banks as a face for the first time. That's certainly something I've never done before in her various face runs throughout uh, throughout her last couple years in WWE. And I don't know, this was just like this was a killer match that took me by surprise. I didn't I didn't think like a thirty minute WWE women's match could work due to like how many times we've seen them stick their fingers in the pie, but they pulled it off here. Um, were you a fan of any of Nia Jax's uh, title matches in NXT? She had one against Bailey at NXT London and one at uh, one against uh, Asuka at NXT Takeover. At the, I believe the end. Were you were you a fan of any of those matches? Uh, yeah, I like the London match. Uh, though I mean, this is like two years ago now. This is a little hard to remember. Um, I did like the London match, even though I thought that it was probably the least of all of Bailey's defenses. Then again, that's not necessarily a fair thing to hold against her, considering that like. In those defenses, you have two Oscar, or well, you have an Oscar match and a Sasha Banks match, both of which are very good. Um, I remember not enjoying the end quite as much, though I'm not necessarily sure if she was the right sort of person to face Oscar. But I mean, she's she's always impressed me with her stuff. Like she has a real simple, uh, real basic, direct style, and like here, here in this match, she applies that. She uses her size to good. Uh, good effect and doing like little things like a leg drop, like a very simple move and watching banks like duck out of the way of it at the last second was so gripping was so thrilling in a way that like I can only describe something like good silent comedy as being the same sort of gripping something that's like just masterfully done in that you can't, you can't utilize uh, the extra element of sound and you have to communicate your ideas solely through the visual medium. And like, I don't know, it didn't make me laugh, but like this kind of match made me think of Buster Keaton. Hmm. All right. So my number 11, it's a match. I don't remember if you even liked or had on your list, but it's Tessia Naito versus Kenny Omega from the G1 climax finals. Uh, did not make my list. Um, Suffice to say, wasn't a huge fan of it. I enjoyed Chono coming out at the end. That was nice. Um, this match definitely plays with uh, what you assume going in. In New uh-huh. Japan, in what is a very uh, callback-heavy, reference-heavy, playing off things that previously happened promotion when it comes to their big matches, this is a match that does not really do that. Mm. This is a match that acknowledges that they had a great match last year, but that mm-hmm. was the story of Kenny Omega getting his leg worked on, overcoming, and creating this huge upset beating Tetsuya Naito. Yeah. Here we have Kenny Omega, who's now uh, an established star, going up against Tetsuya Naito, who had just lost his Intercontinental title, and it's really the Tetsuya Naito story. When last year was this Kenny Omega, we're taking this guy to the moon, um, making him the biggest star in all of New Japan. Tetsuya Naito was the guy that they used to get him on that path. Here we have Tetsuya Naito getting his redemption. Getting his redemption um, that was uh, four years in the making after his um, first G1 Climax win in 2013. And we get to see Tetsuya Naito get to turn back the clock a little bit, uh, doing some of his old Stardust genius moves, uh, pulling out a Stardust mm-hmm. press, a suicide dive, things that Tetsuya Naito hasn't done much at all, if um, rarely, if ever, uh, since the gimmick change. Mm-hmm. And that really struck a chord with me because I wasn't 
really big Naito fan um, before the Los Ingobernables um, Dampon gimmick um, came back with him. And I was always disappointed that a lot of people just weren't that into him because I thought in the ring this guy always delivered. And to see him turn in this performance where he gives references and nods to his past, it's not like his past is a bad thing. It's not like he was a complete failure and that he just never did anything right. This guy was a fucking fantastic wrestler. Mm -hmm. And I love the fact that we got to witness that again with um, him with a... integrating new spots of his current character. Kenny Omega, I think, is great when he's in control. This is really a big, just bomb-throwing epic final, and I get that. But there is a lot of stuff woven into it. There's this uh, gross pile driver that you think Naito's going to do on the commentary table, but it actually goes off the table into the floor. Yeah. Um, I believe there's a very scary spot on the turnbuckle. I don't remember what exactly it was, but I remember, wa- remember watching it live and just thinking that was very frightening. Uh, Kenny Omega had did a Uranagi um, to, um, to, um, to Kazuchika Okada the night before, and he does it here to Kenny um, to, to see a Naito, and it's <laughs> a very, very sickening bump that he takes on it. But yes, yeah, a lot of big moves, a lot of kickouts, and I get where that can be unappealing, but in a promotion like New Japan, where I can see people saying that they're prone to doing the same thing over and over again in their matches, this is a match that where they could have rested on their laurels and like did a carbon copy of their G1 final G1 um, climax match uh, in 2016, but they didn't. They tell a completely different story, and I think for that company, that's a very admirable thing to do. So, so you want to go see your um, eleven? Yeah, give me a second. I was trying to find what that spot you were referencing okay. was, and I couldn't find it in my review. I didn't get a chance to rewatch this match, but I feel like if I had rewatched it, I'd v- vividly remember what that spot was. Okay. Uh, anywho, my number 11 is a match that I think you had on your list a little bit lower than me. Uh, it's a match you specifically cited as something that other people thought of as the best Dragon Gate match of the year, and damn it, Quentin, you are right. It's my Dragon Gate match of the year. It's Masaki Mochizuki taking on Big R Shimizu in a number one contenders match on their September 5th show. And I have uh let me try to find it. Ooh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to. So actually 82. So go ahead. Oh man, too, way too low. Uh, but per Dragon Gate tradition, this is a, a story of youth taking on experience. This is a cross generational uh, collision. Um, Big R, who is incredibly excited to possibly have his first shot at the Dreamgate title, uh, comes into this match and immediately shoves over Mochizuki. And Mochizuki, who probably only has one Dreamgate title uh, shot left in him. Oh, being... oh, I would like to add this in here that Mochizuki and Big R used to be unit mates in Dia Hearts. Uh-huh. And um, kind of tag team partners have like a, this father son relationship going mm-hmm. on too, which is what makes this match, um, I think as personal and heated as it is. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, immediately as Big R tries to assert his dominance, Mochizuki turns it right back on him and they sort of just don't let up for 15 minutes in a hot little Korokin show. Uh, 
Mochizuki goes right after Big R's right arm, knowing that uh, the kid's got a lot of strength, a lot of size that you don't see a lot in Dragon Gate. And moreover, he's got the most protected move in the company, the shot put slam, this big like falling choke slam gimmick. Um, and he's looking to mitigate all of that. And Big R doesn't necessarily have the experience yet to change his game up when Mochizuki takes away his big move. Uh, something that I talked about with the last match in the women's gauntlet uh, was Nia, uh, Nia Jax's lack of adaptability and Big R has the same problem here in that he doesn't know what to do and just sort of blows through Mochizuki the same way he always would, but it's less and less effective as the match goes on. Um, but <laughs> even though it's less effective, these guys are wrecking each other with all sorts of strikes here. Um, I think Mochizuki hits maybe the best slap I've ever seen in wrestling. <laughs> uh, something super gross. He hits a roundhouse kick late in the match, too. That is super gross. It connects right on Big R's jaw and knocks him on his ass and probably knocks him out. If it doesn't knock him out, it's a whole, like, uh, the lights are on but nobody's home situation. Uh, Mochiz- or not Mochizuki. Big R's doing these standing splashes to Mochizuki. So normally you would do it when your opponent's on his back, but he's doing it when Mochizuki is on like his side. And it looks like he's just grinding the poor old man's bones into dust. Like it's, it's gruesome stuff. This is so gritty. Uh, like once a year or so Dragon Gate has like one blow away, like gritty, realistic, uh, hard hitting match, usually with Mochizuki, I guess. Uh, and this year, this was it. like this, I don't know. It just, it just fucking blew me away. These guys are like grasping at each other's tights when the other is trying to go for a move, like doing everything they can to try to pull out the victory here, because this is a match that means a whole lot to these guys who are at very different points in their respective careers. Um, eventually big R realizes that he can't hit the shot put slam due to the, uh, damage that Mochizuki has done to his arm. Uh, he can't do it with his his naturally dominant right arm. So he goes with his left arm and does it in a neat little spot. But of course, it's not nearly nearly so effective. Um, and once again, like his lack of adaptability kills him because uh, he just goes and tries to do it with his right arm after that. Mochizuki turns it into a cross arm breaker and uh, transitions into a seated Fujiwara arm bar that he... Dear God, he yanks and yanks and yanks on, nearly falls over backwards due to how much he's pulling on this damn thing. Um, it convinces me in, in like the 20 seconds that he's got this hold in, convinces me that he has ripped Big R's arm out of its socket. Uh, Corican is going fucking nuts for it and eventually Big R taps and it's, Ooh, it's a, it's a big blow away match. Something that knocked me on my ass. Something that, uh, really cemented this turnaround that uh, Dragon Gate had throughout the late summer, and uh, it's a tremendous thing. I think it's the sort of thing that for people who aren't usually Dragon Gate fans, uh, I think this is something that would that would be a big deal for most people. Yeah, I think a lot of people would find some enjoyment out of this. I really do like the aspect of it um, that you touched on, is that these guys have a, dis- have a different kind of motivation and different mm-hmm. kind of urgency in what they need to do. Big R is like desperate for this first big title match, then Mochizuki is looking at what, at what the time was possibly his final one. Yeah. So it's like these guys are two different paths, and I think uh, they uh, matched up with the story accordingly. Uh, my number 10, a match that you had on your list a little bit earlier, 
It is Massive Product versus Rincon from WXW's Dead End Show. Okay. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is your tag team match of the year, correct? No, it is not. Oh, it's, oh, that's right. You have one more. Never mind. Um, so I remember initially watching this. Um, I think Bo Johnny on Twitter had watched this before me, mm-hmm. and I had opened up, opened it up, opened up Twitter, and I on my timeline I just see him going crazy over this match, <laughs> and I hadn't watched it yet. So immediately I go um, and watch this whole Dead End fifteen, there's Dead End sixteen, whatever it is. Uh, um, sixteen, yeah, yeah. I think I'll go watch the Dead End sixteen show, and holy shit, I never <laughs> went on Twitter as fast as I did there to tell everybody that this is a fucking phenomenal match. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is Dead End. This happened in February, so a lot of people weren't exactly on the WXW train yet, like they wouldn't mm-hmm. become March when Sixteen Carat arrives. So this is kind of a forgotten match in the WXW year because in a year of Walters versus Ilya Dragunovs, of David Starr versus Walzer, of even something like uh, John Klinger versus Ilya to close out the year, this is something that really got the ball rolling. And it's a match that sets up a whole bunch of stories that plays off stories that were in uh-huh. 16. There's a whole bunch of layers here that I'm going to try to try my best to talk about. So. Rinkoff and Christian Michael Jacoby. Um, well, yeah. Explain explain what the gimmick was here. Mm-hmm. So the gimmick of this match was that if Rinkoff lost, Christian Michael Jacoby, who was in Rinkoff's corner, loses his matchmaking power, and everything goes to Karsten Beck, who was in the corner of Massive Product. The reason why this match is taking place is uh, at the 16th anniversary show in 2016. There was a two or three falls match between Brinkoff and A4, in which if A4 lost, Karsten Beck will lose his powers. Mm. A4 won that match, so here we are in February with the tables turned against Christian Michael Jacoby and Brinkoff. Um, the other stories going, going in here, uh, Walter and David Starr, which has been brewing for a few months now, mm-hmm. Aaron Simmons and Axel Dieter Jr. is set for a 16-carat day two, so mm-hmm. these two are facing off. Um, so this is a whole big... I mean, this even touches, I mean, I would argue, A, this touches on the, the Walter, Axel Dieter Jr. animosity, and mm-hmm. it sort of sets up um, Walter being the guy that Ilya beats to eventually win 16 Carat, in that uh, Walter only agrees to this match if Jacoby puts him in the tournament. Mm-hmm. Even if you wanted to, like, dig, do even more digging, if you look at the finish of this match, David Starr is, like, left by himself because yep. Aaron Simmons and Axel Dieter Jr., can't um, keep their hands off each other. Uh-huh. So here we have this big tag match that has these like stories woven into it, similar to like a CWF or Dragon Gate match. Mm-hmm. So we have all this lore and future stories and ongoing stories that are already being set up and referenced. On top of that, you just get some great quality tag team wrestling in front of a uh, this great crowd in Hamburg, which is mm. one of the best cities in general and all of us. So, such a good venue, too. I love that place. Yeah, it is a great wrestling venue and a great wrestling city. Mm. So here you get this, this hot, fast pace. Not even fast pace. It's like WXW's high-end tag team matches are like this wonderful mix of mm. like southern tag wrestling and like peak all-Japan wrestling mm-hmm. with, their tag, with their tag work. And they create this like wonderful balance here. Um, again, it's, a, it's like it's notable that the common denominator here is Walter. Um, and Walter here in this control segment, this is back when Rincon for heel. So Walter is laying in to David Starr here. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Axel Dieter Jr., I really enjoy his work here as uh, taking his shots when he can, but letting Walter do all the big heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. David Starr is phenomenal selling. Yaron Simmons has a great hot tag. I really love this uh, first iteration of Master Product as to where they're not totally familiar or comfortable with each other, but they do their best they can as this newly formed team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think that, in general, you just cannot find better tag wrestling anywhere other than this one match I have that I know I just <laughs> like way more than anybody else. Sure. But you, I'd be hard-pressed if I showed anybody this match. You can put it up there with like the Usos, New Day stuff, or anything you want. This is firmly up there in my mind. Isn't it real long, too? It's like upwards of 30 minutes? Yeah, very close to 30 minutes. Um I can see some people being intimidated because of how long it is and because it very much yeah. relies on the um, story. There's some interference here. Um, I think Christian Michael Jacoby is great at ringside. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that he's, like, he, in general, he's a very, very intelligent dude. But as this heel character he was playing for a few months um, on WXW programming, he was fantastic. And this is like the peak of it. There's this uh, three-man submission spot. Where Davis Starr has um, uh, Walter in a submission, Yaron Simmons has a uh, Dieter, and then Jacoby tries to interfere, and then Karsten Beck comes in and um, puts a uh, Jacoby in a chokehold, mm-hmm. and like the crowd totally buys into this as this <laughs> finish. They are going wild for it. Jacoby at one point pulls the ref out of the ring; he's about to count three. So the, there's a whole bunch of near falls here that the crowd buys into, but it's not. Um, gratuitous, they're not doing too many near falls, it's just these perfectly timed spots that the crowd wants this change, they want Jacoby out of power they don't want Walter in 16 carat mm. and you buy into the fact that these things might happen uh, we get this epic uh, final two between Walter and David Starr, and this was like, I didn't think David Starr would have a better performance than he had in this match, but this just wound up being the set piece for what wound up being his like phenomenal 2017 Sure. Um, up to this point, it was the best David Starr performance I've ever seen. And he just um, built and built off of this match, which I can say is probably a... This is the, this is the starting point for me when I became a really big David Starr fan. I think the Joey Janela match at Beyond Paying Paul in January was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had really good stuff before that in 2016. But I think this is the match where David Starr really found his calling. And that was as this fiery... Down the stretch, you can hit him as hard as you can. He's going to keep ticking and fire up babyface in front of this hot crowd, and the crowd just believes in him. Uh, I adore this match. I'm glad that Brock rewatched it and liked mm. it a lot more. Yeah, because I, I initially watched this, and it, I didn't enjoy it too much. I thought it was a little overlong, and I specifically it was like I didn't like how it turned out. I didn't like that this big power struggle between Carson Beck, this like fan favorite former wrestler who had to retire due to cancer and, and became like this, this big phenomenon afterwards that people loved. I didn't like that. He, um, he lost this power struggle to someone as dastardly as, as Christian Michael Jacoby. Um, I didn't like that Walter, like just gunned down star yet again after like a year of attempts to try to beat him. Like it, it hit me in such a way that, that like, put a sour taste in my mouth that I didn't forget until we get around to 16 Kara and the feel good ending of Ilya 
winning the tournament. But when I rewatched it, I was like, there's so much going on here. There's so much that like continues stories that uh, have been dormant for a while. There's so much that uh, escalates stories that I thought were sort of bad before this. There's so much that sets up stories that I found to be some of the best stories in wrestling throughout the entire year. Um, and yeah, like I'm glad I rewatched it because I, I, I found a renewed interest in it as, as this thing that is very emblematic of where WXW goes throughout 2017. All right. So what's your number 10? My number 10 is also a tag match. It's only my second favorite tag match of the year. Same as yours. Um, and, uh, I don't, I think it's a match you didn't get to see in the end. Uh, I know I tried to make sure that you watched it, but I'm not sure if you ever got around to it. It's team Sendai girls taking on British strong style in the finals of Chikara's King of trios. Yeah. I never got around to watching this. Okay. So, um, Oh boy, uh, this is, I think this is the match where I bought in to Pete Dunne as like this incredible, phenomenal young man who had all the talent in the world. Uh, his work here as a heel is incredible. Like, and I, I'm, I, I don't mean to oversell what he's doing here because I think the first 10 minutes of this match are the best 10 minutes of any match I've seen in years. And if the second half of this match lived up to the first 10, uh, this would be the best match I've seen since like punk Cena, uh, which is a better, the better part of a decade ago. Now, um, leading into this BSS had earned themselves a buy in the tournament after, uh, after uh, team rot had dropped out and the, uh, reigning, King of Trios, or Queen of Trios, I should say, champions, Team Sunday Girls, had had a very difficult road to the finals. Uh, and most notably, Dash Chisako, the smallest member of the team, had been repeatedly isolated and worked over, and she had been sporting uh, an arm injury throughout the entire evening leading up to this. Uh, from the outset of this match, Dunn is trying to get under Satomura's skin, and... Uh, he stares her down during like the pre-match photo ops, uh, continues to stare her down afterwards, throws a towel at her at one point, which she lobs back at him. Uh, he does everything he can to try to get under her skin. Eventually the two of them start the match off. Um, he tries to bully her on the mat with his significant size advantage, but Sadamore has been wrestling like as long as he's been alive. So it doesn't work as well as he'd like. Uh, so instead he tries to trick her and do, um, a pretty irregular spot in his repertoire that being like uh, a handshake fake out into um, biting the fingers. Um, so he extends his hand and like tells his partners to be cool. Uh, but Sadamora, you know, this crafty veteran sees right through it and shakes his hand, but then takes his fingers, puts them in her mouth and bites down on them in an awesome reversal of fortunes. And as Dunn is selling his fingers and uh, begging off, she flashes the guns. She puts her arms in the air and flexes her muscles and is the coolest fucking person on God's green earth. <laughs> I love Mika Sadamori to death and she's incredible here as well. Um, they run through a couple other of the matchups throughout this match, uh, and Bates and Dash Chisako have an awesome little sprint that gets interrupted by Dunn when he jumps in the ring and floors Dash Chisako with an elbow. And from there, we get like this, this Im impeccable control segment 
where Dunn is vicious. He is specifically trying to hurt Dash as much as he can. Like he, he clocks her with a right hand at one point, And then as she's like wobbling around semi-conscious, uh, he kicks her legs out from underneath her. He, he does all these gross, like enziguris, like specifically is trying to like work over her brain, I think. And it's, it's, it's brutal stuff. Like it, in my review of this on Brockade's wrestling, I compared him to like peak jumbo, like one of my favorite wrestlers ever, Jumbo Saruta, during his feud with Misawa and the, the Super Generation Army, because like I can't compare this to anything else. He's being a complete dick, a dickhead here. It's controlling the match in an effortless way, in a way that like I can't look away, in a way that is making me like scream into my fist at three in the morning. Um Satamora clearly is getting pissed about this because he's doing this to like one of her trainees. Um, at one point he goes for a, uh, a Chris Jericho cocky pin, like the one legged, uh, flex pin. And she runs in the ring and blasts him with a kick, like basically, <laughs> uh, caves his rib cage in with a chest kick. Like the two of them interacting throughout this match is just, I can't speak highly of it enough. It's, so fucking awesome it's two all-timers or at least i should say an all-timer and someone who looks like an all-timer here having a once in a lifetime matchup um once dash chisako is able to make the tag out the match sort of falls in quality not necessarily because what they're doing is bad but because like there's a language barrier here these people are unfamiliar with each other um and as talented as these other four people are they're not you know pete dunn and they're not mako sanamora um but the faces get control with a couple of cool dives uh in and out of the ring um Satamora towards the end basically fends off all of British strong style by herself, continuing this, uh, this awesome performance from her. Um, she reverses a bitter end into a DDT very nearly picks up the win single handedly against Peter Dunn. Um, but, uh, the thing with the trios match is that like, you're never alone. There's always somebody who's going to be making the dive in and BSS makes a save for him. And after a couple reversals back and forth, Pete eventually is able to hit his second bitter end of the match to pick up the victory. But it's like this fucking match is so good. (laughs) Like if, if the second half was even remotely close to the first, this, this wouldn't even be the number one on my list. This would be like the zero. This would be an S tier match for me. It's, I loved it. Quentin. Um, I'm curious how much, uh, I know you're like raving about this Pete Dunn performance, but how much mm-hmm. of your love of this match is due to the fact that like Maiko Satamora is in it as well as a like, I mean, Pete Dunn performance? I mean, it is like, I love her. She's one of my favorite wrestlers ever. She's someone who's, who's ranked very highly for me the last couple of years on my like wrestler of the year list. Uh, and it's certainly great that she's the one in there, like putting, uh, putting the boots to this young piece of shit. But like, most of it is done. Okay. Most of it is this guy who like I've recognized as talented, someone who I've watched for years, much longer than a whole lot of other people who, who love him these days because he's sort of a friend of a friend. Um, and seeing him, I think finally live up to his potential, finally live up to uh, the hype, what has been said about him for these last couple of years. I think that's what blew me away here. And it, I mean, it certainly fucking helps that Mako's there, but he's, he's the one who stole the show. 
All right, so my number nine is my highest rated tag match of the year. Whoa, whoa. Leaders of the New School versus Best Friends from PWG, Nice Boys Don't Play Rock and Roll. And I had this at number 122, so it just barely made, uh, barely missed my list. Uh, this is a match that I know I just adore way more than uh-huh. pretty much everyone that's on the planet. But like that WXW tag match, this just hits a lot of those similar notes for me. And I just think the heel performance here is maybe the best heel performance I've seen all year in wrestling. The performance here from Zack Sabre Jr. and Marty Skrull mm. is utterly stellar. Like, the chemistry between these two obviously is there. They've been, te- they've been teaming together for 10 years. But leaders of the new school were always baby faces. They were always fiery, plucky, underdog baby faces. Mm-hmm. And here... Since um, Marty's girl had finally got um, Zach to embrace the dark side, and this is their first um, match of the team since the heel turn of PWG, they just go all out here berating the fans, berating um, Chuck Taylor and Trent. Uh, you could say about, you could say berating Beretta. Uh, that's awful. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just they're just berating best friends, berating the fans, flipping them off. Uh, mocking Chuck Taylor and Trent. Um, something I didn't pick up the first time when I watched this is that Zach and Marty are really affectionate towards each other during this match. A lot of hugging. Um, I think at one point they like they grab each other's asses while they're hugging. And like at first you're thinking like, okay, that's right, whatever, whatever. But, they're fucking around, yeah, yeah. But then I watched it. I'm like, if you know the whole best friends thing, they hug mm-hmm. each other and hold hands during these matches. Mm-hmm. Then it hits me like. Oh my god, they're mocking the best friends by being so overly affectionate. That's fucking great. Um, the story here is that I forgot to mention is that Zack Sabre Jr. had beat Chuck Taylor for the um, in a PWG title match on a previous show. Mm-hmm. During that match, a lot of people were cheering for Chuck Taylor, a lot of people were booing Zack Sabre Jr. So after Zack Sabre Jr. wins, out comes Marty Skrull. Who Zack Sabre Jr. Who, uh, who Zack Sabre Jr. had just beat at Mystery Vortex in a PWG title match. Mm-hmm. So out comes Marty, and Marty's talking about how he's known Zack since they were kids, and he knows Zack deserves more respect than the crowd is showing him. Then Marty Skrull turns around and starts blasting Chuck Terry with stomps and umbrella shots, and Zack Sabre, Ju- Zack Sabre Jr. joins in. And we finally get to boo Zack Sabre Jr. Mm-hmm. And Chuck Taylor is alone, by himself, getting the shit kicked out of him. And then out comes Trent, who, if you remember, Chuck and Trent had this um, somewhat no DQ guerrilla warfare match. What do you mean somewhat? <laughs> it, it, it wasn't. A, it wasn't officially um, guerrilla warfare, but I guess not guerrilla warfare. It was definitely no DQ, though. Yeah, it was a no DQ match, um, and they hadn't been together um, since then. Yeah. So Zach and Marty um, joining forces and being being this dastardly force forces Trent and Chuck to get back together, and it's a really feel good moment. It's organic. It's believable. Mm-hmm. Then, in Chuck's time of need, Trent was there. But back to the match itself. Uh, I always talk about that Young Bucks versus Men of Low Men of Low Moral Fiber match as like PWG's answer to people saying they have no psychology and great uh-huh. pacing and uh, making sense in their professional wrestling. And this match is even better than that to me. This match just features Marty and Zach being complete dickheads, cutting off um, Trent. Chuck Taylor being a 
the southern the southern gentleman that he is um is just like playing the ultimate like fiery hot tag guy in the apron mm-hmm. um getting worked up and frustrated that Trent can't make it to the apron and tag him in uh the stomping on the fingers and arms and hands that Zack Sabre Jr. and Marty do is excellent. Uh, Trent is one of the best-selling baby faces on the planet. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he takes this convincing and awesome control segment. Chuck Taylor comes in, and it's a great, fiery moment. Um, the crowd is super into it because Zack and Marty have been such assholes throughout this entire thing. Um, the reason why I talk about the booking in this match is because, because PWG does get a lot of shit for not really caring about booking and just throwing shit against the wall and just having great matches. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is valid. But in this year, with this particular feud, well, for some reason, they just want to flex their booking muscles, I guess. Um, they like Dustin, I guess. I don't know. Um, so what happens is that Marty's girl and Chuck wind up brawling outside the ring and they wind up going to the back. Mm-hmm. What this sets up is that Marty and Zach, Marty and um, Chuck have a um, street fight at the next PWG show. That leaves Zack Sabre Jr. and Trent in the ring. Zack Sabre Jr. and Trent have also had singles matches before, but not in PWG. Trent winds up pinning Zack Sabre Jr., and the crowd goes absolutely ballistic for it. We talked about mm-hmm. the pop that Chuck Taylor got when he won the PWG title. You would think Trent won the PWG title the way the crowd reacts to when he wins. It is a huge pop. And he beats him. And something that Excalibur references is almost like a fuck you to um, Suzuki Goon. As at this point, Texas Virginia is already in the stable. And yeah. Trent beats him with a um, cradle pile driver. So that sets up their singles match. And it really is like awesome to me that PWG like actually was booking stuff ahead that well. Uh-huh. Like, you know, in a promotion that really doesn't um, give me the stories that I want often that um, oftentimes in wrestling, they gave me one and then some and set up more stories and more down the line. And it's a great heel performance, great babyface performance. The crowd is super into it. Mm. And like, I wish pe- more people would see this match. Like, I know that PWG isn't like some unknown promotion. I get that. But a lot of people might like see this on paper and think, okay, this is probably a good match and just skip over it. Sure. Trust me. Like, watch it. Watch the details. Watch the control segment. Watch the facial expressions. Watch the dynamics between the four guys in the ring. This is a fantastic match, and I can't say enough good words about it. All right. So that was your, what, number nine? Mm hmm. Okay, so my number nine is a match we've referenced a couple times now. Uh, it's David Starr taking on Walter in the first round of WXW's 16 karat gold tournament. And I had that at 27. Was this, uh, no, you had the cold brew match highest, right? No, I had cold brew at like 40 something. This was the highest match. Weird. Okay. Um, I mean, at this point, I really don't know what to say about this match because. It's interesting that you have it the highest, but like this is the one that like sort of kicks off the feud in a big way again. Um, but I think what's most notable about it is the fact that it's just it's the the foundation for the other two matches throughout the year. Um, once again, we have a very fiery, a very resilient, a very proud David Starr as this underdog babyface who is um, maybe not so much an underdog because he's very capable and well, this could. One, this also goes on last on. Day mm-hmm. one of sixteen carat, which I remember in the, like the like like day leading up to, it, people were like, "Yeah, this better go on last." Yeah, uh, we were we were questioning whether or not this would be where Star 
finally defeated Walter because uh, Star was one of the people we had on our short list to win the whole tournament. Um, and so coming into this, uh, we were very much behind David Starr, and he puts in a great performance here as this guy who is incredibly capable and should theoretically be able to defeat someone like Walter. But despite all of his efforts, despite everything he does, he can't put it together. He tries out all these different uh, routes, all these different strategies. He tries to take to the air. He tries to use his uh, strength game that is uh, considerable for someone his size. He tries to uh, get the crowd to just fire him up as much as he can, but nothing works. And Walter uh, kicks off a, a story that he used throughout the entirety of the tournament and that he would um, slap faster opponents down and ground them with a sleeper hold that he would eventually win with. Uh, that was something that was a big deal throughout the entire tournament outside of his Matt Riddle match, because Matt Riddle doesn't want to do that sort of match, I guess. Um, and it kicks off here in a big way in which we see Walter just decimate him with like a big boot and a clothesline and then apply the sleeper hold. And it looks like star is going to rally out of it. They do the, the hand raising gimmick and it, it looks like star is going to fire up, but he just doesn't have it in the tank. And Walter wins by submission or by knockout, I suppose with this sleeper hold and it kicks off a great feud, but curiously you have it the highest ranked of the three matches. Um, I like the fact that it is kind of the building block mm-hmm. for what they do. And I'm, like, usually I'm someone that does prefer like the later iterations of a match. But I think that, I think because this match kind of sets up not just their story, but the entire Walter 16 carat run. Totally. Making him this big, formidable monster is, uh, why I have it so high compared to those matches. Um, also higher than the Ilya Dragonov versus Walter match. Um, I guess what we'll get to in a little bit. Nuts. But, I really do enjoy the um, story here, which they start, and that you really buy in the day of the star is the main event. You think that there's a chance, and they tease you. Not even, not even just a chance. We thought it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. What like Walter is WXW. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get hurt by like losing here. To yeah, Dave he didn't star. need it. Like he's already won the tournament before. Like what does he gain? So people are assuming that maybe Davis are moving on here. Mm-hmm. And then they give you that hope that all right, he's going to get his hand up. And then you watch it. And it's like, no, his hand just falls. Mm-hmm. And like, it's not heartbreaking. It's not like the saddest thing I've seen in wrestling this year. Sure. But like, I buy into it so much that I'm just like sitting here at my screen. Like, who's going to beat him now? Like, yeah. Like, Obviously, Ilya Dragunov was in the tournament, and they've been building him up, but you just watch David Starr just crumble. And you're just like, what the fuck, man? Like, is Walter going to win this thing again? Mm-hmm. Like, it really just sets up this whole story that they tell with Walter um, in that tournament, with David Starr in particular, and a lot of Walter's year, where he was just this big roadblock for people to get past. Um, and they really embraced him as this huge, formidable force, maybe the most they've ever done it, um, at least since, like, 2010 with him. Um, so that was your number nine, right? Mm-hmm. All right. My number eight is Zack Sabre Jr. versus Chris Hero from Evolve 77. Um, and I think as I mentioned on the first part of our podcast, this was a match that I watched, uh, and I couldn't really wrap my brain around. Like I didn't review it for my site. Um, it was, it was a match like the last matchup of, of a match you, uh, of, a 
it was the last match in a matchup that you and I talked at great length about last year, something we were raving about through its many iterations in 2016. Um, it's a match that like I really should be over the moon about, but for some reason, um, I couldn't really form an opinion on it. So why don't you tell me about it? Um, we talk about how like important Timothy Thatcher versus uh, Zack Sabre Jr. was as mm-hmm. a title defense on the independent wrestling scene. This probably was the most important match that happened at independent wrestling in 2017. This is the last match of the guy that embodies independent professional wrestling uh-huh. more than anyone ever. You can argue he is the best ever <laughs> as someone that uh, worked every promotion thrived in every promotion, built promotions up. He evolved as these promotions got better and grew into bigger and better things. Um, even when he went to WWE, you still felt traces of Chris Hero um, on the scene. You felt the gap that you felt the gap when he was gone, and when he came back, he was even better and took more places, the bigger heights. Like mm-hmm. Chris Hero is independent professional wrestling, and in the time that Chris Hero came back, this guy that he had known for a few years, Zack Saber Jr., starts popping up. Uh, he first, he first, I think he first wrestled Zack in like 2011. Um, like some weird WXW CZW show mix, mm. but then I think he had known him for a couple of years before then. And as Chris Hero comes back, he kind of takes Zack Saber Jr. under his wing. Zack Saber Jr. becomes the opponent rival, student pupil, whatever you want to call it, that Chris Hero kind of needed. Um, so seeing these two go back and forth in various promotions, whether it be PWG. AAW, Evolve, Limitless, um, wherever wherever else they wrestled, they were almost like hip and hip. They were almost like synonymous with each other. And it's weird to say because Chris Hero's like, as far as prominence, he's been way more prominent than Zach for at least like 10 years or so. Yeah. And Zach started wrestling in 2002, but Chris Hero was already Chris Hero in like 2002. It was already known as Chris Hero in 2002. Totally. So these two have a pretty good gap between them, but you still had them have hit by him. And watching this match and watching how Zack Sabre Jr. has struggled to beat Chris Hero in Evolve, in Evolve in particular has been a story for the last couple of years. Um, and a match that I really liked but didn't love as much as a lot of people did um, and Sammy Callahan and Zack Sabre Jr. versus Hero's eventually die in 2016, you really see that story start to fully develop and evolve as Zack Sabre Jr. takes this vicious, unrelentless beatdown from Heroes Eventually Die. Um, they face each other at Mercury Rising that year. And Chris and Zack Sabre Jr. tries, and they go at it as hard as they can, but Zack Sabre Jr. fails again. They face, each, they face each other at Evolve 60, and a match I got to see live. And Zack Sabre Jr. gets close, and he gets swatted down again. And here he is facing big, bad Andy Godzilla once more. He only gets one last shot. Man, it's funny you say that. He's not even Indie Godzilla. He's just Indie God. Yes. He is facing him one last time. He gets one last shot to make right on this thing that he wants so badly. And Chris Hero is on this retirement tour, or he's leaving, like whatever whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And he's coming out. He's happy. He's elbowing fans. You know, it's supposed to be a happy, feel-good moment. And then Zack Sabre Jr. comes out. And Zack Sabre Jr. isn't happy. He's not smiling. 
He's not like glad to be here. There's no like emotion on his face. Zack Sabre Jr. is dead fucking serious. He is tired and he wants this win. And Chris Hero extends his hand for a handshake. And Zack Sabre Jr. immediately just rushes him with a head scissors and goes straight to a triangle choke. And that is the story of this match. Is that Zack Sabre Jr. doesn't want this win. Mm. He needs it. He needs it to validate himself. He needs it to validate every single thing he's been through for the last few years. He needs this victory over Hero. And Hero obviously isn't going to take that lying down. He beats down Zack in the way that only Chris Hero can with elbows, punches, kicks, boots, um, sentons, throws, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. Zack Sabre Jr. is getting his shit kicked in once again by Big Brother. And Chris Hero is smiling. He's having fun mm. while he's still being this menacing bully like he always is. And what makes this match different is that obviously they go down this closing stretch. You've seen a Chris Hero, Zack Sabre Jr. match before. But what makes this different is like this arrogance that Chris Hero has. Chris Hero almost doesn't want to win this match. He almost wants to embarrass Zack on his way out. And say what you want about these pedigree spots that have been done by guys that are on their way to NXT, have appeared on WWE television, whatever. But Chris Hero does this pedigree to Zack Sabre Jr. And Zack Sabre Jr., no sells it, kicks out at one, and he gets right in his face, almost like disrespected. Like, dude, you're gonna hit me with a fucking pedigree, mm-hmm. you indie god. You're gonna yeah. you're gonna resort to a pedigree, like disrespected by this. And he fires up, gets in his face, starts elbowing him, kicking him, and it's a very passionate Zack Sabre Jr. And eventually, Zack gets Hero down and puts him in this like torture device submission, um, having his leg wrapped around his head like a stretch muffler, um, while simultaneously, simultaneously like stretching his arms. Chris Hero has nowhere to go. Zack Sabre Jr. had to pull out a submission I've never seen him use before to beat this guy. And Chris Hero taps out, and Zack Sabre Jr. just gets on his knees and yells into the crowd like he finally got it done. Mm-hmm. And like the match itself is awesome, but the post-match here is Chris Hero and Zack Sabre Jr. sitting on the mat. Chris Hero grabs a microphone and talks about how much he's seen Zack Sabre Jr. grow over the last few years. Uh, knowing Zack for so long, knowing Zack when he had that long hair, was even skinnier, had no tan. <laughs> <laughs> he's literally watched this guy grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Hero was someone that got into the pro wrestling Noah and had this um, career... Um, changed there, um, getting to spend time in that dojo. And after Zach got to spend time in pro wrestling Noah Sue, Chris Hero said that's when we saw the change in Zach Sabre Jr. And these guys, despite the age gap, despite the years apart and when they became big names, these guys have similar careers. They have similar paths, travel similar roads. They have similar mentalities when it comes to professional wrestling. These two just are two sides of the same coin. And it was nice to see Chris Hero say, "If the, even if the indie does, even even if the indies doesn't have me, there's still Zack Sabre Jr. here to carry that torch that professional wrestling and independent wrestling needs." And this leads into um, Zack Sabre Jr. eventually winning the Evolve title in February. Mm-hmm. And look, it would be an even bigger moment. It would be higher on my list if Gabe didn't gave it up with, uh, with Timothy Thatcher and ACH and coming out. But like, it's just needless shit. Like, like it's almost like how most would Chris Hero go out, and other than dealing with some old independent wrestling over and, bullshit. And, yeah, and like, 
Gabe doing this to Hero, like someone who was his guy for so many, like someone who who was instrumental in Evolve's early history, like I, so stupid. Yeah, but um, do you have anything to add on this match before we move on? I really don't. I don't. I wanted to watch it again before we recorded, and time just got away from me. I don't know what it was about this one. Maybe like maybe I just I, I talked about Chris. Uh, how sentimental I was about seeing Chris again with the Keith Lee match. Like maybe I just didn't want to watch this because it meant that like that chapter of the man's life is over. Like it really, uh, like the Keith Lee match wasn't the end, so it wasn't as big a pillow swallow. Like this is uh-huh. this really was the end. Yeah, and, and so like ha- having to having to get around to this pill and eventually swallow it was like rough, and maybe a part of me still doesn't want to recognize it. All right, so we can move on. What's your number eight? My number eight is uh, the feel-good hit of the summer. It's Roy Wilkins taking on Snooty Fox at CWF Mid-Atlantic's Double or Nothing 2017. Okay, I did see this, and I did really enjoy it, but you are in love with this match. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not even my favorite CWF match of the year, but I do I do really enjoy this. This is what sold me on Snooty Fox, um, and I think it's just, it's, it's... It's tons of fun. It's a very old school sort of match, uh, both in the gimmick and in execution. Uh, the gimmick here is that each one of these men have put up a thousand dollars on the line and the winner takes it all. Um, and if you've ever seen either one of these guys wrestling, you know that they have a very bare bones style, uh, sort of, sort of methodical, sort of simple. Uh, some people would say boring. <laughs> I wouldn't so much because they're very charismatic guys in their own ways. Uh, Snooty Fox in particular, uh, wrestling here in front of his hometown crowd in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, has, has a quiet sort of charisma, like, I don't really know what it is, but just this big guy who is well-beloved by all these people, uh, children, families, older people, people my age, um, this guy who is just naturally likable and someone that you want to see kick Roy Wilkins' ass and uh, kick the ass of Coach Gemini and Jerry Carey, the other members of the All-Stars who are on the floor here and doing everything they can to get in uh, Snooty Fox's way. Um what this match like lacks in impressive execution, uh, due to the fact that, uh, Snooty's, I don't think not even two years in, into the business at this point, and Wilkins is not the most polished wrestler in the world. <laughs> um, what this match might lack in impressive execution is just an incredibly impressive amount of, um, I don't know, just being emotionally absorbing. Uh, one thing, um, I forget Phil. Yeah, Phil from Segunda Caída, uh, uh, a site and a pair of guys that I enjoy a whole lot and find myself agreeing with a whole bunch. Uh, Phil over at Segunda Caída described it perfectly when he said that the crowd here was like wholly invested in the outcome of the match rather than the performance itself. And watching Snooty slowly make this comeback and slowly try to get the upper hand on uh, the All-Stars and very nearly get there in the end before Coach Gemini and Jerry Carey sweep out of his uh, sweep out his legs and allow uh, Roy Wilkins to get this cheap shot in on him and uh, pin the man while Jerry Carey and Coach Gemini are holding down his legs uh, off the side of the ring. Uh, 
getting to see that big comeback and then ultimate heartbreaking end was really rough, but it's not the end of the match as Snooty Fox's tag team partner, uh, dirty daddy who had been screwed himself earlier in the night by Ethan Alexander sharp comes out here, starts yelling at the referee to, to, to reverse the decision to restart the match because of this cheating. And soon he is joined by, all these people in Chapel Hill, these people who moments ago were like, ah, that fucking sucks that our guy lost, but like, what can you do? Um, these people realize that like, if they make enough of a stink, they could actually reverse the decision. And watching that happen real organically, watching that genuine reaction to, uh, a wrong thing that happened in front of them and realizing these people could write that wrong was magical. Like just the sort of thing that you don't see often in wrestling. Um, eventually Snooty Fox just like real quickly picks up the win with like uh, a big power slam and people are dancing for joy afterwards. Like, like cannot control themselves are running up and down the aisles and, and celebrating like we just won a war or something. And it's, it's <laughs> like, it's breathtaking stuff. Uh, Snooty eventually gets like this big box of money where they consolidated their $2,000 and he starts throwing dollar bills into the crowd. Um, Eric Royal, who is another member of the all stars, one of the greatest heels of the year comes out and steals the money away and runs off with it. Trickster spirit that he is. And, uh, as he's about to go through the curtain to the locker room, he does the Heisman pose with the box of money and just this wonderful fuck you finish. Like I can't, this match does things that other matches don't like this match is not just an old school thing, not just sort of a methodical thing, not just a throwback sort of match. This is a match that like grips me with, uh, just the weight of two men and their personalities, uh, as well as some, you know, ancillary characters on the side in the all-stars. And like, it's, I don't know. Like I, I would say that like anybody could watch this and find appreciation of it. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true, but like I urge everyone to try. It's free on YouTube. All of CWF stuff is, and it's it's phenomenal stuff. How do you feel about Roy Wilkins? I know a lot of people that got into CWF in the last year or so weren't big Roy Wilkins fans, but I've always felt like I've loved the guy. Other than like Dustin yeah. Spencer, been like the high man on him. Roy's really good. Like we talked about him earlier with the CWF rumble. Like he's, he's a heel that's not afraid to look like a putz. Like he's a heel who leans really heavily into doing this like technical wrestler. Who's not actually all that technically gifted. Who's not actually good at it. (laughs) Yeah. Like he's, he's full of his own shit and I'm not sure if that's intentional or if it's just a guy who doesn't necessarily have the means to be a great wrestler pulling off a good gimmick. But like it's, I like the guy a lot. I thought he was incredible in that Trevor Lee match, uh, the 104 minute match. Obviously only the second best guy in the match compared to Trevor Lee's like all timer performance, but like the dude holds his own and I think, I think people should reevaluate him. All right. Well, my number seven is also a CWF match and my highest rated one of the year. It is Trevor Lee versus Brad Attitude from CWF Battle K 2016. Uh, due to the fact that it was in 2016, it didn't end up on my list, but, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and this was like one of, this was sort of like the jumping off point for me with CWF where I had watched the 104 minute match and I was trying to get into it and battle kid rolled around and I was like, shit, this is good as place to start as any. Um, there is an awesome, uh, video done for this, um, 
program or feud this entire build done by John Philip Havage. I mean, he did a few of them for uh, CWF in the last year or so. Uh-huh. So, if you remember the finish to Roy Wilkins versus Trevor Lee, Trevor Lee has Roy Wilkins in the STF. Coach Gemini tries to interfere. And Brad Attitude, the former champion who had just got screwed by Roy Wilkins out of the title at Battlecade, um, interferes and stops Coach Gemini from breaking up the STF, allowing Trevor mm-hmm. Lee to win the, win the belt. Um, fast forward to uh, July or June, whenever Absolute Justice in 2016 takes place, and after Trevor Lee beats Andrew Everett, out comes Brad Attitude, who had not been wrestling all year, mm-hmm. come toast Trevor and Andrew saying, you guys just wrestled a phenomenal match. The crowd just saw an amazing match. Mm-hmm. Take it all in. because Brad, could- Brad being this like veteran of the company who had been around, who had already been in the in the limelight, and, and was sort of like moving into the later stages of his, of his career, trying to toast like the young guys. Mm-hmm. So they toast, and he says, take a good look at these guys, because this may be the last time you ever see them. Mm-hmm. And he proceeds to beat the shit out of both of them with beer bottles and... Um, a uh, sick kick to the face. So, that kick starts the story of Brad Attitude being the thorn in Trevor Lee's side for the entire rest of 2016. Uh, whether it be jumping him, whether it be cutting these promos from his home that were the hot, what, the highlight of CWF Worldwide for that stretch, <laughs> honestly. Brad sure. Attitude was phenomenal. Uh, Trevor Lee coming out every week and cutting these promos, begging Brad Attitude to show up. Eventually, Brad Attitude does show up. And he goes Trevor Lee into this match that Trevor Lee is like completely out of his element here. Uh-huh. So Trevor Lee cannot be disqualified, but I mean, Trevor Lee, um, if he's disqualified, will lose the CWF title. Mm-hmm. Brad Attitude cannot be disqualified. Brad Attitude can do whatever he wants. And he gets this by, uh, threatening to break a, um, a beer bottle over Andrew Everett's head. Mm-hmm. And Trevor Lee is stuck there being held down by uh, Eric Royal and uh, somebody else. And Trevor Lee agrees to it. And then Brad Attitude proceeds to smash a bottle over Andrew Everett's head anyway because he's just that worst type of person on, mm-hmm. on the earth. This also has a 30-minute time limit. Mm, sorry about that. Plays off the fact that Trevor Lee has had these um, 105-minute... 50-minute, 40-minute, 30-minute matches before. So Brad Attitude is now forcing him to keep it low, keep it compact, and you have to get the job done because if you don't, I'm still going to win this belt. Mm-hmm. So Trevor Lee and all this anger and frustration he has, he can't unleash that too much. He can't try to wait it out and wear Brad Attitude out the way he usually does because of 30-minute time limit. So how exactly... Is Trevor Lee supposed to win here? And that's the question I had watching this match. And I managed to watch it unspoiled. But you watch this match wondering, how in the fuck does Trevor Lee do this? Totally. Not like Brad Attitude isn't formidable. He's a former champion. Brad Attitude is a fucking fantastic wrestler, even before the heel turn. His um, world title run in uh, 2015-2014 is excellent stuff. So... He's facing this guy that is no slouch in the ring, is completely fresh because he hadn't been wrestling at all that year. Yeah. So how was Trevor Lee supposed to win? 
And that kind of wonderment and amazement and just me being glued to the screen is what makes this match what it is. Mm. Because I don't ever wonder about a result that way. I don't ever sit at my screen just confused, befuddled, thinking to myself with my hand on my chin, like, how are they going to, how are they going to do this? And it's a great match. Uh, Brad is who turns in a fantastic performance. I'd say, um, he's allowed to do whatever he wants. So we see chairs, kendo sticks. Um, there is a wicked, um, chair throw that Brad mm. does an open chair, throwing it against, um, Trevor Lee's head. It looks absolutely gross. And Trevor Lee turns in this fantastic babyface performance. Um, the highlight of this being a gratitude hitting him. Trevor Lee gets up and says, I'll bleed all fucking night, Brad. He is not going down. He is going to make sure that he walks out of this with a title and with revenge. And while this whole time I was wondering how they were going to do this, they planted these seeds of Brad Attitude wasn't just a dick to Trevor Lee. Ratatouille was a dick to everybody in CWF, uh-huh. namely Robbie Walsh, who came out um, after a ref bump and uh, a referee himself. He was, he was a referee, and he uh, cut Robbie Walsh's hair. So it wasn't just Trevor Lee who had a bone to pick with Brad Attitude. So Robbie Walsh comes in, and Brad Attitude thinks he has the match one, and then Robbie Walsh counts to two, gets up and flips Brad Attitude off. Mm-hmm. And, like, some people may think that's a cop-out, but for the fact that Robbie Walsh deserved revenge, too. Just mm. because Trevor Lee was the main character in the story doesn't mean that other people weren't pissed off at Brad Attitude. Doesn't mean that they weren't going to do what they could to get back at him. And at the biggest show of the year, Robbie Walsh got back at Brad Attitude. Trevor Lee hits him with a beer bottle, gets catharsis for what happened in... um. 2016 with Battlecade. I mean, not Battlecade. Absolute Justice. And Trevor Lee wins. And I didn't really have it in my mind that maybe Brad Attitude would get um, screwed, so to speak. But he's a heel. He fucked over so many people and did so many people dirty that are in the company. He mm-hmm. deserved it. Mm-hmm. So even if they agree to a stipulation, even if all that is true, doesn't mean that the heel also deserved fairness and that he deserved a win because he was a piece of shit. And I like the kind of honesty in that we're not just going to abide by some fucking rules here because we agreed to them. The heel was an asshole, too. So I really like the fact that they made me wonder how in the hell they were going to pull this off. It's a fantastic bit of booking, I think. Mm. Um, and that's like the theme with all CWF matches that I have on my list. And everything sure. I'll ever say about <laughs> CWF is that they make me wonder and they intrigue me by where they're going to go with this match. And this match is like... Uh, it's not Roy Wilkins versus Trevor Lee and how the journey that took me on, but it's pretty damn close. Well, hopefully CWF continues to enthrall us with its booking moving forward. Uh, that was your number seven, you said? Yes. Okay, so my number seven is uh, my personal highest-ranked tag team match of the year. And lo and behold, it's another match from WXW. Uh, from the World Tag Team League, it's the Rottweilers, the team of Homicide and Loki, taking on Ring Kumpf, Walter, and Timothy Thatcher. Yeah, this match didn't hit me nearly the same way, but I know this match in general just means a lot to you. Yeah. Um, when... Well, let me put it this way. Um, this match is like an affirmation of, of all the things I love in wrestling. Like, it's... I love I love vibrant characters. Um 
especially ones that are sort of violent, sort of dangerous. I love technical wrestling. I love hard-hitting wrestling. I love high-flying. I love brawling. Um, I love tag team wrestling. That's something, like, if if I had to choose between, like, watching tag team matches and singles matches for the rest of my life, I'd, I'd take tag matches in a heartbeat. Um, and this... This match is such an awesome combination of all of those things packed in as a dream match in my favorite promotion to watch these days. Um, there are a million little delightful character interactions here. Uh, things like Thatcher talking Walter through his first interactions with Loki. Um, Homicide being absolutely fucking crazy, being the, the highlight of this match. Uh, Loki apologizing for Homicide being so crazy and then being like, no, fuck you, Tim Thatcher. Respectfully, I want to face Walter. Um, homicide, like, cursing at Walter in Spanish to try to get under his skin, but also to distract Thatcher. Uh, throwing chairs around all all over the place. There's uh, At one point during a brawling segment, um, Walter's got Homicide uh, like seated on a barricade and he chops him and homicide sells it by like keeping his elbows in close to his chest and sort of just pinwheeling his arms and yelling up into the air. And it's like, it's a whole bunch of stuff like that, like both on offense and on uh, defense on his selling side, like homicide being the most entertaining person in wrestling. Um, not just being a big goofball, not being a class clown, but like embodying this character, this very specific person uh, that comes across as completely believable to me and not just completely believable, but like entertaining and a capable wrestler. Um, all four of these guys are killers and they kill each other in this match, even though Loki and homicide are both, uh, pretty close to 40 if not 40 and uh are well past their prime and are small guys compared to ring Kampf. they more than hold their own here uh folding the big guys in half with all these strikes utilizing a high-flying game that ring Kampf can't really answer like the the actual content of this match itself like the mechanical spot by spot nature of it rules but what really makes it sing is just seeing these four vibrant characters that i love interacting for the first time uh when i first saw that this match was announced when i first saw that these two teams were in the same block for the tag team league on twitter like i could not get over it and here after it's all said and done like i love the match just as much as i thought i was going to months and months ago it lived up to the hype it's 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 everything for me do you think that a lot of this is the fact that like it really is a dream match for you that just lived up to yeah. the expectation? Yeah, like I there was a lot of dream matches in this tournament. Um I, I wrote a big thing about dream matches specifically in my review of the Briscoes in Ring Kampf match. But yeah, like this this fits the bill even more so in that it's just everything like every interaction here is awesome. Every interaction here is something I want to see in a single setting over like six or seven matches because it's just, there's so much to dig into and it's, it stinks that this is only like 17 minutes long. I wanted to, I wanted this match to go on forever. Um, it would be safe to say that other than Walter, because I don't really know your relationship with him. So I think you've been watching WXW regularly for about two years at this point. Maybe sure. I, I, I'd seen it previously on and off, but regularly, yes, only in the last couple of years since they got the streaming service. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, it'd be safe to say, like, this is, like, three of, like, of your favorite wrestlers ever and one guy that you, like, really like a lot, right? 
I wouldn't necessarily call Loki one of my favorite wrestlers yeah. ever, but like two and two, sure. Mm. And in in those in those two, like Walter and Loki, like I, I love them. Mm. I really enjoyed the Walter Loki interactions. Like, yeah, I'm not a big fan of Loki single stuff for the most part, but he does have moments when he shows up, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. And I would think he would definitely show up against Walter. Um, this is a really great high performance, and really, I think honestly, like again. I think other than the finals, I think Timothy Thatcher was kind of mm-hmm. playing um, sidekick to Walter. Totally. Which kind of bothered me considering how like much the story of the finals is Timothy Thatcher getting this big moment. But I really enjoyed Timothy Thatcher here, too. Um, uh, but but to say that he was the worst guy in this match is to not sell this match short. And yeah. it's not to sell Thatcher's performance here short, either. Yeah, it is a great match. Like, all four guys deliver here. All right. My number six, you haven't said it yet, so you have it higher. But, uh... Kazuri Shibata vs. Kazuchika Okada from New Japan for Wrestling Sakura Genesis. I wasn't sure if I was going to have it higher, and sure enough, I do. So we'll uh, we'll get to that in just a second, and we'll talk instead about a match that I have quite a bit higher than you. It's David Starr versus Walter from WXW's London show on uh, October the twenty eighth. All right, take it away. So. Um, what I really like about this match is how it illustrates where Star is in his uh, story with Walter at this point. Um, he is incredibly desperate, something that we touched on in uh, our discussions of the finals of the tag team tournament just a couple weeks before this. Um, but after losing there, uh, not even losing to Thatcher, or not even losing to Walter specifically, losing to Thatcher actually, but. Uh, once again, coming up short against this sort of career rival who doesn't recognize him as uh, much of anything, especially as a, especially as a face now that Walter like is like, uh-huh. dude, like we should be uh, school. Yeah, it's, what's what's your problem? <laughs> yeah, um, it sort of sent Star over the edge. Uh, it started to fray away at his relationship with Jordan Simmons, uh, which would eventually, at the 17th anniversary, uh, completely shatter. Uh, to also like sort of, uh, ruined his relationship with Alexander James, someone he wasn't necessarily close with, but someone who benefited greatly from stars decaying mental state at this point. Um, coming into this, this wasn't even supposed to be a one-on-one match between these two. It was supposed to be a rematch of massive product. Okay, and I mentioned this before, but this match pretty much changed three times. Uh-huh. So initially it was Rincon versus CCK. Mm-hmm. Then after that, um, Lycosa got injured, Again. so they changed it pretty quickly in advance to ring versus massive product. Then, to, then due to whatever reason of Euron Simmons pulling out, I believe he was sick. I think he was sick, yeah. Um, this then turns into Walter versus David Starr, and then Timothy Thatcher then goes on to face Mark Davis on this show. Cool match, by the way. Yeah, but that's just like even more interesting notes here. This match pretty much got changed three times, so we mm-hmm. really weren't supposed to get this match. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that uh, a match that wasn't meant to happen turned out to be my favorite match of the series. And it's it's because like you get to see David Starr lose his mind. Uh, coming into this, like Yaron Simmons has let him down again uh, and has left him high and dry, and he has the opportunity to face Walter, but um, it doesn't go well for him. Like it always doesn't go well for him. He's persistent and he's desperate, but every single time Walter catches him with a move here, he is, um, 
he's like a petulant child. I've talked before about how I'm not always the biggest fan of stars selling. It's, it's easily his weakest quality to me. I find it to be, uh, overly hammy or overly dramatic at certain points, but here he's not so much selling the moves that Walter is doing to him as he's selling the idea of Walter getting one step closer to beating him again. Every time Walter chops him, every time Walter boots him in the face, every time Walter slams him down, he is one step closer to looking up at the lights as the referee counts three. And he can't handle that. He he goes nuts about it. Um, eventually just starts smashing Walter's hand against the side of the apron in like a, a uh, desperate attempt to try to to finally leave a mark on this person who doesn't even like recognize him as a big rival, someone who, who is coming into these matches like cold and calculating and unemotional. Uh, and this is where we really start to see that side of Walter change in that, uh, this handwork really wakens something up in Walter and he's like, okay, fuck this. I'm done with this feud. And he's notably meaner here than I think he was back at 16 carat. Um, well, I mean, as the story is, Walter always wins, and he always wins again here. Uh, and sort of, I, I know something that you thought was sort of an abrupt finish, and I sort of agree with this. It's not nearly, uh, it's not built nearly so well as the other finishes in this series were. But uh, the man just blasts him down with a clothesline. And it's all it takes in Star. No, it was not the, it's not that, the, not, the, that, not that the move doesn't look great. It's a fucking brutal clothesline because sure. Walter always throws a hell of a lariat. But you're right. It, like the build to it is what kind of bothered me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like the real crux of it here for me is just that Star comes up short again. Star continues to just lose his mind over this feud. Uh, Star throws a Hail Mary and is like, hey, why don't we go face each other in America? And it comes up short for him again. And it costs him relationships with his tag team partner. Um, and I think it may actually end up costing Star his sanity somewhere down the line. Uh, but for the here and now, it's something that I love to watch. Um, I completely see and understand like everything that you said about the story here. But I think for the fact that this wasn't even supposed to happen... This does kind of like mess with my perception of the match itself. Is like I hear that, yeah. Where, like, where do we go here with this story if all these variables don't wind up changing? Yeah, like um, something you were worried about leading into the Beyond Wrestling match between these two was the idea that Star could win because he's a big guy in Beyond, and Walter was only having his like second match in the promotion, and you were you were suggesting that would. Uh, Star come out victorious in that match, it would be considered like non-canon within the framework of the series. And I can understand if you think that because this was like a real last-minute thing, that this sort of is less canon too. Mm-hmm. Then that's kind of where I stand on it. So like, I completely understand the emotional aspect of it because David Star is phenomenal here, selling the aspect of like he can't he can't take another loss. He can't take it. He's mm-hmm. already lost the finals. He lost a 16 carat. He lost the shotgun title. He get, he can't take more loss in his life. And I get that. But I think for the fact that it just didn't hit me emotionally the way it hit the same for other people. Sure. And that's the way that, uh, I mean, it's the reason why I have like Ilya versus Klinger higher. It's the reason why I have like Timothy Thatcher versus Jeff Cobb higher. I think those matches just hit me more emotionally than this London match. Uh, in the ring, I probably say this is the best one match they've had so far. I probably agree with that. 
I think Walter selling up his hand is phenomenal here, and he's mm-hmm. still throwing these chops, and he's like, oh, man, it's like the biggest part of my arsenal, and it really, <laughs> really hurts, but, like, I gotta do this. Mm-hmm. Like, I really loved a David Starr headbutt a chop at one point um, after luring th- after luring Walter in. Yeah. Davis is a really smart David Starr performance. So, like, in the ring, this is a brilliant, brilliant match, but I think the finish not being... um as well built as I would have liked. And I think the fact that this happened on short notice and wasn't even supposed to happen after two match changes does matter to me a lot. Um, I think that the fact that they were able to tell such an emotionally compelling story, despite the fact that this wasn't supposed to happen and they kind of booked this on short notice is something that would matter to a lot of people. And obviously that does matter to you when talking about this match. But um, for me, I think it isn't a knock or a critique. It just means that other matches had more emotional staying power for me. I think you just don't like the British crowds. <laughs> That's um, all it is. The London shows were actually really good top to bottom. They I were. Hope, yeah. I hope they do more of them. Yeah. Um, all right. So my number five is a match that you had on your list earlier, I believe. But it's Minoru Suzuki versus Kazuchika Okada from the G1 Climax August 8th. Yeah. Let me see where I had this. Um. So this is a match where... Uh, they do play off of things that happened in February. Did you find your uh, where you placed it? Yeah, I had this at number 108. Okay, so in February, after Suzuki-Goon returns, and then um, Minoru Suzuki attacks uh, Kazuchika Okada, they had this really long 40-minute title match. So a a very people, flawed match. <laughs> a lot of people hate, but I do really like some aspects of it. Um, so here we are in the 2017 G1, and... Okada had just lost to Evil. Okada has experienced his, fir- experienced his first loss of the tournament. Um, it's clear that fatigue is starting to catch up to him. Uh-huh. So, Kazuchika Okada is coming in hurt, uh, damaged, wounded, tired. But Minoru Suzuki, who's been in the same tournament, isn't having nearly as difficult of, of a time. Um, he has lost some matches, but he hasn't gotten his shit kicked out of him the way Okada has in a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of these ways. Minoru um, Suzuki, despite being the older guy, you could argue he's probably in better shape than Okada, or at least in the same level of shape than Okada. Oh but, my god. I didn't just, think you were going to pull that out. I'm saying Suzuki, Suzuki's in really fucking good shape. <laughs> yeah, he, he really leaned up over the last couple of years. Jesus. Um, but here, Suzuki and Okada take each other to the limit, and you, uh, I think it's part of the story where Okada being fresher in mm-hmm. February... He was able to survive Minoru Suzuki. Mm-hmm. He wasn't able to get this convincing victory. He was able, by the skin of his teeth, to beat this like frightening man. But here on August 8th, Kazuchika Okada was so tired, so beat up, so banged up, that he could only go 30 minutes with this guy mm-hmm. and um, just get the time limit draw. And I think aspect of it that I really like is uh, throughout most of the year, people were so down on Minoru Suzuki. Like, why is he here? Why does he have a title? Why are, they putting him, why are they putting him in main events? People just hated Minoru Suzuki. And, like, I understood some of it because of it. A lot of it, a lot of it was due to the fact that Suzuki-Goon interferes in so many matches. But if you separate that and just watch Minoru Suzuki matches, the guy never was bad. Even in Noah, if you just watch the Minoru Suzuki performances, this guy is having good matches, I would uh-huh. say. And here... Now that he gets the chance to showcase it, there's no Suzuki goon. They get sent mm-hmm. to the back pretty early by um, the young Lions. So it's just Okada and Suzuki in there 
telling this awesome story of Suzuki tearing apart Okada's neck. Forearm after forearm strike after forearm strike after forearm strike to Okada's neck. And he's grasping at it, gripping it, writhing in pain, um, reacting to nerve damage. Like, this mm. guy is hurt. And while Suzuki is this great, frightening beast that's just ruthless and going after Okada's neck, I like the selling performance by Okada. I like the fact that if you look at Okada's entire G1, he's slowly cracking. He is slowly getting more animated, more lively. And the Okada that a lot of people know is uh, kind of stoic. Mm-hmm. He's very down to business. He's here to win this match and go home. Here during this tour, Okada is very lively and loud and yelling and um, shaking the guardrails. So something so, is so sort something, of losing it. Yeah. So something is happening to Okada here, and I think this comes to a head that Okada loses his mind and goes crazy against a man that is already fucking like fucking crazy. Yeah. And I like that aspect of it is that. Suzuki kind of brings the madness out of Okada and that Suzuki in his wild facial expressions and hitting Okada with these awesome forearms, Okada gets hit, pops right back up and makes the same goofy face right in Minoru Suzuki. Okada can't even hold it back anymore. He has to just out crazy Minoru Suzuki. And I like the fact that they play with the chokes um, in the Rainmaker spots that they didn't, that they did in the February match. Um, Minoru Suzuki always brings something out of Okada, I think, in their matches, whether it be in G1 or the title stuff. But uh, this is no different, and I think what makes this so great, other than just having awesome action, the slaps in this match are probably the best I've seen in all year in a wrestling match. Um, the wobbly like selling from Okada is fantastic, I think. But other than just having great action, having a great build to a 30-minute draw, something that people did not see coming either, which is a which is a big aspect of it is that leading in people either thought Okada was going to beat Suzuki or lose to Suzuki. I don't think anyone anyone expected a draw to Minoru mm-hmm. Suzuki, a guy that he already beat during the year. Um, so other than that, another another than like really liking the booking is just this next step in the Okada story of the this guy was so hot out of the gate in the G1, having great matches and beating everybody, and then by the time we get to the last three last three shows. He has nothing. Like, mm-hmm. he's still one of the best wrestlers on the planet. He can still muster up offense. It's not like he's, like, down for the count and doesn't have anything to offer. But the Iron Man Okada that we saw throughout the first half of the year wasn't going to cut it in the G1 because people saw weakness in him and they were able to take advantage of it. Do you have anything to add on this? Uh, I really like the finishing stretch here. Um, most notably due to the fact that there is an incredible camera shot of the finish itself as uh, Okada's, I think, connected with the Rainmaker in, like, the final minute of the match. Um, and he's so out of it that, like, he doesn't go for the pinfall right away. He hits a get, Rainmaker, then just, like, like tumbles down. Uh, just collapses straight up. Uh, and Gato is, like, screaming at him to go over and pin Suzuki. And there's this nice long shot from an interesting camera angle. I'm not quite sure where it was, even. Uh, but you can see Gato, like, slapping the mat, screaming at Okada. And Okada does, like, this slow, la- uh, not lazy, but, like, this slow, weary turn to him. And is like, what are you... 
oh, and turns back around to Suzuki, and, and it's just it, the synapses aren't firing fast enough. The dude is so out of it that that he can't crawl over to this guy and make make a simple three count pinfall uh, before the time limit expires. And it's I mean, it's a re- it was a really cool finish, a real um, uh, cinematic finish. And I usually don't like to use that word in wrestling because I I find people associate it with uh, things that I find incredibly annoying. But here, it really lived up to the bill. Um, was this one of your favorite matches of G1? I didn't remember how you felt about it in the moment. Uh, I had it at, like, sixth, maybe. Um, it was, like, I I was sort of up and down on it. Like, there were, there were portions of it that I didn't enjoy. M- most of my usual complaints about Okada. But, like, it did. I mean, it ended up on my top 120, you know? Mm. All right. So, uh, what's your number five? My number five is a match that... Uh, I don't know, maybe I can take credit for making such a popular cult hit <laughs> among wrestling Twitter, because I don't think anyone else was sharing it around before I was. Um, but it's a match that I can't really be all that objective about. And it's uh, Timothy Thatcher taking on Daniel Makabe at 3-2-1 Battles, Wet Hot Seattle Summer. Uh, let me see where I have this at. I have this, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, this talk while I try to find it. Okay, um, so I said I can't really be objective about this match, and it's because uh, Dan is a friend of mine, like a, a personal friend, um, someone who I've been watching for years and years now. Uh, I think I, saw, I first saw Dan in 2009 or so, and he quickly became uh, not only one of my favorite wrestlers, but someone that I sort of looked up to and respected, someone who I thought was really cool, someone I thought was smart and kind, uh, someone worth knowing. And uh, over the years, as uh, I became closer friends with some of his friends as well, uh, he and I got closer, were able to meet each other for the first time in, in 2016, and have since become uh, good friends, and we, we communicate on oh, Facebook all the time. At, um 36. Sorry, I don't know. Okay. But, uh, Dan, as much as he's been my favorite wrestler, has not necessarily wrestled a whole lot of big names. Being someone based out of, uh, the Pacific Northwest, lives in Vancouver, wrestles mostly in Seattle for 321 Battle, this, this fairly small promotion. Oh, I didn't know uh, he lived in Vancouver. Is he Canadian or did he just move up there? No, he's Canadian. Okay. I didn't know that. Um, not a whole lot of wrestlers on the West Coast for that matter. Uh, Timothy Thatcher being one of them. And as soon as I became a big Thatcher fan, I was like, we should see about getting him to wrestle Dan. Uh, and something that was years in the making finally came to fruition here. I remember leading up to this, Dan would send me a message like two weeks out from wrestling Thatcher. And I'd be like, don't get hurt. (laughs) Like, don't do anything. Don't leave the house. Because I was I was so excited to wear see this bubble. happen. Wear a fucking bubble. Because I was like, I was so jazzed for this. Uh, jazzed to the point where, like, even if it sucked, I think I would have still liked it. But it didn't suck. Like, I think, honest to God, I think this was the best Timothy Thatcher performance of the year. Mm. Like, he is an incredible heel here. Someone who is disgusted 
by all the weird eccentricities of three, two, one. Battle. Talk about like three, like set, like set this up because three, two, one is very fucking weird, especially <laughs> for the world that Timothy Thatcher lives in. Uh huh. It's um, it's very much a, a promotion of Seattle. Uh, most of its fan base aren't necessarily wrestling fans, though. I think that's changed a little bit. Uh, as of late, like you can hear people doing like wrestling chants in this where they, uh, they used to not do that like a year ago. Um, uh, mostly hipsters, mostly young people in Seattle, but, uh, people who are very much, uh, looking for something to entertain them and are open to the weirdness, uh, that is inherent in, uh, some of the youth circles in Seattle. Um, I would compare this. I would compare this promotion sort of to Hood Slam, if anyone's familiar with the Oakland-based promotion <laughs> of Hood Slam. Uh, it's, it's, it's less crazy and especially not so drug related, but, uh, sort of in the same line there. There's a lot of like call and response with, uh, their live commentary over the PA system. Uh, they apparently have some, some referee who's like a lifeguard with like uh, a comedic French mustache. Um, Timothy Thatcher stomps out to the ring first here and approaches this lifeguard and is like, get the fuck out of here. I want a real referee. And it establishes him as this big heel who is not having anyone's shit in this promotion. Um, I think a lot of it here is that Thatcher just stands out like a sore thumb in this uh-huh. environment. There's... I believe someone might be um, have like one of those um, tubes you wear in the water around their waist in the crowd yeah. in this match. There's a whole bunch of people in weird outfits. There's a lot going on. And Timothy Thatcher is like, what the fuck did I get myself into? But mm-hmm. this doesn't take away from the fact that the crowd is awesome during this match. They're mm-hmm. very lively, very excited, very loud. It's This is like the back room of some bar, I think. And there's only like maybe 100 people here, but they are into it. And this is the first time I had um, seen Daniel Makabe wrestler, um, wrestle. And um, he comes out, I think he's wearing a baseball jersey. Uh, um, I forget what it is. I think it's a soccer kit, but it could it be. be soccer it's, he, he wears multiple sports jerseys. Yeah, yeah. He's wearing a jersey. Like He's very unassuming at first, and then you watch the match, and it's like, okay, this guy actually is keeping up with Timothy Thatcher. This guy can sell very well. This guy has great facial expressions. Like, okay, this isn't just like... Timothy Thatcher versus local guy. This is Timothy Thatcher who versus a guy who's actually pretty damn good himself. And I really like Thatcher's performance here too. I think uh very, very close up there with that Zach match from Evolve seventy nine with these um Timothy Thatcher performances where he just like he, yeah. he's he's emoting so much more than he usually is. He's he's like he he's almost goofy here. Like he's almost comically overselling, like <laughs> reacting to Makabe kicking out of the butterfly suplex and, and looking at the referee and whirling to look at the crowd and looking back at the referee and uh constantly sneering, constantly just like berating like smirking and staring daggers at uh, the faithful here in the 321 battalion it's just it, he is incredible here not to take away from close personal friend of mine Dino Makabe also having a good performance <laughs> um i really really enjoy the finish here mm-hmm. um to the point where i don't still know how to, it's like he did it was like a, a, a high angle Cattle mutilation. Yeah, like a seated, to, to, a, to a seated Tim Thatcher. Yeah, yeah. like a high-angle cattle, cattle mutilation. And when I saw this, uh, Brock can attest to it, I was watching imagine like, between, like, my thoughts, like, putting my thoughts in a little slack. I'm like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Screaming. I'm, I'm literally, like, dumbfounded. Like, 
what the fuck did he just do? Um, to the point where Brock actually had to um, go ask um, Dan yeah. where he got the move from or what, like, when the fuck he started doing that because uh, I was very perplexed and I needed to know instantly where this happened at because uh, I'm the biggest Daniel Bryan fan ever and seeing mm-hmm. any variation of a cattle mutilation is guaranteed to make me scream. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, the post-match is like... <laughs> it's like the best thing. Uh, yeah. So Makabe um, actually makes Timothy Thatcher submit, and the three, two, one um, crowd goes completely berserk. And uh, Timothy Thatcher grabs a Rinkov towel or a Rinkov scarf, whatever it was, and uh, cuts this short promo. I forgot exactly what he said. Do you know? I've got it. I've got it here. Yeah. Hang on. Uh. All right, so uh, Tim picks up the the t- uh, the, the ring comp, uh scarf that says "Dimata ist Heilig," which he explains in German. Uh, this scarf says "Dimata ist Heilig," which in German means "This mat is sacred." And if there's someone here in three two one battle that believes this mat is sacred, it is Daniel Makabe. And he hands him the scarf, and Dan starts to break down and cry, and it is a whole lot for me to take in. Yeah, even for me that had like no real emotional connection um to Daniel before seeing this match. Um still don't know him very well, but mm-hmm. watching it like watching him like break down after getting to face this big name, would mm-hmm. you say it was like the biggest match of his career up to that point? Oh totally, of course. Okay. I wasn't sure how many like pr- how many big names he got to face prior, even though I know like the Pacific Northwest scene isn't really um sure. known for that sort kind of stuff happening, but Thatcher Custis short promo, uh Give him the give him the scarf. Doesn't really do anything else. Just walks out and just lets Daniel have this moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the fact that it resonated with me so much without even really having a a connection to Daniel, I think really speaks to like how great this match is and the fact that it spoke to so many people since uh, it's made the rounds. And you should be happy that like you did get to like pimp this match out mm. and um, make it something that was sought out by so many people because I see it floating around near the title of match of the year list. Yeah. And look, I know for a fact that nobody would have seen it or talked about it. Um, if you weren't the one sharing it around. So you should, what, what, when I shared it, I don't think it was a public YouTube link. (laughs) It was not. (laughs) I don't think it was. It was not a public YouTube link. Um, so, um, whenever I tweeted about it or whenever someone else tweeted about it or when you wrote your review, people were like, okay, where is this match? Where is this match? And eventually I think it became public, right? Yes, it did. It is public currently on 321 Battles YouTube page. So go watch it now if you haven't seen it. But uh, yeah, it's a match that uh, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I'm glad that it made your list so highly because I know you can't really separate the yeah. connection and how great the match, but the but the match is fucking great too. Like, but yeah, but fuck it. Like that's what wrestling is about. It's about these personal connections. It's like we opened up this podcast talking about your relationship with the undertaker and it's not like you two are pals but it's 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 all about like it's all about what means the most to to you and what means the most to me is is my friendship with dan and getting to see him have this awesome match with someone that we both have wanted to see him wrestle for a very long time so speaking of personal connections my number four is tyler Bate versus pete dunn from nxt takeover chicago okay let me see where i had this it wasn't too much lower uh, probably you had it pretty high, higher than I, I had it. Would. I had it at thirty-five. Yeah, that's higher than I thought you would have it. Um, yeah. Uh, this is a match in which 
I came home from work and didn't see anything about the takeover show. I didn't know any of the results. I didn't know what people had liked from the show, but I knew that I really liked Tyler B and Pete Dunn, and uh-huh. I was really excited to watch that. So we get to this match, and already bruiserweight chants are just flooding the All-State Arena. Mm. Like, my mouth is agape watching this because I've watched these guys, I'm respectively, for like three years now. Um, I watch so much uh, UK wrestling that, like, I'm, I'm seeing these guys at least, like, five or six times a month, like, on these shows. Mm-hmm. You know, they're everywhere. So I have a real connection to these guys, a real connection to um, Tyler Bate after seeing him when he was first, when he was 17 years old and how, like, meteoric his rise has been in just in 2017. Did he have um? Did he have a mustache back then? Yes, he did. But, like, the mustache has always been his thing. Always, always been a fucking mustache guy. <laughs> he, didn't start, he didn't start growing his beard until this year. Yeah. Like, actually, had a lot. I don't know. It's, a, it's a good beard, too. Fuck him. Why does, <laughs> he, why does he look so good? Um, so, I watched this match, and it's great action, great storytelling, um, a more condensed version of what they would eventually do on the December um, 20th NXT episode where they run uh-huh. through the technical wrestling, um, great striking, great storytelling, great emotion and selling from Tyler Bate, um, great vicious arm and hand work by Pete Dunne. Mm-hmm. And they do this all in the span of like 14 minutes. And for a match that was announced short notice for this takeover show that didn't have any build on NXT TV, mm-hmm. they go out there and they arguably have the most well-received match of the year. Totally. Like, it's a match that I believe on WWE.com um, was, like, finished number one in match of the year voting, and this is including main roster stuff. Mm. And understand, like, NXT stuff has done well before, but, like, people, like, the main roster television would mention, like, Sasha Banks and Bayley. And, and these these weren't even people who were built up on NXT. Mm-hmm. These people aren't NXT regulars, at least one, yeah. and still aren't up to this point. So, for me, watching this awesome match and just like seeing the All State Arena just like lose their minds for these guys, uh, people that I know a lot of people probably hadn't even seen these guys wrestle before. Mm-hmm. I don't think the UK tournament did that well on the on the um, WWE Network. So, like to see these guys with little advertisement go up there and just make the most of their time and make the most memorable thing that happened in WWE this year as far as an in-ring match uh, meant a lot to me. I think the match itself is great. Mm-hmm. But like, it's a whole bunch of pride. Like, watching these two young guys, these two hungry, young, immensely talented dudes go out there and they were given time. It's not like, a, it's not like they got shorted. Like, 14 minutes is a lot of time. But they made the most of it. They made the most out of not being that important. They made the most out of uh, having JR on commentary for their match, even though JR did not really do that well for them. He did not. I thought Nigel McGuinness was pretty solid, but JR didn't help much. But uh, if you just listen to the crowd and just listen to everything they say, whether it be for Pete Dunne or chanting for Tyler Bate or chanting This Is Awesome or chanting, um, uh, UK mm. or chanting for the, or chanting this is progress. Like 
whatever. Like, that fucking blows my mind, man. Like, I was watching Progress for, like, in 2014 when they first put up that uh, Chapter 13 show because the um, video quality was off the standards, and they put it out for free on YouTube. And since then, I've seen everything they've done. I went back and watched all their old shows. I've seen the Endeavor shows. I've seen pretty much everything that company has done. Mm-hmm. So to hear a full Allstate Arena just chanting, this is progress, while these guys are in the ring, like, that is fucking mind-boggling to me. Regardless of this WWE relationship and how deep it actually is, like, this company started from nothing, and it wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. And they got to this point to where, like, 10,000-plus people were just chanting for this company's name because these two guys who are synonymous with the British independent wrestling scene and that company in particular put on a match that good. And it's a timeless match. I think it's a match that people are going to look back on for years and years and years to come. There's a defining match for Pete Dunne and Tyler Bate. This is going to be the match where people think about when they're finally on a Raw or a SmackDown or on a main roster pay-per-views. This is going to be the match that people think about. And I'm happy I got to watch it unspoiled. I got the, I'm happy that I got to come home from a pretty shitty day at work and just watch this and just watch this match and these two guys uh steal the show on a pretty goddamn loaded takeover. A pretty good show that happened that had the um DIY breakup on something something as as big as the DIY breakup and Tommaso Ciampa giving this like ruthless beat down to Johnny Gargano, a match that made my list still. Mm-hmm. This was the most talked about thing to come out of that show. And I'm glad that these two guys got a chance to do that. Alright, um, if you don't have anything to add, we can move on to your number four. Uh, I don't think I can uh, top anything you said, so I'll just move on to uh, something I noted earlier. My highest-ranked CWF Mid-Atlantic match of the year. It's Trevor Lee defending his heavyweight title against Alex Daniels from their uh, 80s night slash Saturday night CWF event. Ooh, I knew you loved this match. I didn't know it would be this high, but I had it at 59. <laughs> I really did love this. Uh, uh I think I'm alone in it being this high for me, but um, I think it's a really interesting match in that it tells a really unique story with a young man that I was very much enamored by in 2017, uh, that being Alex Daniels, who is very new to CWF here, this being his second match. Uh, His first match was a qualifying match for that six-man scramble in February that we talked about. Uh, Against Chip Day, which was a really good match. Mm -hmm. Short little thing that did good business. Uh, It looked like Daniels was going to come out in the end there, but he took too long gloating before hitting his finish, and Chip Day was able to roll him up and pin him and go on to have interesting interactions with Trevor Lee in that six-man scramble, which itself led to a high-profile actual one-on-one singles match against Trevor Lee that we also talked about. Now, were you going to touch on, like, the promo that Alex Daniels cut? I've um, got it. I've got it all here. Right, <laughs> I've got sure. it all here, Quinn. Uh, Daniels, uh, a cocky young man, uh, both in and out of the ring, uh, uh, thought that he deserved that one-on-one match with Trevor and lobbied for it and eventually got it here on this big show uh, where neither one of them are main eventing. Um, and before 
the show or before the match, he cuts this awesome little promo backstage in which he describes uh, Trevor's matches as too long and says his own matches are these small bite sized uh, little slices of heaven, which sort of comes across as just like a funny heel promo in the moment. But as you watch this match, it, it, becomes clear that that's actually sort of part of Daniels' mentality in that he is uh, a fast-paced, high-flying, high-impact wrestler, a very explosive wrestler. Um, but as with his prior match in CWF, he has to be careful not to rush in here because Trevor can easily swamp him, can easily catch him in some sort of a roll-up and pin him down one, two, three. But he also knows, uh, being that he has studied Trevor and Trevor is like this, this high profile wrestler. Um, he knows that the longer this match goes, the more it favors the champion being that Trevor is the king of the long game. So he has to dance this, this fine little line in which he can't rush in too quickly and he can't let this match go too long. And watching this guy who I do just like mechanically as a wrestler, um, someone who I think has a lot of poise for only being a couple years into this business and someone who I think brings, um, a lot of gravity to, uh, a style that I'm mostly done with in American indie wrestling. Um, watching him tell this sort of story against the best, champion going in America right now was awesome. Everything they do here, whether Trevor is in control or whether Alex is in control, uh, whether Trevor is uh, coming from beneath or whether uh, Daniels is selling from underneath, everything they do here is incredible. Um, watching Daniels slowly come to realize that he is losing control of the match as Trevor builds up steam, as he lets him uh, continue on and, um, get the match going longer and longer and longer was awesome. He's another guy that I think is not afraid to look sort of weak as a champion or as a heel. Um, someone who plays with a weird gimmick that he got in AEW in uh, AIW and makes it work. Um, partially just due to the fact that acting like Ben Affleck means you get to be a dickhead. And I, I guess this guy's really good at being a dickhead. Um, Eventually, he's just scrambling to try to avoid all of Trevor's big moves, but really all it takes is one. And in the end, Trevor traps him in the STF and immediately, wholeheartedly, disgustedly, like so let down with himself, Daniels taps with both hands. And it, I mean, it was a match that just like knocked me on my ass. It was a match that capped off an incredible year for this young man and Alex Daniels, someone I'm so glad isn't actually retiring. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was just another awesome match from Trevor Lee. No, a big part of this too is that you mentioned that Alex Daniels was not a CWF regular. Mm-hmm. The way Alex Daniels got this match is he cut a promo that they put on YouTube, calling out Trevor Lee, challenging him for a CWF title match. Now, because he isn't a regular, people were just kind of looking at him like, "Okay, you fucking weirdo, are you sure about this?" <laughs> so, sure enough, he gets this match, and commentary kind of spends it thinking like. Uh, is Alex Daniels for real? Like, mm-hmm. does he actually like know what he's getting into? And like, for most of this match, I would say he understands fully the situation that he's in. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand how quickly things can turn around facing Trevor Lee. Um, I think this match does feature a lot of the things that you do usually hate in wrestling: some mm-hmm. big kick out, totally. shocked face, look at the uh, camera, like 
stuff from Alex Daniels. And there's one in particular that I dislike because Daniels does this incredible brain buster into the corner, like probably the sickest move in wrestling right now. Um, and uh, all too often he uses it as just a big falsy, uh, which really stinks because looking at it, it's the sort of thing that should put somebody on the shelf for months. It's the sort of thing that should like injure people every single time. Uh, and sadly, he doesn't get the most out of it. But you're not wrong in that like there's a lot of uh, – a lot of work rate stuff here. A lot of like star rating stuff here. Um, but other change I think the acting here is fantastic. I think Alex Daniels is a guy that people don't really give credit enough for being one of the most at, at, like athletic guys in mm-hmm. wrestling. I'm um, good enough to where you can keep up with Trevor Lee, who is a very athletic guy, but doesn't really show it off that often in mid of Mid Atlantic. So these two just really go out there and have like probably the most most athletic spectacle of a match that Trevor Lee has had since Andrew Everett, mm-hmm. and. I really like that aspect. I like the aesthetic of the of the CWF Saturday Night shows because it um, makes the footage a little bit more grainy and VCR-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the promo that Trevor Lee cuts, like some coked-up 80s wrestler. Very shouty. Yes, I love the promo. I love everything <laughs> about the presentation of this. Um, didn't hit me nearly as hard as it hit you, but... Um, and I kind of wish Alex Daniels did stick around and didn't have this whole um, conflict on whether or not he was going to retire or not. Yeah. Which probably um, has something to do with like where he was getting booked. Yeah. But um, it was a great match. And since Alex Daniels is back, I'm hoping that maybe he gets used more regularly in CWF because I do think he's like, you know, worthy of that kind of booking, uh, at least on the same level of someone like Logan Easton, L- Logan Easton LaRue, who I think he's mm-hmm. better than that gets booked over there. But, yeah, a phenomenal match. Um, all right, top three. This has taken a really fucking long time to get to <laughs> the last three matches. So I'm going to go with sort of an unorthodox approach here. Okay. If anyone knows me, my matches should not be a secret. Oh. <laughs> so in order, I will tell you my three, two, and one. Because it's all from the same pairing, Brock. Because okay. your matches are different. I'm going to let you just go with the regular approach. Is that fine? Okay, so you're going to reveal all three of yours right now. Mm-hmm, and I'll wait towards the end to go through all three of them. Okay, so you want me to just run down all three of mine right now in a row? Uh, not in a row. You okay, see. So you- <laughs> okay, it's going to be in a row regardless. But I'm saying I'll wait towards the end when you're done your three to talk about mine. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so... My number three is a match you brought up uh, a little while ago that uh, I wasn't totally surprised that I had higher than you, um, but uh, it's Kazuchika Okada defending the IWGP Heavyweight Championship against Katsuyori Shibata from the Sakura Genesis show. And I had that at six. And yeah. I think you have a, a lot of people have a very complicated relationship with this yeah. match. Um, oddly enough, it's probably the most universally liked match that New Mm -hmm. Japan has had in the Bushy Road era. Mm -hmm. But obviously, I think think of this millennium. Yeah. But obviously, this match had uh, repercussions that have been felt since um, this match has happened in April 2017. So if you want to dive into the match, go ahead. Um, Try not to say anything completely embarrassing here. Uh, this is, I mean, this yeah, I is... I'm about to embarrass myself completely, so I'm sure. Get it all out there. <laughs> I mean, this is a match that's hard to watch. Um, 
because of things that were readily apparent, even, I mean, I didn't watch this live. I watched this a couple hours afterwards. Um, and I think I had already known about what had happened to Shibata. I think, I think that's a good note is that I watched this match live. So like probably like my perception, totally. I still have an attachment to watching that match live and then kind of like waking up and then watching it again, uh-huh. but then, then finding out what happened like later. Yeah. So I watched this a little bit after the fact and, um, seeing, seeing the state of Shibata directly after the match, something I've clipped and put, posted on YouTube for, uh, article purposes. Uh, that was really rough. Um, and it, it seems that that sort of thing had to come after what is an all timer performance from Katsuyori Shibata, someone who I've waxed and waned on over the years, someone who, uh, I really enjoyed as a wrestler a couple of years ago and who through a combination of my own taste changing and, 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 uh, his leaning into certain aspects of his style, uh, I sort of grew away from, but, uh, watching him go through the new Japan cup and face off against Okada here in, um, a match where he really goads Okada into performing on his level. And dare I say, gets pretty damn close to it. Uh, watching that happen was just incredible. Um, Shibata is the real appeal here in that, like, uh, watching him <laughs> lay into this dude who I don't like, who I've had a very complicated relationship with over the last couple of years, uh, was awesome. And Shibata is, like, laying it out all, all on the line here, throwing these incredible strikes, um, especially when he's doing the chest kicks towards the end when he's got a hold of Okada's wrist. Um, but he's all, he's doing this in, uh, in service of trying to get a fight out of the champion. Um, because Shibata doesn't get anything out of just winning. Like, obviously, he wants to win this title, this title that has eluded him his entire career. Um, this title that he hasn't even... I think this was, like, his first title shot since returning. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so, obviously, that means a whole lot to him. But more than that, he wants the rush of, of a well-fought victory. Uh, and so he really lays into, uh, Okada here with, um, all sorts of strikes, including some really mean slaps to the back of the head. And that's really what wakes Okada up. Um, and they start teeing off on each other. Eventually Shibata, uh, extends himself a little too far, both in and out of kayfabe. One, he reverses a rainmaker attempt, uh, with a couple of boots and follows it up with, uh, a very gruesome headbutt um, that may or may not have, you know, uh, may or may not have accelerated a, a condition he was already well towards, um, well towards suffering from. Uh, shortly thereafter, he continues to uh, sort of taunt Okada, doing like a a ripcord slap trying to make fun of the Rainmaker. Um, um, I think something I like about this a lot is that this also follows the fact that I was like Tanahashi had done like um, a ripcord like sling blade before. Uh-huh. But Omega had just did the ripcord knee at yes. Kingdom 11. So here, instead of doing anything fancy like a sling blade, a sling blade or even like a bicycle knee, he opts, I think he actually like, might have just, like spit in his hand or like, like something before he did it. I don't so recall. It looked like he did something with his hand 
and then just goes all the way across Okada's face with the slap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he, a and, touch. He, and he doesn't stop there. Uh, as I mentioned before, he lays into him with a couple of gruesome chest kicks uh, while he's still got a hold of the man's wrist. Um, and it's eventually his undoing because Okada's whole story this entire year was surviving, was, was, uh, was enduring against challengers who had, uh, had him beat in certain aspects of wrestling. Uh, and Shibata tries to, I think bounce off the ropes for some move, but he doesn't let go of Okada's wrist when he does it, which allows Okada to pull him back in for a short arm rainmaker that turns the tide in a big way. And, um, try as he might, Shibata tries to survive the next couple of moves, but, uh, but after that short arm rainmaker, like he's got nothing left in the tank. Um, and Okada goes for the full-on Rainmaker, the full Twist Boy. And Shibata gets his hand up and tries to strike in a last feeble attempt to reverse the move. But Okada strikes first and downs him with the clothesline and pins him. Um, it is an all-timer of a performance by Katsuri Shibata, but I don't think the impact is felt nearly as much if he's not facing the... Um, hmm. Okada, he's not. I yeah. mean, you can have this match against Tanahashi, and he did a couple of years ago. Sure, yeah, and those were great, and those are awesome matches. But this match in particular really shakes the foundation because of who he's doing it against. Uh-huh. And I think because of that, Okada steps up here. I think this is Okada's best performance ever. Um, I rewatched a lot of Okada this year. This is a mm. career year for Okada. I have mm-hmm. matches higher than this, but Okada's per- best performance is in this match. The reason why Kazuya Shibata's kicks when he's holding on to his wrist look so impactful is because Okada sells them like he has nothing left. He mm. is dead. He is on his knees. He cannot get up. He can't even get up to try to do a Rainmaker to do anything. As Kazuya Shibata just kicks away at him for about a minute straight. And I watched this match live and I'm just like, oh my God, Okada might lose. Yeah. Because the way he's selling it is so like, it's so believable. It's just, he just got his chest kicked into oblivion that this guy just can't take it. And Okada is great selling. Like he's just getting outmatched and outgunned in every aspect of professional wrestling. Like mm-hmm. on the mat in strike exchanges, uh, even in speed, like Shibata's just had speeding him here. Mm-hmm. You could say even in toughness almost because Kashiro Shibata tanks a rainmaker. Yeah. The first rainmaker Okada hits on him. Okada, I mean, Shibata doesn't go down. Yeah. Like, for as many, for like a handful of people that have kicked out of the Rainmaker, at least like three at this point, for someone to completely eat it and not yeah. go down has to be demoralizing. And Okada's just like, what the fuck is going on? Shibata is grimacing in pain and he's shaking his head like, no, we're not doing this today. And Okada just has to like survive. And that is like, you, t- you hit the nail on the head there is that this really is the Okada survival match. Mm. because this guy that has him beat everywhere, he just has to find a way to win. Um, it's a stupid theory, but, like, watching these guys, like, do these form exchanges, and, like, I've seen Okada's forms are, like, notably not the best. I don't think they're awful, but they're not, like, Hideki Suzuki. They're not Kazuri Shibata. They're not uh, anyone that throws a great form. They're fine pro wrestling forms. But watching these two just hit each other, it almost felt like Okada knew that he couldn't compete mm. and that Kashiro Shibata had him beat there, but he's trying, he's trying. Um, I love Okada, like switching his temperament 
Um, there's a very, very big sumo hall crowd, a mm-hmm. complete sellout for this match. They are here for this match because the semi-main event was a junior title match. The third match was Zack versus Goto. They were there for Zack, man. <laughs> they are here for this match. They're here to see Shibata win, too. So, at some point, Okada gets pissed off. And this is where we see glimpses of his uh, heel character. Is that Okada is, like, stomping and standing on Shibata in the corner. And the crowd starts, starts raining down booze. And Okada just, like, looks up like, oh, oh, okay. So, this guy can beat the shit out of me, and that's fine, right? Mm. So I really love this Okada performance here. Um, it's a timeless match. It really is a classic. And I, watching it live really does make my perception of it a lot different. Because, I mean, it sucks to say it now, but like watching the aftermath of that match, you're like, wow, that's some really great selling from Kashiro Shibata. Sure. Because you didn't know. Exactly. Like, I didn't know. So like, at, at the time, I'm thinking, man, that's some really great selling from Kashiro Shibata. He's selling the concept of exhaustion so well. I'm so like, yeah. wow. And then I find out hours later that, oh, shit, Shibata collapsed backstage. He's at the hospital. Then after that, it's life-threatening. Then after that, um, he's losing vision. And I think he might have been in a coma. I'm not sure. Like, And, like, it sucks to, to look back and think, wow, like, because this pro wrestling thing kind of suckered me in so much, I actually thought that this guy was selling when he was actually near the brink of death. Mm. But um, it's a great match, and I understand why that make that may make um make people uncomfortable. Yeah, like, like it's how close this actually. This wasn't just like him getting hurt. This was an actual close call to death. Yeah. Um, so I understand all of that, but. At its core, this was the biggest match of Kashiro Shibata's life. Um, hopefully the last match he has. Hopefully, Dear God, yes. I hope so. I'm hoping he doesn't come back. Um, if this was his last match, which, I'm, again, I'm hoping it is, like, I don't think anyone could have gone out on a higher note as far as, like, in the ring. Even uh-huh. if what we got uh, in the real-life circumstance was tragedy. Um, do you want to do your number two? Okay. Uh, my number two is uh, a match that I had at number one for nine whole months uh, and only was bumped down in like the third week of December. It, it took, it took, it came down to the wire. Uh, it's a match we've been talking about all over these episodes. And it's a match I love. It's a match you love. It's Ilya Dragunov taking on Walter in the finals of 16 karat gold. And I had this at 40. Um, so, leading into this show, uh, we had a lot of ideas. You know, you, me, Tim, all the other people we know who are WXW fans. Um, we had a lot of ideas about who was going to win the tournament. Uh, we theorized, hey, David Starr could win it. He's very popular at the moment, and uh, it's it's one of the things he hasn't yet accomplished in WXW. We thought, um, you know, Walter's, like, perennial challenger, like, he doesn't necessarily gain anything by winning it, but, like, you know, he's he is WXW. Uh, he might well win it. Uh, we were throwing around other names like Avalanche, uh, John Klinger. Like, Matt Riddle is there. Matt Riddle, totally, like, always could could make a, uh, a long run in any sort of independent tournament. Um, Cody Rhodes is there. Like, Jesus, yeah. That would have been real mad if Cody won. Like, there's some like, legitimate names in here. Yeah, but uh, one name that we did consider 
was Ilya Dragunov. Uh, and after the first night was done and Star got eliminated, we were looking around and we're like, I don't know, it could be a couple different people, but like, people are really into Ilya. Like, since, since leaving Cerberus, people have gotten real behind him. Uh, and when the third day dawned and it came down to four names, uh, all of whom we have just mentioned here, Walter, Matt Riddle, John Klinger, we were like, okay, yeah, Ilya's going to win this tournament. And the footage doesn't get released for a couple days after this, like six days or some shit. Um, so we all come into this tournament and come into watching this footage knowing he's going to win. And that certainly flavors your perception of the match itself. But, like, watching this, I have never believed in someone as much as I believed in Ilya Dragunov watching this match. Like... It, it wasn't. It wasn't the fact that I knew he got the victory in the end. It wasn't the fact that I'd seen pictures of him holding up the trophy. It, it, it wasn't the fact that like this match was structured in such a way that he was going to have a big fiery babyface comeback. It was the fact that I bought in to Ilya Dragunov. I bought into this weird, pale, pudgy, um, just odd-looking Rusky winning this tournament beating the guy in WXW beating a guy who had dismantled uh, several capable opponents throughout the tournament with a strategy that is almost specifically designed to counteract Ilya's best strengths. Um, Someone who had busted him open with chops, like turned his chest into raw meat with these chops. Someone who was just killing him here. Someone who was shooting him down with boots and with lariats. But through it all, I, I forgot the fact that Ilya did win, and I just believed that he was going to win. And that is that is an undescribable feeling that I've tried to put into words, and I don't think I've I've really pulled it off. But this match this match made me feel Quinn. Yeah, this match really is like magic, and like we can like fawn over Ilya Dragunov's performance as much as we want here, but. Again, this is a match that does not succeed the way it does without Walter being that roadblock. Mm-hmm. Walter being like this ultimate form of what we think Ilya Dragunov is. It just tank that hits hard and keeps going. And it can't be understated. People have seen this match. This is, this match is the reason why people are watching WXW the way they are. Totally. It is. This match got such a reputation and a cap of such a great 16 carat, the best one in like 10 years. Um, the people are like, wow. And it's a match that got like Walter where, to where he is. Mm-hmm. And it's a match that we touched on it with the John Klinger, that of the John Klinger versus Ilya match. That, like, it's a match that I wish got Ilya more places, but we already know that his mind is, 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 is other more important things. But Walter here is phenomenal. He is mm-hmm. terrifying. He cuts him off. Like the cut the cutoffs in this match are kind of like the least talked about thing here. Mm. Because Ilya mounts some fantastic offense when he gets going. And then whether it be with a boot or a lariat, Walter just cuts or the, at the back. Oh my god, the power bomb on the apron? Mm-hmm. Like, or, so gross. Or um the or the flying boot off the top. Um when Ilya's coming up with it for an axe handle, Walter just swats him down with a boot. Um Ilya has fantastic offense. So when he's getting fired up and angry and trying to match some offense and he hits this uh discus chop to Walter, it looks fucking incredible. Um you talk about the imprint, 
of Walter's hand ripping open Ilya's chest, but Ilya does the same thing to Walter. He leaves his handprints all over this man's chest. Um, it's a match that really is held because both guys are so pale that the brutality of it really does show. <laughs> That's like, true. The brutality of it is so visible that even without like something like blood, yeah. you just see how much wear and tear this match had on these guys. And the reason why I have this match so relatively low compared to how much I like it is the fact that I think the finish is like so flat that it's like, well, it's funny you say that. I think it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, in that uh, Ilya keeps going for the torpedo Moscow, his like his his running uh, headbutt finish that <laughs> always looks wild, always looks like a different move every single time. Sometimes, um, it's, sometimes it's an uppercut, sometimes it's an elbow, sometimes it's like a senton. <laughs> it's 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 real wacky, uh, and he keeps going for it because uh, his entire thing is that this guy survived getting his skull crushed in. Oh, uh, and. You might like this is Ilya's only big move compared to Walter, who uh-huh. won every uh, match in the tournament with a different move. Yeah, uh, and Ilya, Ilya's whole thing is he's unbesiegbar. He's he's indestructible uh, because he survived getting his skull caved in early in his wrestling career, and his entire thing is that he's going to break everyone in his path on the dome of his skull. Um, and he keeps going for this move because it's all he's got. And Walter keeps avoiding it or he keeps reversing it into something. Uh, he kicks out of it, which is... Kicks out of it something. Part of it is that Ilya had beat everybody with this move. Um, and then Walter was the first person to kick out of it, which is something you just do really... We mentioned it with the um, massive product um, tag team finish. Uh-huh. The tag league, um, and that they had this um, spike pile driver finish. And then D- David Starr does a suicide dive. Is that every match was won with that. And it wasn't even close. Yeah. Towards the end, there's the same thing with Ilya and um, Torpedo Moscow. Is that once you once you hit that, you knew it was over. So but Walter Wal- kicking out was really impactful. Walter kicks out of it, and he 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 reverses his second attempt on it uh, into a sleeper hold, which he then turns into this really gross uh, fire thunder driver. Mm. Um, and Ilya survives it, but like Walter is already on him when he kicks out, and uh, the crowd at this point is changing Ilya's name, and you get to see a rare moment of emotion or a rare moment of anger from Walter, Um, and he keeps, like, egging the crowd on to, like, keep chanting his name as if to say, like, come on, he's already dead. Like, what the fuck are your chants going to do? And he he sort of, not coyly, but, like, mockingly, uh, slaps Ilya a couple times, and it sends him back into the ropes, and he comes charging back with another torpedo mask Moscow. And, and that's what does it. And I understand how it feels flat, but I, I loved, I loved Walter, like finally showing some humanity there. Finally, like, uh, acknowledging a crowd that most of the time he just sort of looks at and poses in front of, and finally getting, uh, some just desserts after, after, uh, shutting people down throughout this entire tournament. Is this the best Walter match you've ever seen? Uh, I don't know, because, like, man has had some incredible matches over the years. Um, I really do need to revisit that Outsiders versus Hot and Spicy match that y'all love from a couple years back, because it didn't hit me the way it hit y'all uh, the first time I watched it. Um, but it's up there, man. Mm. All right. Um, and what is your number one? Uh, my number one, something that only became my number one, 
real late in the game. Uh, and, I so, and I didn't realize what it was until I started thinking yeah. about it when you had Ilya, uh, Ilya Walter at two. Yeah. Um, it's a match that was built up for years. Uh, it's a sequel to a match that you and I both had on our list a little lower. Um, and I think it's sort of the natural endpoint of a style that basically got me into wrestling. Uh, it's Matt Tremont taking on Nick Gage in the finals of GCW's Nick Gage Invitational 2. And I should have had it on my list, but by the time I made my 120 and I looked at it, I, I was like, I don't, I didn't know where to squeeze it on, but I don't blame I, I, I do think it's better than a tournament, tournament survival match. And like, as someone that is not as into the deathmatch theme as you are, mm-hmm. I agree with the assessment that like, you can watch this, and at least for American deathmatch wrestling, this is like the natural endpoint. Like, okay, where do we go from here? Um, so in the previous match between these two, uh, a match half a decade in the making, um, a match between the two greatest of all time in deathmatch wrestling, Matt Tremont wound up staring at the lights as the referee counted the pinfall. Uh, and the whole thing about Tremont and this retirement tour was that he had accomplished everything there was to accomplish, had won every tournament, had won every title, had beaten everybody. And he comes face-to-face with Nick Gage for the first time, and he can't beat him. And Matt Tremont decides that he can't go out that way. And in a desperate attempt at a rematch at securing his legacy as as one of the greatest of all time, uh, he announces that he's going to defend the GCW Heavyweight Championship throughout this tournament. And on top of that, it's going to be his final deathmatch tournament ever. So high stakes coming into this one. Tremont makes it through to the finals of the tournament. Nick Gage, uh, likewise, makes it to the finals of the tournament of his tournament, the one named after him, uh, the one he didn't get to participate in during the inaugural 2015 version. Um, and this is a cinder block canvas deathmatch, something that had never been done before in America. Uh, in which the canvas and the padding of the ring was stripped back, revealing the bare boards, on top of which were stacked uh, a whole bunch of concrete blocks end-to-end. Um, hearing that, it's it's sort of gruesome. It's sick. Uh, it's really a perverse match. Watching these two guys, who had already wrestled several times throughout the day, watching these two guys who've had their own litany of health problems over the year. Oh, um, Matt, going into this final, Matt Tremont has a gross, gross hematoma on, on his, oh, like, it was smack dab in the middle of his, of his forehead. Uh-huh. And just a couple months before this, Tremont had uh, sort of a very hush-hush injury uh, and a very serious injury. Was it a staph infection? Uh, uh, not on... <laughs> Not on the microphone. Uh, something something that uh, people thought was going to cost him his matches with Tank and with Etsushi Onita. Uh, so, like, something very serious, obviously. Um, so, coming into this match, watching these two crash down onto Cinderblock, um, just a whole bunch of Cinderblocks, like concrete, asphalt, you know. Uh, watching them do that over and over and over again as one man is 20 years into his deathmatch career and another man is very seriously injured at this point. Um, it's sort of diabolical and it's something I definitely can't, 
approve of, uh, something I, I shouldn't endorse something. I honestly shouldn't have at number one on my list, something that, uh, I, I shouldn't even be talking about. Um, but I guess that's what makes this so special because it's the two greatest deathmatch wrestlers ever swinging for the fences, uh, letting it all hang out in the twilight of their career. Um, Tremont has repeatedly said he's not actually retiring, but is just going to step back from the ring a little bit. But I can't imagine he goes much longer, despite Nikki's um, vigor and renewed life in 2017. He's 20 years deep into a career, and I can't imagine he goes much longer either. And MLJ on commentary is not exaggerating when he says that this match is taking years off of the lives of both these men. Uh, several points throughout this match, I thought to myself, uh, Nick Gage won't be able to ever walk again because he is crashing down onto this concrete and is slumping over and not moving. Um, it's hard to watch, but to see two guys who I love, two guys who I respect, uh, despite how fucking stupid doing this was seeing them try to go out on their own terms here towards the end of their careers. Uh, it really meant a lot. The finish, um, sees Matt Tremont survive a whole lot of stuff in and out of the ring. And eventually Nick Gage has a squad of, uh, of staff people bring in a, a despicable construction uh, a heinous, big, like <laughs> heinous is a good word for it. Uh, you, you ever hear people talk about the hell in a cell in WWE? It's, it's that sort of terminology. It's a big wine rack, you know, uh, a wine rack you'd see in a restaurant that's meant to hold dozens and dozens and dozens of bottles of wine. But instead of wine, they hold dozens and dozens and dozens of light tubes. And Nikki sets it up in the middle of the ring. And he puts Tremont up in the corner after already having done a fucking superplex onto the concrete uh, with, yeah. with these two, like they come down looking like jumpers from a high rise building fire. Like it's so uncomfortable and they go up again. Nikki puts Tremont on the top rope. He climbs up there with them. He's not looking at the camera. He's not looking at the crowd that are cheering for him. Uh, his head is down. His eyes are down. He sort of embraces Tremont when he gets to the middle rope for a second, trying to, you know, fix his balance, but it's, it's a real tender moment befitting of something like this. And he gets to the top and he sort of steals himself for what's about to happen as Tremont slips free, uh, gets underneath him and brings him down with a power bomb through all the light tubes and down onto the center blocks for the victory. Um, you were talking about in their previous meeting, the, the aesthetic of the game changer world venue uh, and how dimly lit it is and how, how it really makes these uh, light tube shattering moments pop. And as, as mercury vapor and glass shards fly throughout the air and as a couple hundred people cheer, uh, these two evaluate whether or not they can keep on living. Uh, and thankfully they find themselves able. Matt Tremont's the first to his feet. He, uh, he winces as he pulls himself up by the ropes. He spent so much of his life in between, um, raises his title above his head as the crowd chants his name and sighs this, this, this weary sigh, uh, this worldly sigh, the sigh that has seen a lot and done a lot. He brings the King to his feet and says, um, that he carried death wrestling for all those years 
on his back for Nikki, for people like Nikki, for those who came before him. And he's, and he's honored by, by being able to have another match with the King, Nick Gage. Uh, and Gage takes the microphone. Um, a very proud man, a very angry man. Uh, and with frustration clearly bubbling underneath his skin, he looks Tremont in the eyes and he says, you're the fucking man, Matt Tremont. And he tosses him the microphone and walks back to the locker room, no longer the man himself. And I, I, if I never watched another death match ever again, I'd be fine because I don't, I don't think anything's ever going to touch dramatically or emotionally what these two did here. It's impressive to me that game changer wrestling mm-hmm. of all promotions, a promotion run by Brett Lauderdale <laughs> had a story in a feud built so well. Mm-hmm. Like it is a well-told story. The fact that Nick Gage was tournament of survival, but Matt Tremont wins Nick Gage's tournament. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, it's almost like mind boggling that they told a story that well, especially in American deathmatch wrestling. Like mm. it is a very, very impressive feat. And I wish I liked the third one more. It's, it's too ambitious for its own good. Yeah. It is a very ambitious match that I respect, but I wish in the end I liked it more. Yeah. But in general, like the Tremont Gage series, I agree with you really is like the logical conclusion Mm. Of like what we've grown to know as deathmatch wrestling, at least in the United States, maybe ever, but yeah. at least in this CZW, IWA, Mid South, now Game Changer Wrestling world, like this is where deathmatch wrestling, like logically, is like ended. Yeah. Um. So I alluded to, alluded to it, but mine come from the same pairing. So. The same pairing. It's uh, your top three are Nick Gage and Matt Tremont. Exactly. Um, <laughs> they come from the same uh, pair of guys in each match. I have them uh, not chronological order, but I'll explain to it. I'll explain them now. But uh, okay. My number three is Kenny Omega versus uh, Kuchigo Okada from the G1 Climax. My number two is Kenny Omega versus Kuchigo Okada from Wrestle Kingdom 11. My number one is Kenny Omega versus Kuchigo Okada from New Japan Pro Wrestling Dominion. Um, before I get into these matches, uh, out of curiosity, what would your personal ranking for the Okada Omega Trilogy be? I, um, I go back and forth whether or not I like the second or the third match more. Uh, I think the third match fixes a lot of the flaws with the, uh, with the bloat and with the meandering that I usually perceive, uh, in the first two matches. But I think the second one does more interesting things, uh, even if it goes too long for my taste and 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 also has uh some very annoying dramatic elements um i think i'd go two three one all right um the third match it took me a while to know what i wanted to do with it okay it's not because the match isn't great it's not because the match isn't stellar it's not, a, it's not because the match isn't another match that I could see someone saying is their match of the year because really mm-hmm. all three of these matches have been someone have been someone's match of the year, that, at least that I've seen. Yeah. Um, I think because I had took the weekend off to watch these sumo hall shows, and I think I might have woke up late and I wasn't able to watch this live. So I watched it a few hours later. But 
I watched it and it was a great match, but emotionally didn't hit me that same way, which surprised me because it's Kenny Omega finally beating Kazuchika Okada. Um, Kazuchika Okada sells his ass off, selling his neck. There's a lot of great action in it. It's a hot sumo hall crowd. The Young Bucks mm-hmm. are there. Like That's I, a positive? I love the Young Bucks during this program. Okay. Um, but for some reason, emotionally didn't hit me that way initially watching it. I watched it again two weeks ago and was blown the fuck away because the in-ring work here is stellar. Might argue that in-ring is probably the best match they've had. Mm. Um, Kenny Omega here, I think, turns into a phenomenal performance, but it's mainly Okada here in the selling. I think Okada and like the way he sells his neck here is stellar stuff. Like every single thing he does, he does his um knee neck breaker, and usually Okada is put in a position where he has to sell his leg. So when he does that, he goes and sells his leg. When Okada does this move here, because of the impact. And because of his neck being the thing that's compromised, yeah. when he touches down on the mat, he immediately winces in pain like he got nerve damage and everything just shot all the way up to yeah. his neck. Because that's how it works. It's like a, a spine. Your spine compresses anytime you do some like physical drop like that, and that obviously connects to your neck. And Okada is selling here. It's stellar. Um, Kenny Omega... For a lot of people, is better when he's in control of a match. And this is mm-hmm. a fantastic controlling match by Kenny Omega. Um, one of my favorite moments of this match, probably my favorite, is when they do the reverse Rana on the floor. And it's not because they do a reverse Rana on the floor. It's a brutal spot. It's the look on Kenny Omega's face after he realizes what he just did to him. Mm-hmm. It's this look of like glee and this light bulb blowing off, going off that oh my god, I know what to do now. Like, this guy is done. I have mm-hmm. him. It's this moment of confidence that you hadn't really seen in Kenny Omega in these matches where a lot of it is Kenny being serious and oftentimes having doubt and having to fight from underneath. This is that light bulb going off. Like, I have him today. He's not going to do this to me. Um, that then transitions into Kenny Omega doing a dragon suplex on the apron in which Kuzuko Okada takes a hard spill to the floor after he takes the ape bump on the apron. And uh, there's doctors coming out. Um, Gato is around him. And it's a very, like, hushed moment as Okada is getting tra- like, treated to by the, the doctors and getting checked on. And Omega, in this moment of ruthlessness and callousness that we hadn't really seen this year from him, he takes Okada and puts him back into the ring because he has to get this victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is great action here. Like down the stretch, obviously we get a whole bunch of a uh, rainmaker reversals, uh, a gross, absolutely like filthy Uranagi that o- that Omega does to Okada that plants him right on his head and neck. A move that Omega hadn't done in a few years prior. Yeah. Um, and Omega just hits Okada with everything. And while this is the last match they had this year. This is where we see the story that they were t- telling in January pay off. When Omega tried so hard to hit this one-winged angel. And he finally hit the one-winged angel at Dominion. But Okada's too close to the ropes. Mm-hmm. Now at this match, despite how much Okada fought and hit these amazing drop kicks and got his own offense in, Omega finally gets him with that one-winged angel. Middle of the ring, smack dab in the center. One, two, three. Okada was done. And like... 
in theory, this is this big Kenny Omega moment. But when you dig deeper into it, you realize Omega could only beat Okada when Okada was at his weakest. When Okada had already been hurt and rampaged on and like dismantled by evil and Minoru Suzuki, Kenny Omega turned into an opportunist here. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Kenny Omega's own work that caused this. So even in this series where like I'm rooting for Kenny Omega, where I want Kenny Omega to win, this match changes my mind. Because I'm watching this match, I'm thinking, and Kenny Omega is a fucking dick. Like, Kazuchika Okada is hurt. And I get it. Everybody's going to be wrestling hurt in kayfabe and in real life in this, like, grueling tournament. But Okada has had it especially rough. And by the time he gets to this guy that he's already had this crazy rivalry with, to deal with as much as Okada did, I wanted to see him win. I wanted to see Okada win, despite the fact that in the other two matches, Omega was my guy, but because Omega is such a dick, because Okada is so sympathetic, like, I buy into it. I buy into this, like, roles reversing. And this play mm-hmm. goes into, like, the final, when Omega goes back to being a heel and Naito's the baby face. Like, you pretty much healed Kenny Omega again, after this run of being like this sympathetic, valiant, heroic figure. And I really, really like the aspect of the match. And I'm glad that I rewatched it because before I don't think this match was in my top 10, but I'm really, really am blown away by this match. And anybody that says it's their favorite, I do not blame you because the story here is incredible. Even if you're not as deep into it as I am on those levels. Is it, is the reason that it's your least favorite of the three, though, is it because of this, uh, I don't know, Gato's story finally paying off, uh, you getting to cheer for Okada? <laughs> um, no, it's not. My viewing experience was just better watching okay. the first two matches. They're much I get more that. And I'll get into that now. But um, yeah. And they were, they were specifically thinking not just Omega's going to beat Okada, but it was Omega's going to win this belt. Yeah. Um, do you have anything to add when it comes to the third match? No, I mean, it's like it's um, – I think it's the most honest of the three because it's just uh, sort of a big, fast-paced spot fest, and it sort of pairs down on a lot of the a lot of the, um, a lot of the drama, I think, of the first two matches. Um, it's not my favorite because I think it's – I don't think it's as interesting as the Dominion match, but uh, it's, uh, it's pretty good. All right. So my number two is Kenny Omega vs. Kuchi Okada. Um, from Wrestle Kingdom 11. Now, um, for a while, this match was my number one, and I fully expected this to be my number one. Um, even going into Dominion, I didn't know if they could actually top what they did at Wrestle Kingdom 11. Yeah. Um, going into Wrestle Kingdom 11, it was a mix of emotions. It was a mix of uh, almost thinking that the way people were reacting to like Naito losing at Wrestle Kingdom 12 a few days ago, is like in my mind how I was feeling going into Wrestle Kingdom 11. Yeah. And like, I get it. Like, Naito was a bigger star than Kenny Omega Omega in Japan. Like, a full 10K boost at Wrestle Kingdom 12 because Naito was in the main event. I get that. But um, because Kenny Omega is my favorite wrestler, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, on that short list of guys, it's like uh, there was fear in me that they gave him this whole big first North American to ever win the G1 push and that like everything was falling into place so perfectly and that 
Kenny Omega wouldn't win. And I'm in, in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is so fucking stupid. Why would you not have Kenny Omega win? Like, yeah. he's like, why would you waste this big moment? The first North American to win a G1. You're expanding into North America. What are you doing? Like, it makes all the sense in the world to me. And like, I haven't got closer to the show. Like, I got more realistic with the possibility that maybe Kenny Omega isn't going to win. Maybe he's not going to win. And I can deal with that. But that's what I want. Deep down, I know that's what I want. And I can deal with realistic expectations and, re- and the reality of a situation as much as I can. But the heart was the heart was what it wants at the end of the day. And uh-huh. what I want is to see Kenny Omega, this guy that had this 10-plus year journey of a lot of bullshit, finally <laughs> get a spot like this. Uh, the fact that Kenny Omega is, is, is even in this position is mm. crazy. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's facing Okada in the main event of the Tokyo Dome and not just like invasion attack or like yeah. a smaller show is crazy. Um, this guy has dealt with so much shit. And we, we get into that on the Kenny Omega episode of Psychology is Dead. So like, I'm not going to go that far into it. If you want to hear about everything this guy has dealt with, then you can go listen to that. But like keeping all that in mind, keeping where he, come, where he came from, keeping that he went to DDT on a whim got over there. They pretty much forced his hand to come back. He becomes one of the hottest stars in that promotion. And he doesn't leave until he has nothing left to accomplish. He comes to New Japan and starts off as a junior, gets this big push. And we see him here and like getting to watch him get this Terminator inspired entrance and walk the Tokyo Dome ramp Mm -hmm. is like one of the most fulfilling things I've ever seen. Like, for how goofy the look is. He has this like half mask on and he's like just fucking grinning from ear to ear. Like watching him in that Terminator video get to speak Japanese and take the clothes and do all that shit and get to walk out with his closest friends. Like that's great to me. Yeah, he gets to have a big entrance. He's not just a dude walking out. Mm. And uh, I think the match itself is great. I really do. I really think it's the most well booked match. Uh, I've seen in a long time. Mm. Uh, keep in mind everything I said in that everything Kenny Omega has going for him, Kenny Omega should, in theory, win this match. On the flip side, Kazuchika Okada is on the title reign. Kazuchika Okada just got his first win over Hiroshi Tanahashi at the Dome at Wrestle Kingdom 10. Mm. So really, there's two sides of this. Does Kenny Omega lose and you kind of have this big North American wrestler win the G1 and, and this pushes off or not? Or do you have Okada lose again at New Japan's biggest show of the year? Mm-hmm. And their like solution to this booking conundrum is this 47-minute epic match that flips the whole world upside down in which no guy comes out worse and both guy both guys comes out come out better. This is the kickstart to that ridiculous Kazuchika Okada run. This is the kickstart to people really latching on to Kenny Omega. Obviously, he had those great G1 matches against Tetsuya Naito and Hiroki Goto. Uh-huh. But this is it. This is the match that got hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube the days the days after the show came out. This dwarfed anything that was on Wrestle Kingdom 11 in that department. This mm-hmm. was talked about on every podcast. Every tweet Kenny Omega made following this match went like... Upwards of like 40,000, 50,000 like retweets and hundreds of thousands of likes. Like, this was 
the match. People in WWE tweeting at Kenny Omega, telling him how great that match was. Mm -hmm. Like, this is it. And it's not great because of those things. It's great because in spite of this like back-against-the-wall situation they're in front of, nothing bad happens. It's not that nothing bad happens. Like, the best possible things happen coming out of this. Like, you could have easily killed Kenny Omega's momentum. You could have fucked over Okada. Like, there's so much that could have went wrong. And mm. none of it did. Um, A lot of people's problem is, like, like the first 10, 15 minutes is pointless. I don't agree. I think the mat work and the way they reverse each other is uh, very unique and impactful compared to a lot of the Okada-Tanahashi matches or even something like Okada versus Naito, where I think those are much more typical New Japan than what Omega and Okada were doing. Um, when they kick up the pace, I think they do it in a unique way where they go straight for the um, guardrail DDT. Uh, the dives Kenny Omega is doing, the table spot, which is going to be one of the most iconic spots ever in wrestling. It's a hell of a spot. Kenny Omega soaring through the air, taking a back body drop, taking a back body drop to the floor through a table is utterly insane. Like, we see Kenny Omega come in as this arrogant asshole. He spits on Okada. He throws, um, he like crumbles up one of the um, Rainmaker dollars and throws it at him. Um, he rolls out of the ring, biding time, taking cheap shots. And that's all the beginning of the beginning stages. But once we get towards the closing stretch, this is what I mean by Kenny Omega is such a unique wrestler, is that you can hate this guy and think he's the most annoying, self-centered prick during the beginning stages of a match. And then during this, as the match goes on, you start to feel bad for him. That maybe this guy was just a dick and an asshole because he's like so far in over his head. Mm. That maybe because he believes in himself so much that he got carried away. And then once he realizes the gravity of a situation, it's like he goes back to being that like young kid that all he wanted to do was be in Japan and be a wrestler. Like, I feel for Kenny Omega. It's not just because he's my favorite wrestler. It's just looking at his face when he's on his knees, both his punches to Okada's gut, and Okada's just staring him down. Like, Okada knowing he's fucked up. Okada knowing that Omega has wasted his last breath and mm -hmm. he has nothing left to give. And there's a whole lot of big moves and big spots that people think should have ended matches, and I get it. Like, the dragon suplex off the top. It annoys people at no end. And somewhat I get it. Somewhat I think people are kind of overplaying it because in Kenny Omega's arsenal, the dragon suplex is just a signature move. It's not a finisher. Yeah. Um, but watching Kenny Omega have to fight and claw and scratch even more than he already has to get here is what makes the appeal for me. Mm. Um, Kenny Omega in moments of like defiance and uh, willpower and just not wanting to die and let this moment go, he kicks out of a Rainmaker. I did not think Kenny Omega would kick out of a Rainmaker. I thought the first Rainmaker Okada hit would probably be it. Maybe I'm just underestimating how much Gato actually liked Kenny Omega going into this match. But I didn't think the Rainmaker kickout would happen. I thought there would be a whole lot of dancing around it. And maybe eventually they would uh, go back to the Rainmaker being a like, devastating move. Um, but Kenny Omega kicks out and he hits this drop kick. 
again, Okada being this whole master of the drop kick, the elevation, the impact, the height of it. It gets replayed in slow motion all the time. It's a big part of what he does. And Kenny Omega gets up and hits this gorgeous drop kick on Okada. And then he gets him up and hits him with this ripcord knee. And in this moment, I'm like standing up in my basement, like cheering, like punching the air, like, holy shit, Kenny Omega might actually win. Kenny Omega might actually beat Kazuchika Okada in the main event of Tokyo Dome. And like, he doesn't win, but I'm not disappointed. I'm not mad. I'm not angry online writing tweets or writing an article or in the <laughs> Slack chat talking about, oh my fucking God, they made the wrong move. I'm, I'm fine. Like, I'm totally fine because at the end of the day, my favorite wrestler went out there and had a classic match. I've got another one of my favorite wrestlers. And both guys came out better. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that can be stressed enough is that, like, both guys this helped them. It set up the rest of the New Japan 2017. Mm-hmm. And, like, as a booking decision, I don't think they could have laid this match out any better than they did. I think the Young Bucks are phenomenal at, like, the seconds. And, like, the Young Bucks were as, uh, again, as annoying and as showboaty and as self-absorbed as they can be in this moment and in this entire feud. They are willing to be on the sideline and play sidekick to watch their close friend go out there and have the biggest matches of his life. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean a lot to me. So, um, anything that before I go to the number one. No, I think, I think this is all you. Um, so, at Dominion 2017, uh, obviously my number one, uh, this happened on June 11th, 2017. There was a lot of confusion, doubt, mm. conversation about where this match was headed, but where Kenny Omega's career was headed. Um, I was always under the belief that Kenny Omega was never actually going to WWE and that sure. he was just playing with the emotions of uh, fans. But, Dick. <laughs> um, <laughs> but leading into this, there was some like legitimate worry that Maybe this is Kenny Omega's last IWGP title shot. Yeah. Maybe this is the last one before he's actually gone. And going into this match, I obviously didn't know if it would be as good as Wrestle Kingdom or Mm -hmm. match my viewing experience watching Wrestle Kingdom live. But something like that Liam said, um, he's like Larrikin on Twitter. Um, I (laughs) I don't know. I'm not going to spell it because it's like really, really spelled. um, Yeah, it's not even how the actual word Larrikin is spelled. Yeah, so um, a good friend of mine, Liam, um, we were talking about this match in particular, going into it, and something Liam said was, uh, let me find it real quick, but it's something about, I need to ignore the future of what may or may not happen and just live in the moment, and be happy that my favorite wrestler might win the top title on my favorite company, and like, as wrestling fans, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody, we worry about everything. We yeah. want to know everything. I said it on a previous podcast, but like the one thing wrestling fans hate the most is not knowing something. Like, <laughs> if we don't know something, if what we assume is going to happen doesn't happen, then we think the company is stupid, then we think everything that happened was all dumb booking to say that because they took us in a different direction because sure. we had these expectations. Um, 
And like, I need to put that aside because my favorite wrestler was facing another one of my favorite wrestlers, one of my favorite promotions, and one of my favorite cities to watch wrestling in, in this beautiful Osaka, Osaka Joe Hall venue. And it's like, almost like the closest thing I've had to like a religious experience in like years. Mm. Like, just getting to like watch this match with friends and like get the build up to all of this show. And like, it's a really fun show too. It's not just a one note thing. And like, I get to have like just my favorite viewing experience ever watching a wrestling match. And I think the wrestling is fantastic. I think there's great storytelling. I think the mat wrestling here is great for as much shit as Okada gets on the mat. I think uh, the victory roll into the um, red ink spot is very well done and very smooth. Uh, a lot of callbacks and reversals and playing off of uh, things that have happened in the past in their match and things that have happened in the past in Okada matches and the Kenny Omega matches. There's a lot to take in here. There's breathtaking spots. There's um, brutality in the way Okada is just like relentless and vicious, cutting a, cutting Kenny Omega off at every turn. Uh, a Kenny Omega that when he had this big entrance at Wrestle Kingdom, you can look at that and say Kenny Omega's head wasn't in the right place. His eyes got too big for his plate, and eventually Okada just overtook him. Here at Dominion, there is no leather jacket. There's no glasses. There's none of that. Oh, oh, Kenny Omega is just out here by himself in his tights and his boot. And I think that speaks to the gravity of how Kenny Omega was taking this match now. Mm-hmm. That He already had this big failure. He can't have another one. And going into this match, I wanted it at Wrestle Kingdom. I needed it here. I needed that validation. I wanted it more than anything that this guy was going to win and just have this great match and finally get this IWGP title and have this great emotional moment. Even if it's the one time he holds this belt, even if he uh-huh. loses it in his first defense, I needed it. I just wanted that moment. And again, I don't get it. I don't, Kenny Omega doesn't win, but Kenny Omega doesn't lose here either. Kenny Omega takes him to his absolute limit. The first time limit draw in New Japan in 12 years. The first time I don't even know the last time a draw has happened in the WWE. So in the two biggest promotions in the world right now, this is the first 60-minute draw in a very, very, very long time. So this match does have something going for it that a lot of the other matches don't. And that even if a 60-minute draw was a rare, not rare thing, a common thing in like the 70s and 80s, um, when it came to your Ric Flairs and other traveling NWA champions, the 60-minute draw was a way that nobody comes out of a match looking bad. In the current landscape, a 60-minute draw just wasn't really feasible for a lot of things like TV time constraints, mm-hmm. fans um, not being interested in matches going that long for the most part. Uh-huh. There's a lot of things that work against a 60-minute match happening in 2017. But with all that being said, at the peak of like New Japan's powers, they have this risky decision to throw on a 60-minute draw. Like, I think that is a very gutsy call that wound up paying off in the end because obviously we see where it is on my list and where it places on so many other people's lists. The match that wound up working in the end. And granted, like, I wish, um, God, I really wish I can make a one. Like, I would, it would be like the undisputed greatest thing ever 
if Kenny Omega won. Yeah. But, like, getting to watch him fight from underneath, getting to watch, like, the Bullet Club come out, there's, like, an underlying story of this camaraderie that, like, the Bullet Club and the Young Bucks have this, like, inner strife going on because Cody wants to throw in the towel, but the Young Bucks are saying, Kenny is fine, Kenny's got this. Don't worry about Kenny. And they're literally going back and shouting to the ring, like, Kenny, 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 you got this, right? Like, talking to him. And as Kenny is coming to, he's realizing that his friends are, like, at the ramp watching him. And then Kenny Omega gets this dragon suplex off. This is V-Trigger. Uh, gets the towel that Cody was about to throw into the ring mm-hmm. and wipe himself off with it. And, like, this moment of defiance and willpower again, that this guy, is about how cocky and arrogant he can be, that when he gets down and out, and when he starts firing up, you you believe in him. You want to see him win. And this is a phenomenal Okada performance here, too. Like, I thought the Shibata match was his best performance ever, but this isn't too far behind. Like, Okada's cutoff drop kicks here are a thing of beauty, I think. Mm-hmm. Every single time he hits him with a drop kick, it's way more heart-wrenching and, like, more destructive than the last. Like, I can just watch him cut off Kenny Omega, whether it be on a running drop kick, whether it be a standing drop kick, a John Woo drop kick, okay, a drop kick to Kenny Omega's back. Every single time Kenny Omega thinks he has it down the stretch, and then maybe he'll hit the one winged angel, Okada cuts him off. And Okada does get hit with the one winged angel eventually. But again, playing off of what happened at Wrestle Kingdom 11, when Omega actually hits it, it does tell us that Okada wasn't going to kick out. But because Omega, out of desperation, after fighting for this move, he had to grab Okada's wrist to get him to stay in place because Okada was fighting to get off of his shoulders. After Omega drives him down, all Okada can do is just bend his leg a little bit backwards and get it on a rope. And that's when it sinks in for you that even Kenny Omega's best shot right there wasn't good enough because he made one more fatal mistake. Uh... And neither guy wins here, but I think that's what makes it great is that like this exertion of exhaustion and just all the effort in the world and every single Rainmaker, a one-winged angel actually being hit, these big moves, and these guys saw the concept of exhaustion extremely well. And at the end of it, um, or near the end of it, when Okada goes for this Rainmaker, and he whiffs, not because Kenny Omega ducks it or reverses it, Kenny Omega just collapses. And like, there's another thing I talk about where we talk about like the Fred J. High Jonathan Gresham finish from like a mm. dimension or Shawn Michaels falling from a concussion. Like it's something that I just believe in because this guy has gone through this grueling war. So by the time Okada is just ready to take his head off one more time, Omega just has nothing left. It just collapses and both guys are just laying on the ground. You can argue the one flaw of this match really is that Okada was the one that was trying to get the victory as time was expiring and not Omega. But that goes to the story of Okada is that like he is a fighting champion. Mm-hmm. He wants to win. He's not going to just take anything and take shortcuts and take moves lying down. He wants to prove himself. So if that is somebody's complaining about this match, I totally get it. But as a viewing experience, as the best viewing experience I've ever had watching wrestling, nothing will come close, at least for a very, very very long time. For a while, the thing I would say was my favorite viewing experience was like getting to watch WrestleMania 25 and Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker with my brother. Uh-huh. But like, this is something special too. And 
having like the best match ever like for me is an ever-changing thing just like my greatest wrestler ever is like an ever-changing thing so when i say this is the best match ever right now this this is representative of my 20 years i've spent on earth mm-hmm. and in that time as i've had favorite wrestlers come and go people retire people have uh not being around anymore whether it be the deaths or um whatever else this is one that stands out a lot and will mean the world to me for uh days to come a few days before this or a week before this whatever it was um i had this podcast called the um www roundup that i was doing with trask for uh what was done wrestling with words and we had got a few episodes in until we had to cancel the show and i was uh very disappointed by that, but the fact that I just wanted it to be a regular thing, and I thought people were liking the show and enjoying it, so the fact that we had to stop was uh, not hurtful, but like, I didn't know what to do with myself after that, and I guess getting to watch that match kind of like reminded me that even if that show wasn't going to happen, like wrestling is still there and can always make me feel better about it. So I talked about with my number one how it was the uh, the natural endpoint of deathmatch wrestling, and like I honestly wouldn't mind if I if I never saw another deathmatch ever again. If if deathmatches as a style just disappeared from the face of the earth, um, where do you think wrestling goes from here? Is this is this the natural endpoint of like your understanding of pro wrestling, or or, or is something going to beat this out? Um, you're probably not wrong, honestly, in like making that in that I think for what I've really loved in the last few years, like being this like big epic, like New Japan style with like a lot of callbacks and uh, playing off history and things that like I've always loved in my professional wrestling and that's not going to change. But I think watching this match was the pinnacle of that style Mm -hmm. It is the pinnacle of this callback heavy reversal heavy genre of wrestling that i really really enjoy and i think even since then i've noticed that my tastes have changed a lot um something like okada versus naito from wrestle kingdom 12 not being one of my favorite matches um in general that i've seen this year um it's kind of letting me know that something some things are changing already so maybe it is a natural endpoint for what my wrestling fandom was for like the last few years but that's not a bad thing. Like, it doesn't make this match less great when I eventually go back and rewatch it in years' time. Because this is the beauty of having a blog and having like things written out in Google Documents is that you can go back and read how you were feeling in the moment. Mm-hmm. And even if I go back and watch it two, three years later and think, oh man, this is overly long. I can't pay attention to it. There's not enough action in it for me. Where is more mat wrestling? The selling isn't that great. Like, even if like that becomes my mind state in the next few years, I always reminded like at one point I really did love this, and at one point it really was my favorite thing that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And everything does have a time and place in wrestling. And right now, on uh, January 9th, twenty eighteen, it is my match of the year. The greatest match I've ever seen, and I have no qualms saying that. But uh, that wraps up this, let's just say, 100 hours of um, podcasting <laughs> that we've completed. Um, Rock, thank you again for uh, doing this. 
I swear to God, if in 2019 you make me do a 150, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do to you. <laughs> um, assuming that we keep this going for years and years to come, we get to like 2025. We're, so. actually, we're actually doing a top 500. It <laughs> <laughs> just keeps going up and up and up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, really, sincerely, like, thank you a lot for doing like all of this audio with me, spending this time like hearing me ramble and mm. sometimes forget words because I don't take notes. But uh, really, thank you for doing this. Uh, plug your Twitter, your blog, everything that people should be following already because we've been doing this for a while now. And like, <laughs> what are you doing? Sure, uh, you could find me on Twitter at not Brock Yonke. That's spelled N O T B R O C K J A H N K E. I also run a blog over on WordPress called Brock Hates Wrestling. Uh, uh, where I run down all sorts of wrestling reviews, single show, uh, single matches, uh, full shows. I'm going to expand to a couple other things, and pretty soon I'm going to have my uh, year-end awards for 2017 up. Um, and I would like to say thank you, Quinn, for once again having me on here. Uh, last year was uh, a a really enjoyable and really fulfilling experience that helped me through uh, a time that was really rough for me and my family. And uh, it has once again been uh, a great use of my time this year. And I hope we get to do it for years to come. Uh, I don't really think I explained what was going on here, but okay. So in all of 2018 psychology is that we'll be doing a 2015 retrospective, um, which will come consists of episodes focusing on uh, Mexico slash South America, um, Japan, the United States slash Canada region, um, and Europe. So uh, look forward to me and Brock doing that. And Tanner, um, formerly of We Don't Know Wrestling, um, also on um, what All You Can Hear podcast. Yes. Um, he'll be joining us along for the ride. Um the first episode of this is planned for what March, right? I'm gonna see. If, I'm gonna see if I can push it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just lucha. Oh uh, yeah. Um, but the first episode of that is planned for March. So uh, I'm really looking forward to revisiting what was uh, maybe the most important year in wrestling in twenty in the, in the 2010s in uh, uh-huh. 2015. Um. So if you are at all interested in a very, very thorough and stupid retrospective rewatch series, then I implore you to stick with Psychology is Dead, um, dr- I'm Dead throughout um, 2018. Then being said, that won't that be the only episode that, of Psychology is Dead that will happen in 2018. I still have more episodes planned, still have more guests to get on. Maybe I'll have Brock last to give him a break, considering I'm going to have him watching so much wrestling. But, um... All the 2018 year and stuff that you will um, still be looking forward to will still be happening. It won't be replaced by the 2015 things. Um, so, with all that being said, thank you all for listening. We'll be here next time. Riding on a rope with a dollar sign attached to my head.